This episode of How To Wrestling is brought to you by our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash How To Wrestling, where if you become just a $5 backer, you can support the show and get access to over 100 episodes of exclusive audio, everything from pay-per-view reviews to classic shows, videos, and much more available over on the Patreon page. And today's episode, I'm really happy to say, is brought to you by our pals over at ECW Press, fitting, I know, and their new book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, written by Brian Solomon. The Sheik is someone who is very relevant to this episode. He's the uncle of Sabu, and as well as that, he is one of the most mysterious, revered, reviled, scary, strange, innovative villains of all time. One of the original villains in wrestling, and throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you would not go far in a wrestling world without hearing people mutter about the Sheik and the evil acts that he would inflict upon his opponents. Everything from fireballs to pointed sticks, this man innovated in the world of wrestling. And once you've learned all about Sabu, I can only give you the most wholehearted recommendation to go and check out this book. I've read it. It's fantastic. I think Brian Solomon has done an amazing job. There's a foreword from our old pal Orvd. It's available now wherever you get your books on paperback and on Kindle. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. But before we get into that, let's get into today's episode. It's time to learn all about the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal, death-defying maniac. It's time for How To Sabu. friends and welcome to the episode of how to wrestling the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling how to get into wrestling how to understand wrestling and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling and i say that today with one of the strangest people we will ever cover on an episode of this here podcast they is all about the homicidal suicidal and or genocidal death-defying maniac known as sabu however once again it's me your old pal captain kevin Joined as I am always in my podcast partner, co-host, life partner, Joe Graham. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing very, very well, thank you. I'm really excited. This is a big episode. Yeah. I mean, what? I gotta ask you, why are you excited? Because I mean, for me, this was an episode that you know, long planned in advance. The more we've researched, the closer we've come to the day of doing the episode. I have become like a giddy school child, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited for this one. And it's funny, I didn't think this would be a big episode. You say it's a big episode, I believe you. But coming into this, I don't know if either of us... Well, I don't know, I can't speak for you. But I don't know if either of us thought this would be a big episode. But yeah, I'm super excited. Um, yeah, it's good times. <laughs> I'm kind of like so pent up. We've been wanting to record this episode for like a week. Mm. And so I'm like, I'm so enthusiastic about actually sitting down to record it. That I, yes. I'm like falling over my words a little bit. <laughs> yes, uh, of course, backers over on the Patreon page will know that our ongoing struggles our last seven or so days we have had ongoing, we suspect Mark Calloway, brackets Undertaker, knee drills going on <laughs> in the rooms next door to us where we live. So we've been unable to record about Sabu, but anything that's just made us kind of, I don't know, boil over with excitement a little bit. Yeah. I think part of the reason why initially my expectations were somewhat tempered by this is that we've been doing this podcast for many, many years now, and it remains a delight to do. But one thing Kevin, the wrestling fan of old, has learned is that 
don't expect you yourself, Kevin, as an adult, nor your podcast partner, Joe Graham, to be as in love with ECW and its misshapen representatives as you were when you were 16 years old. Ha. I mean, almost always when we have went into ECW, and it's been pointed out, we went into ECW quite a fair few times now at this point. It's probably one of the promotions you're most knowledgeable about. Oh yeah, no, definitely. After WWE, ECW is probably the one I know most. It's really funny. If you've not lived into my bizarre world and you've seen Joe Graham school Adam Bibolo That was so about ECW, because you know way more about him now. That's yeah, honestly, genuinely like weird into the Twilight Zone moment for me when Adam came around the other day and we were talking about Sabu and he was like, Yeah, I don't really know much about him or ECW and I was like what? How do like, I know more? Actually, Heatwave's not as good as some of you may have remembered. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, let's think of some of the episodes we've done about ECW wrestlers before. We've done uh, recently Rob Van Dam. Yeah. Uh, Sandman. Sandman. Paul Heyman. Heyman himself. We did an episode on the company itself. Oh, yeah, on ECW. I can't remember if there's anyone else. Taz. Taz, of course. <laughs> Taz, I feel he's such a journeyman, though. It feels kind of rude to say oh he's an ecw guy even though i'm sure he thinks of himself as one i mean it's interesting that taz he spent more time in tna than he did in ecw more time in wwe than he did in ecw yet you know for me growing up with him he's an ecw guy i mean eddie guerrero someone we did ray mysterio mick foley stone cold steve austin that is weird did we actually cover in his episode his period in ecw because yes. i remember nothing about it i think the thing that you may have remembered although you didn't realize it was a parody at the time was steve austin because he would he had just been fired from wcw and he would come onto ecw and just like cut these promos about how much he hated having been fired and he'd dress up like eric bischoff and he'd talk about monday nyquil and he'd just go on and on about like you know they say you are what you eat and I ain't nothing but a bunch of damn garbage so I became garbage. <laughs> just like really pissed off at the world. He had the kind of shaved head, no goatee, right. sparkly eyes. It might be worth revisiting some I of think that. I so, like. yeah. I remember none of that. So I think ECW, at least when we can, can look from our vantage point here in the future, yeah. it was certainly an important group in terms of people yeah. finding their way and the wrestling world finding its way a little and bit. Also, yeah, I think on, on that note that you've made, I think one of the main takeaways I had from doing the ECW episode and also looking at the wrestlers from ECW was just how influential it was to the industry as a whole. Yeah. Like, it took so many influences from across the world and really utilised them effectively in a way that then did allow itself to be kind of repeated on other promotions and in other places, which is really cool. I mean, there's no denying that. Yeah, and it's it's always something which I think... The two things that always get mislabeled the most in wrestling is who killed WCW? And there's always an overly easy explanation that people give that's Kevin almost Nash. always right. <laughs> Joe. He's who I blame. <laughs> Just because, like. We... As I said, almost always is never the case. Yes. He doesn't give a shit, so why does it matter if he's to blame or not? Like, yeah. ultimately, he's the one who's going to care least, so I'm going to blame him. Yeah, the question of who killed WCW is like going to a murder mystery party and had a few too many drinks. No one really cares. Ah, it was Vince Russo. Yeah, just, sure. Yeah, just yeah. Shooting yeah. someone yeah, at the yeah, murder yeah, mystery yeah. party. It was Jason Hervey. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever, man. But the other one that I always think gets kind of oversimplified is kind of, oh, why was ECW successful? I think some people go, oh, Paul Heyman, he was a visionary. Mm. Or it was like this very small select group of, of people who had a really influential style who went on to do bigger and better things. 
And I don't think there's anyone that we've done an episode on who's quite a mirror to ECW as a concept as a whole. Yeah. Quite like Sabu, and I've just realised Terry Funk is in the episode. Oh, of course, Terry. But I think Sabu is someone who really, from a young age, like when I first, you know, talked to you about ECW in, in earnest, I remember it was the Salmon episode we were talking about, you know, the the, the the legends I would hear about these this company and these very violent matches, and Sabu was someone genuinely scared me a bit when I was a kid, when I, heard, and I even hadn't even seen him, I heard about him. What had you heard? Covered in scars... Glues himself shut, barbed wire, stabs his opponents, he will do anything. Just, like, not an actual wrestler, a crazy man. How old were you when you heard this? 14, maybe. And is this around the time when people were starting to say that wrestling was fake? I mean, people were always, like, I mean, I, before I even watched wrestling, I was like, it's fake. Because I have found it quite interesting, the idea of, like, that period of time, people being a lot like, yeah, wrestling's fake, but also then passing around these stories of these legendary wrestlers from ECW who very much make it seem like it's not fake at all. Yeah, I think probably because around that time would have been, you know, a few years after I'd read McFoley's book at that point. So I considered myself to be a smart young fan or whatever Mm. it was. But there was always like, wrestling is fake. I accept it's fake. And I accept, you know, how it's been presented to me as as how it is fake. You know, what bits are, are real or whatever it is. And what bits are kind of predetermined. But ECW, and particularly Sabu, that kind of came across to me the way it was always described as wrestling is predetermined and not real. But there are these guys who are kind of sadists and kind of use wrestling as this backdrop to do these sadistic things that they probably wouldn't be allowed to do elsewhere in the world. Which is a really fucked up way of viewing what is ultimately, yeah, he's still a wrestler. He's still trying to entertain you using his body and stuff like that. So was the idea, it was like, ECW wasn't real wrestling or was it more the idea of like that is real wrestling or ECW was like it's fight club like you know it's kind of wrestling is this thing that exists and is predetermined but this group over here not everyone but there are a number of people within it who are kind of like hey I can do whatever I want so I can be crazy and violent and that's what I ultimately want I think as a youngster and I think it's because of Mick Foley and the myth around him in, in wrestling, I genuinely believe that wrestling had this like large crop of people who enjoyed getting hurt. Right, yeah. Like that this was a great pleasure to them. And I think there was a point in my time when I was 14, I thought, that'll be me. And then I did back, you know, <laughs> backyard wrestling at lunchtime. Aww. I'm like, once you get punched in the stomach once or twice, you go, nah, nah, I actually don't like this at all. And all of a sudden I'm like falling going, that hurts, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> you sick sons of bitches. So, but Sabu, I remember I'd heard of him, scared saw him even more scared did he live up in your mind when you had this like image of him did he live up to that image in your mind when you eventually saw him yes because he's the first wrestler i ever remember watching where i had to turn away and put my hand over the screen really even as like an edgy teen yeah you weren't really an edgy teen but still (laughs) joe my t-shirts were as black as the rest of them let me tell you right (laughs) but yeah that was i considered it too much to me i think it was the stairway for hell match that you and i did for the sandman episode i remember watching watching that and thinking this is too much and i do remember seeing the barbed wire no rope death match as well Mm -hmm. and thinking like i remember thinking this isn't fun like this isn't entertaining it is just like worrying yeah. you know and all of that what was the circuit sorry i realize i'm asking you a lot of questions yeah i was gonna ask you this is my job asking you questions but i feel there's not many episodes where this i feel like i can get such a pure jus from you of your experience at the time which We're is all like, about that pure jus here which maybe hasn't been like impacted by what came after yeah yeah so i was just wondering like how did you first 
actually get to see Sabu then? What were the circumstances? Like, was it a case of like, I know you people shared around tapes and stuff? Yeah, my brother's friend who was considered, he was the, my brother's friend got him into wrestling and then that got me into wrestling basically. Right. And he, you know, of course, the, my brother's friend, his older brothers then were like, you know, they were like, you know, when they were watching WWF, they were like, oh, they had ECW and FMW tapes. FMW. And, oh yeah, like they, these lads, you know, they were proper, you know. CD shit. CD hardcore fans. Like, you know, and there's something as well, like you watch, you know, FMW YouTube or whatever now but the idea you get to like, send away like yeah. an unmarked fucking it tape it, gets sent in the mail it makes it so much scarier <laughs> yeah. like that's something that I feel like a little bit I, it's funny even though I don't think I would have appreciated it as a teenager but I kind of feel like I've missed out on that experience of like the seedy underground nature of like it's almost like the tape from the ring like in that it's like got legendary status you could only get it by who you knew who knew someone who could get it i was gonna say it was like physical pornography from back in the day yeah but you know yeah there may be a lot of people listening who don't understand the power of like a physical piece of media i know we spent many times in this podcast (laughs) physical media but the idea that i get a tape and i remember seeing the tape for like i think it was the the you know it's either the the bit of the pay-per-view or someone had, you know, I remember the tape trader stuff I used to watch. People would kind of have made it themselves, you know, the, yeah. double, the double tape deck. And I remember his brothers used to rent tapes from blockbusters and tape over the tape. You know, they would just get copies of the tapes because they had a double tape rack. Their dad was a fucking high court judge, by the way, as well. Fucking, the kids here doing the greasy fucking dubbing on the side. But the idea of this, like, physical piece of media having this, like, I don't know. It's like the, the sound from Yakuza plays. We see, like, dun, dun the tape that has the bloody match on it. Like, this is the nudie mag or this is the dangerous thing. Like, even if this physical object was found, not even the act of you watching it, that was, like, enough. That was scary. I completely understand this. Because, like... And I I feel as well, it's something that can never be recreated on any other platform. Like, there's something inherently interesting curious cursed about vhs tapes oh yeah there's something about the weight of them how they look like i've been as you know going through my old vhs tapes and i've been looking through (laughs) a lot of my old robot wars oh god let me tell you you've not lived until you see joe discover like a hundred year old vhs tape that has fire walk with me on it it's like the tape itself looks creepy but when you actually play it as well like even back in the day when the quality was as good as it could get it was still warped and jarring and mangled you just it was something about it that kind of like made your heart race a little bit yeah and like in terms of wrestling your wrestling i think fell into that category for me definitely as an anxious kid like even though i knew my parents knew that i liked wrestling i remember they were proud as punch that i was staying up to watch a wedding when tess and stephanie were were you know (laughs) Oh, my, our child is growing up normal. Thank you, Vince Russo and Vince yeah, McMahon. Normal children love to watch celebrity <laughs> Thank weddings. You. But I knew there was a side of wrestling. I knew my parents understood it, but there was a side of wrestling. Like, my finger was always on the, the button to change the channel on a Friday yeah. or Saturday night because I knew if there were certain things, salacious stuff, yeah. stuff that was too violent. And I think, like, if I think about all the things I was worried about my parents seeing the most, other than, like, kind of sleazy or sexy stuff, it would have been the gory, violent stuff. Yeah. And Sabu... You know, not to say that I was watching loads of Sabu matches, hope my parents wouldn't see. But if there was one thing that kind of like I would not want my parents to see the most, yeah. it would have been Sabu. And is that because you would have been worried that they would have been worried that you would then recreate this violence? Any, anything from like you're going to recreate it to you were watching like, you know, we've seen this man. You, you and I clips, we've seen the man's bicep gets torn open. Yep. You've got announcers, Joey Styles, who like literally sound like he's about to lose his lunch. You yeah. know, when you see some of the, you know, even if you see Sabu unhurt. Mm he looks scary like you're just seeing that scarred man (laughs) it's so funny though that you say that because 
I haven't once throughout all of the research we've done for this episode, I haven't found him scary at all. You have winced on a couple of occasions. Winced, yes. So. And I found the things he goes through scary. But I've never looked at Sabu and felt, oh, I'm scared of that man. You nearly cried at one point during the research. But to not this. from fear. Not from fear. No. Because as it turns out, Sabu is one of these people who had, you know, great myth had been built around him. He never spoke in his entire career. Mm. I mean, he had this presentation. We've, been, we've mentioned the, obviously the scars and all that. But, you know, he'd have the you know, the kefia, the, 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 the headdress. Mm-hmm. You know, he would have the baggy pants. You know, yeah, the harem pants. The harem pants called, yeah. with the sash, mm-hmm. you know. And this was, you know, always doing the pose and pointing and all that. Like, that was, for me was, like, such a strong image and look. And this was always Sabu in my mind. And even as I learned more and more about wrestling and I started, you know, talking about wrestling full time as a job and all that, he was still the person where the kind of childhood image I had of him hadn't really went away. Other than I knew that, oh, he made mistakes. Aww. You know, oh, you know, we, I'd watched a lot of Botchmania clips with Sabu. He was yeah. one of the, kind of the original Botchmania Hall of Famers. So he kind of dual wielded this kind of silly side and also the scary side. Mm-hmm. So always in my mind, there was the Sabu I remember from when I was very young. And then there's a Sabu I remember me and my buddy Paddy, you know, staying up. Hey, we've had a night out. Let's watch some Sabu clips. Let's watch a match. And when he makes a mistake, we'll take a drink. Horrible fucking so, shit to be doing as the wrestling fan minds. But that's also very interesting to me because like I, if I had to pick a like moments from his career, which I found scary, it was the botches. Like, I found there are moments where you're showing me compilation videos of his botches, and I was like, my heart was racing. I was so frightened because they're terrifying. Like, it's so scary to watch a wrestling move go wrong. And especially with someone who, you know, won't seek medical attention. Well, we've mentioned, of course, you know, ECW and we've, we've mentioned FMW. So you can obviously assume a bar of that style is hardcore. Yes. But for folks who don't know at all, I guess we're talking about mistakes. I mean, why, why were the mistakes? What was that style, as you could describe it, of Sabu? So the only thing pretty much I've known about Sabu up until now was that Sabu was flippy. So, if we go right back to when I first started watching wrestling. Flippy my... or folly, as is yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and my favourite wrestling style was the ones who would jump off the top rope and do flips and shit. And I feel Sabu encompasses that perfectly mm. because he is the flippiest. Like, he just throws himself off anything. But he's doing this in a company at a time where it wasn't done. That wasn't yeah. really, you know, like you had occasional people, like I think that the Dynamite Kid would jump off the top rope and do flips and oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, but like yeah. on the whole, matches were not designed for people to do that style. And also, though, we talk about ECW where the man made his name for himself. We've mentioned, I think, in countless episodes about it. Hey, we're talking about Sandman and, and Terry Funk. It's about the brawl, the yeah. hardcore style, weapons, yeah. hitting hard, making sure the fans who are very smart, you know, fans waiting for you to mess up that they can't accuse you of it not being real. And then the other side, you talk about Eddie Guerrero, you talk yeah, about Rey the Mysterio, wrestlers. the Lucha style. And then, of course, you've got Sabu, who kind of falls in the middle of those two. It's, except he doesn't fall in the middle because that implies that he is mediocre at all of them. And no, he's not. He's not. That's not no. fair. He sits on the extreme of all ends of the spectrum. He is one of the flippiest guys uh, no, he is the flippiest guy of that era. Maybe Rob Van Dam is is, is a bit flip, but I funny because Rob and, and Sabu very similar, but and I think so different, so different yeah. as well. And those two are guys whose careers are intertwined as well, as we'll get into. Yeah, and I feel that Rob Van Dam, yes, he was flippy, but he's flippy in such a controlled way that it almost doesn't feel flippy. Yeah, like to me, 
part of the flippy style is the total unpredictability of it and you don't know where that person is going to land or what's going to happen like it's just a big splash of chaos it's less graceful with Sabu and we don't mean that in a bad way (laughs) and because Sabu is trying you know these new styles that aren't practiced most places and because he is doing things that no one has ever done before as a result some of those moves don't come off as planned because he's trying new things and also he's in a company which is very much known for kind of putting your body on the line and being hardcore and ecw guess what lots of mistakes happened that's why people chanted you fucked up there i mean i'm not sure if that's the exact originator of that phrase but I always, when I hear people chant, you fucked up, I think of ECW and that small, very hard to please crowd. You are like waiting for a mistake to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's going to make wrestling so much better for you. (laughs) But again, it's part of that ECW toxic masculinity, hypercritical, super judgmental. Like the, it was ECW where if you didn't take a chair shot to the head, you were called a pussy by the crowd. Like it's just awful, toxic people. And I think it's really funny because, you know, the mistakes on the one hand are viewed as being this thing that will expose the business because if you're going to jump off the top rope and you're going to slip and fall or whatever it may be oh my god how dare you but like i remember reading in terry funk's book you know from that episode that we did a while back and you know he mentioned that sometimes he would put in a, a dirty move in there that didn't look like a scoop yeah. stand where he kind of landed a bit awkwardly not unsafely but not the pristine perfect you learned in wrestling school there's the crisp slam yeah. He do a sloppy one because it's like, well, we're in a fight and everything yeah. we do isn't going to be beautiful. It's going to be realistic yeah. and ugly. And <laughs> that's the style of wrestling that I really like most. Um, There's is... more gasps in a Sabu match. I yeah. think we've had more gasps per match for this episode than any previous episode. And it's been interesting being kind of a newer wrestling fan and kind of hearing a bit about Sabu from the very beginning, but not much. He's come up here and there. He's yeah. come up here and there. I'm pretty sure he's popped up in a few matches. But... As a newer wrestling fan, I could watch compilations of Sabu botches and to me it didn't look like a botch. Like because as a new wrestling fan, you don't know how moves are supposed to right, work. Right, yeah, yet. yeah. And it's interesting to think about that while also thinking about Sabu wrestling a style where, you know, the audience doesn't even know really how these moves are supposed to go because they've never seen them before. And we're at a point now, full circle almost, because I swear, you know, over on Patreon when we've done a couple of AEW pay-per-view reviews recently. There have been times where there's been injuries or what what it, what it appeared to be an injury at the time and then it realizes, no, they've deliberately like yeah. kind of worked you a little bit to make you think that a botch has occurred, but mm-hmm. actually, no, it's just part of this story that we're, we're, we're telling, you know? I often think of one of my favorite wrestling moments, of which there are many, but the one where AJ Styles, I can't remember which match it was in or which show, but AJ Styles pretended his ankle buckled underneath oh, yeah, him yeah, on the yeah. top rope and he spilled out from a move. And it was a work and I got totally worked by it. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, AJ's fucked up for the first time in his whole career. Oh my God. And to be honest, to me, little mistakes like that do make it feel more real because it to me it exposes the business more if you've got these perfectly rehearsed gymnastic style routines like don't get me wrong i love them there's a place for them in wrestling but i don't want every match to be like that and i think as well you know mistakes in wrestling and you know if you get attributed to someone who made a lot of mistakes like sabu does i think the other side of that coin and it's something that we're seeing recently in the last few years more people being kind of vocal about it you know particularly his colleagues is that i can't think of a person we've done an episode on who's probably added more to the modern wrestling style. And not yeah. just like, okay, hardcore wrestling owes this man a debt. No, like, 
multiple, multiple different styles of wrestling yeah. owe a debt of gratitude. Modern wrestling, as you know it, would not be the same okay. without this guy. And I, I honestly cannot overstate the importance of, of this man for mm-hmm. that reason. We've had how many pay-per-view matches ruined in WWE in the last few years from people wanting a table and not getting it? Oh my God, all the time. This is the lad who decided tables are going to come to America. I mean, I do kind of curse him for that in <laughs> And a it's way. no what Chancho, in fairness. It's, it's broadly speaking a positive yeah. thing tables are in wrestling, I, I think. I don't know. It's just like <laughs> spoiling your child by giving them millions of presents all the time. And it's like, I want presents all the time. And it's like, well... Not everything is presence all the time, actually. So for this episode, I felt very, very well prepared because I think I've mentioned many times, big fan of the shoot interviews here, you know, for for reasons pure and not so pure, I've always been someone who's watched shoot interviews, whether it be for research purposes or what's this fucker going to say about that fucker purposes. So I felt I knew a lot about Sabu because he had spoken, you know, a lot. So his whole thing of not talking was just a character. It was a, we'll explain why he did that, but I, I remember the first shoot interview I watched with Sabu. I used to watch these RF shoot interviews back in the day, and it was like, I guess like 2005 or six, and my friend was like, oh, Sabu has finally done a shoot interview. He's going to finally speak. I'm like, what? Sabu can talk? I didn't even think he could speak. I thought he would... I think I read somewhere once before that oh, his tongue had been cut out by his uncle or something like that. You know, mad fucking crazy I mean, wrestling bollocks. That is interesting, though, given... I know. ...his child, like, his upbringing. But... We have this interview that begins with Sabu, you know, the cigar. He's got the headdress on, everything looking all cool with his suit. And he just goes, that camera off. And it goes, oh, yeah, it is. Okay, cool, we can talk. And then he starts talking then. Like, to give to work you at home to make you know think the only reason Sabu is comfortable talking is because in kayfabe, in his mind, he believes that he's not being filmed. Yeah. So, like, that that for me is, like, That's so s- says a lot about the... the the kind of the silence you know why he did the silence I but again that. constantly working and i can't believe no one has or at least no one i've like heard of has done that since because that's such an easy like little well it used to be the undertaker would be the person who wouldn't oh, talk back in the day now you won't shut the fuck up like you know, keep showing up on my instagram feed talking about this that and the other oh my god so i was kind of you know thinking i know this guy i know i know the story i know the controversies and i will say you know a lot of people have no time for sabu because of how he's conducted himself online and at indie shows over the years and then i decided i'll see this book that he's written because honestly i'd seen people talk about the book that sabu had done because of how bananas it was like there's a last page of this book that we'll read later on and it just felt like one of the craziest wrestling books that ever been written, like written like in the style of like a, a, a rambling kind of promo almost. So I thought I'll read this and it'll be a bit of a giggle, a bit of a laugh. And I am here to tell you today that if you think Sabu's book is a bit, you know something to read for a bit of a giggle and a bit of a laugh, absolutely one hundred percent it is. But along the way, you will have your expectations kind of blown a little bit as to who this guy was, because I don't know if I've got this blind spot because I'm someone who's an anxious boy. You know, I've, I've been diagnosed with anxiety and I've taken medication for that for, for many, many years. I never seem to recognize when someone else might have the same thing. This is an anxious man, what we're mm-hmm. dealing with here. Lifelong anxiety. Yeah. And that, for me, was mind-blowing, that mm. this guy would have nerves. <laughs> but for you, it didn't seem to be that kind of shocking, no. I guess? no. As soon as I heard that, I was like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's coming into the industry later. Um, you know, it's not someone I grew up with. 
But yeah, I, I see a man who doesn't speak, who throws himself through tables and chairs and hits himself with weapons and glues himself together. And I don't think there's a normal, stable man. I think that's a man compensating for something. And he's had an interesting life, to put it very, very mildly. You know, he comes from wrestling royalty. And when we say wrestling royalty, his uncle... The original Sheik, not the Iron Sheik, the original Sheik. So is he called the Sheik or is he called the original Sheik? He was called the Sheik and then that kind of became the original Sheik because people would just call Iron Sheik Sheik or Sheiky Baby or whatever it is. So that kind of, you know, people would talk about him in retrospect as the original Sheik. But at the time, he was the Sheik. And to say that he was like a big deal in wrestling... Holy shit, because we're going back to the days, you know, the 40s and the 50s, the post-war, when television is first starting up, you know, t- wrestling's a good fit for it. You got guys like George Hackenschmidt and Gene Kaninsky in their cotton tights rolling around. And it is a work, kinda, but there's a lot of, you know, like we saw with Stu Hart when we read Brett's book, there's a lot of, you know, real tough guys there. There's an expectation that there's going to be an element of reality to it. Yeah. You know, the top guys will, for the big title matches, decide on finishes, but if Kaninsky's going out there with a regular lad from the the, the suburbs or whatever, he's going to stretch him and show yeah. the people in the front row that this is fucking real, this business. And she comes in as the guy who's going to throw fireballs, come out and pray to Allah, roll out his prayer mat in the corner. He'd bring his real-life wife with him, except she was this kind of, you know, lady who would be very quiet in the corner wearing the traditional Middle Eastern garb, and he'd bark at her to shut up and be quiet. Right. Think about that in the 40s and the 50s. It's kind of impossible for me to imagine because um, because I'm a millennial, so I kind of most of my memories are formed after 9-11. But it's, what were the attitudes like towards Middle Easterners back at that time? I mean, it still would have been from another country over there, you know? I don't think it would have been quite the same lightning rod of the terrorist attack that has right. happened in recent memory, brother, because we saw a lot of post-9-11 yeah. bad taste kind of Muslim, in so, inverted commas, gimmicks. At this time, it would be more like fear of the foreigner, fear of the unknown, I think so. rather I th- than specific, yeah. <laughs> the fact that it was equally believable that this man was in the corner praying to Allah and telling his wife to be quiet because of his tradition, and also, yeah, he can throw fireballs. Yes. And also, the big part of it was that he was a millionaire. He was this, he was a rich <laughs> businessman. borderline too many gimmicks now. I know, it's a little bit DDP, isn't it, like, you know? But, you know, the idea was that he was this rich oligarch from far away, made big money in oil. And that's great, though. And he was coming over here to wrestle because he wanted to be sadistic. He wanted to throw fireballs at these white guys. <laughs> and he wanted to berate his wife. And he wanted to scare the fans. Those foreigners coming over here with their fireballs. What do you think, you know, Sheik's style was? Given Sabu, you know, what do you think he would have been about? This is probably really unfair. But in my mind, I imagine him not doing much wrestling and doing mostly like the occasional stretch and a lot of just like hit, like stabbing people with forks and knives yeah. and spoons or whatever. I mean, the man's main offensive maneuver involved a pencil. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty much exactly how I imagined it. And it would be pure on cheating. He wouldn't really do big slams, suplexes, spots. He wouldn't be going off the top rope or anything like that. Absolutely not. Very few bumps. Right. It would usually be the story of the match would be that he would keep stabbing away at them with the referee wouldn't see. You know, he'd hide it in his boot, hide it in his tights, hide it under the prayer mat, whatever it would be. And then, you know, the finish would either be he pulls out the fireball or if it's time for the Sheik to finally lose. And let me tell you, folks, this man rarely, if ever, lost. It would be the good guy got the pencil off him and gave him the stab and he get the you know, get cut open. Or maybe it would be a DQ, but the, the good guy would get his, his heat back by stabbing the Sheik with his own pencil. Blech. And people loved it. 
They loved it. He was the original boogeyman. You know, we would see some stuff from Japan and these guys would come out, the gaijin wrestlers, and they'd be like, yeah. and they'd run around the crowd. He'd do that in, like, Minnesota. Amazing. He'd come out and be like, Bleh! and people would be like, ah, and he'd throw in chairs, running through the ring. There's a legendary story of, like, how he gained his big national fame. And it was, like, you know, early 50s. He's taken on Gene Kaninsky for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And this is prestigious, the big title. And, uh, you know, he's taken on the fireball throwing chic. And it's a cold day in, in Minnesota. And it's, you know, snow piling up outside. And the start of the match, chic who, legend has it, neither him and Kaninsky trusted each other. Because Kaninsky thought he was going to hit him with a pencil for real. And Sheik thought the shooter was going to shoot on him and stretch him and make, you know, think, oh, this is all carny bullshit you're doing. Not in my business. I'm going to stretch you and show everyone this is for real tough men, not fireball throwing pencil stabbers that's really okay i was gonna ask you about that because to me everything i know about like older wrestling was we won't let some fucking jabroni come in here with a gimmick and we won't have a gimmick basically yeah like you know (laughs) these are guys who have trained probably from you know childhood basically in legitimate fighting and like stretching and stuff who then want to protect the kayfabe of the business like the idea of a I don't know if this cheek actually was foreign or not, but the idea of like a foreigner character coming in and kind of like beating them all with just like a violent gimmick is so like alien to me. That yeah. seems so modern. I know it does. And you know, that, that is, you know, this is the territory where for around 20 some years and he promoted as well in this territory in Detroit was where he kind of kind of the surrounding hinterlands they had around 20 years nearly where the Sheik sold out big buildings, like, thousands of people because of that story always. How were so many of the wrestlers at that time okay with putting him over like that when that goes against everything I know? I guess because there was heat and there was attention. I mean, see, for example, this Gene Kaninsky match, right? The start of the match, Sheik is like there with his pencil in his hand and everyone's like, what's going to happen here? They brawl for a little bit. They run through the crowd. He goes outside with Kaninsky into this blizzard. Snow fucking everywhere. <laughs> And all of a sudden, he gets scared of Gene Kaninsky. So he runs over to this big, huge bus, big Greyhound bus. Snow, like, all the way up to the doors. And he starts shoveling through the snow with his bare hands, stabbing at it with his pencil, throwing it away all over in the sky. And all the fans are coming out of the building going, what the fuck is going on here? He's in his little pants as well, mind. And he digs a hole underneath the bus to hide from Kaninsky. And the match gets thrown out. The police, the fire department are called because this madman is hidden under a bus in the middle of traffic and no one knows what's happening. There's a snowstorm. And Kaninsky's there with his hands and his hips going, what the fuck is going on? National news. Like, this crazy man, the Sheik, throws world title match into disrepute. Was that a work? It was a work. So that was all planned? Well... Depends on who you ask. Oh, but, that's the thing. You'll never get answers, will but, you? But the, 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 the general rule seems... To, the general thought seemed to be that the Sheik did it with no one else knowing what would happen and everyone was pissed off with them. And then as soon as it became the hottest thing because everyone was reporting on this wild man, yeah. he started stabbing at the champion with a pencil. Then he dug himself a hole <laughs> under five feet of snow. So all of a sudden, the Sheik is the hottest ticket in town because they want to see him get beat. Original Sheik. Such a theatre kid. I know. And you know what? That style where it's stab him and yeah we, we mentioned abdullah the butcher in, in cactus mm. jack's episode he liked to use the fork and Sheik liked to use the pencil say what you will about it but he was into his 70s and he could still do it yeah you know because he didn't that was it that was the whole gimmick yeah that's the weird thing isn't it it's actually safer depending on the weapon but it's safer usually to use weapons than it is to actually put your body on the line and wrestle the 
the normal style, as you might call it. I mean, he wasn't taking too many bumps on his bump cards. No. But there was a lot of bloodletting going on. And a lot of scars, And I'm a sure. lot of scar tissue, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you can see, you know, pictures of the Sheik throughout his, his life. There is a man who had a, a, a scary look to him just because of that forehead alone yeah. gnarled up. Now, all that stuff is done to be with the Sheik. Can you imagine what that, you're a little kid growing up and that's the legend, that's the myth? Because Sabu was the youngest in his family. He had older brothers and sisters Big family, and the Sheik, the uncle, who would have been his mum's brother, was this revered figure. And think about this time as well. They would have had to keep kayfabe the whole time. Yeah, so for Sabu then, does that mean that he would have genuinely grown up thinking that his uncle was this really scary maniac? I mean, he didn't know the wrestling was a work... He's one of the people who didn't know wrestling was a work until, you know, into his first match. Like, he'd been trained not knowing it was a work. That's so funny. The extent of Sabu's naivety when he was a child would be that some of the family would be watching, you know, big-time TV and Sheik is on it in the downstairs room. And some of the other family members would be watching in the upstairs bedroom. And Sabu would be running up and down between the two TVs thinking that Sheik was in two separate places at the same time. He couldn't... Have been, you know? <laughs> and... This is the kayfabe where the, the youngsters in the family, you didn't call him Uncle Ed. It was Sheik. Oh, his name is Ed. Yeah, Ed Farhash is oh, his real name. Oh, that's a nice normal name. You know, but no, no, no. You, you know, and he's not alive, but he would not want you to call him that. Like, no, it's, it's, it's Sheik. Sheik. Yeah. Grandkids, if they called him Ed or Grandpa Ed or yeah. whatever it would be, he wouldn't even look at them. He wouldn't respond to them. He'd just keep reading his newspaper. You call him Sheik. Hmm? You know, that that's when you get his attention paid. But like, would he act like the Sheik or would he act like himself? I mean, he was very quiet, apparently. He would, you know, the, he was one of those people like Stu Hart who would have a lot of wrestlers around to the house because he was viewed as one of those people who could go to for like a finishing school. Right. You want to learn some of the little tricks of the trade, how to really get heat. You go to the Sheik for a little bit and you would learn under the, the learning tree. But that was strict kayfabe. You know, there's these stories, you know, his arch rival was Bobo Brazil, who was one of the first kind of big African-American like superstars. And they had long-standing feud, did big business. And they'd be eating at the same dinner table, like, you know, looking at each other. Yeah. It was like, you're obviously mates. Like, you eat dinner every Sunday. <laughs> well, you had to work the family the whole time. And Sabu in his book treats it as kind of like a novelty and kind of mystery and like kind of like, wow, this is intriguing. And I guess when it's your uncle and not your dad, but I've read too many instances of wrestlers mm. thinking their parents or their family members are being hurt for real. Yeah. And that for me, it's like, I don't know, that's got to fuck you up a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think making it an uncle, that's just like enough of a step, hopefully, for it to not be like traumatizing to a kid. Because like your parents, you want to be able to look at them and know that they love you and can protect you and stuff. And I think that's part of the reasons why it's been a bit uncomfortable in previous episodes when dads, it's always dads. It's always dads. Have Or father figures. Yeah, have maintained kayfabe even like at risk of their child's health and well-being. I mean, I've honestly, if I'm going to pick, if my dad is going to be like, you know, Jake Roberts' dad who has to go home and sell a broken neck. Yeah. Or he's going to be the Sheik who's... Fun uncle with his pencil. Yeah, I'd rather the family member be the wacky, the, the crazy, scary heel who almost rarely gets his comeuppance. Yeah. As opposed to the journeyman wrestler who has to put, you know, has to do a loser leaves town match and go to another territory or whatever it may be. So it's interesting though. So suppose parents weren't wrestlers. No, they weren't. But I'm guessing they were involved somehow in the wrestling world because yes. of them being so close to the original Sheik. So Sheik's wife, which would have been Sabu's aunt, his mother's sister, she would have like kind of managed his affairs and stuff like that. And kind of, you know, that's something that Sabu would would, would mimic later on with, with his wives. 
is the idea that the wife is kind of your manager. If you're not speaking, the person who's going to talk to promoters, as well as often cases, the opponent for that night and yeah. say, this is what he wants to do, X, Y, and Z. She would be that kind of, you know, the, the kind of the glue that holds that whole operation together. Right. So you're yeah, pretty much indispensable. Yeah. You know, I think the family were all a lot more involved in the business because he was running, you know, a promotion yeah. as well. So the family all had jobs here and there. The Sheik's children did eventually get into wrestling themselves. One of them trained to be a wrestler. Some of them tried to promote. But it was never kind of established that the Sheik would have an heir and it would be X, Y, and Z. And certainly Sabu, the youngest, didn't think it would be him. Yeah. You know, there's a really cute story. They're having Thanksgiving dinner and Sabu sneaks upstairs and he finds Sheik's stuff. And he was thinking like, well, you know, he is this wrestler. He has to have his gimmicks around here somewhere. So he roots through and he finds, you know, the headdress, you know, the special headband to hold it on. You know, he's got the gown on as well. And he's just, I just imagine a little seven-year-old Sabu, like you're pointing to the so sky, cute. you know, wearing this garb. And all of a sudden, Sheik's wife comes in and sees him. And he's like, that's it. I'm fucking dead. Like, I'm absolutely dead. And she's like, brings him downstairs. He's like, all right, I'm going to be, you know, and Thanksgiving is ruined, basically. Put away the pie. Yeah. No chat now. Why have you disrespected your uncle and and the legacy of the Sheik? And nothing is said to him. And he's like, Phew. But what, he's still told to come downstairs. He's still told to come downstairs. Dressed as the Sheik. But I think it's kind of told to Sheik, like, by the way, someone's a big fan. Oh. You know, and that's kind of, you know, that is kind of in the back of his mind. But honestly, Sabu, in talking about his childhood, it reminded me a little bit of my own childhood of the fact that, he was the you know the youngest. He was the smallest. He was youngest in his class as well. And a lot of his early stories, he's talking about you know, kind of running away from bullies or running away from you know kids who are trying to, to beat him up or whatever it is like that. And like, take it from me, like I had a lot of that when I was a kid, and that kind of it was only later when I was an adult. I'm like, why am I anxious about X, Y, and Z? And like, oh, maybe some of this is to explain. Mm. A lot of thieving for young Sabu as well. Oh, really? Yeah, a lot. Uh, he actually had a special sports bag that he used to take with him to do stealing. Amazing. Joe, <laughs> amazing. What? I love a good thief. Stealing from corporations, I can't, I can't not respect that. Take skill. It was a type of, you know, standard childhood thing. You know, a bunch of kids bored out of their tree, nothing to do. Yeah. You're talking about kind of, you know, suburbs where there wasn't a lot going on. Kind it's of... not though like... A lot of wrestlers we've done episodes on who turn to crime, it's because they don't have money. Like, the parents don't have an income, really. But I'm guessing Sabu here, he's got a support system. Oh, his, yeah. His family have enough money to survive yeah, and everything. Yeah, he, he he's had doing... a job, even, from a young age. So he's doing this for fun, rather oh, than out of necessity. all about thrills. And, like, he's talking about how it would be, like, you know, they would go and, you know, he'd, he'd work in the, the family's Lebanese restaurant where he actually became a head chef later on. So, sorry, is his family from Lebanon? That's the original, yeah, where the family oh. originally from, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he, he would work in the, the, the Lebanese restaurant. You know, as a kid, he'd be a busboy doing tables. He eventually would be, you know, the head chef when he was like, you know, in his very early 20s, late teens. Just wanted to point that out because any time we're doing an episode now, folks, and it turns out that the person in question is a dab hand and a home cook. And yeah. Sabu claims he can kick some ass making some Lebanese cooking. And let yeah, me tell you... he's a professional even. I've got a Middle Eastern cookbook and the Lebanese stuff always looks good. He's going into my cookery hall of fame right Ooh, now. Oh, yeah. And I want to know who else is joining the cookhouse with Sabu. <laughs> so you'd have money, but his issue would be him and his friends, they make all this money doing their part-time jobs, their paper routes, and they go down to the arcades, they play Donkey Kong, and they you know, lose all their money in five minutes. 
And then all of a sudden, home consoles start coming out. All oh, the ColecoVision, no. the Atari. And it was all just about who could steal the new console. Yeah. And well, because they're yeah. so expensive. Like, oh, even yeah. if you had money back then, these consoles would be worth like £1,500 oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. today's money. Like, I remember finding out the Intellivision was like, would have cost more than the PS5 yeah. back in the day. Oh, absolutely. Probably three times as much. It's crazy. Yeah. So that would be it. You know, he'd be talking about like, you know, these new ones would be coming out and they're the size of VCRs. And like, yeah. you know. It reminded me of Trailer Park Boys, where it's like, all right, we'll just steal it. Like, there's a point where he just takes one of these big boxes, puts it on a trolley, and leaves. Mm. And he's like, look, you just look like you know what you're doing. No one's going to say anything. <laughs> you know, and he he stole, like, he said, like, he stole pretty much to be days where he wouldn't go to school, and he would just go into the mall, and he would steal from a shop, and then go to the next shop and steal. And he'd just keep going. He'd do laps. He'd steal multiple times Amazing. from the same store in these malls. I mean, he was obviously gifted at it. It was, you know, this is the early days of malls, though, before... Security Everyone cameras. had security cams, tags, security guards. Even still, though, you would have had... Like, there would have been risks in other ways because back then it would be more of a kind of mom and pop type situation where you would know the kids in the area. You'd yeah. know which kids were more prone to thieving. Mm. You'd know which ones to keep an eye and on. They do it all in a gang as well. You'll be keeping mm. lookout for each other and all of that. And, like, I don't know. Having only ever stole <laughs> Go-Go's... That came free with a, a magazine I didn't want to buy because I had no pocket money when I was eight years old and a newsagent. so evil. I think the statute of limitations has run out on that. Yeah. But I've never understood the thrill of stealing. <laughs> and I don't want to assume that, you know, hey, Sabu got a thrill from this. And that's why the sport of professional wrestling that was constantly thrilling was the natural end point for him. Yeah. But it certainly feels like he's, again, like I almost remind you of Roddy Piper, when you have this kind of listlessness and all this energy has been spent to get this rush, do this crazy thing. Yeah. You know, and it's it's about the thrill of not getting caught. It's not about having the stuff, I'm imagining. I don't mm. know. It, do you think that's his gateway in there? That's helping him get in the door? I have no idea, because it's not really... It's not the same thing, is Transferable. It? And also... I used to be a bit of a thief back in the day, steal from boots or Claire's accessories or whatever, and I never became a professional wrestler or even got into any line of business which had thrills and spills. I'm a podcaster now. It's like as far away from stealing as you can get. So yeah, it's really difficult to say. I mean, maybe there is an element of stealing, which is quite cool, which... Jesus, Joe! <laughs> which is... Be careful with this now. Yeah, which is feeling yourself get better at a skill because like to to steal things you have to have really good hand-eye coordination and you have to have really good control and awareness of your body because other people might be watching you and stuff like that so maybe it's a case of like something like that maybe i mean that... like, for me you saying that it's like he's learning how to work people yeah pretty he's, much. he's learning how to like put across a visage that's different from what he's actually yeah, thinking because it's gonna hide be a, stuff on it's him it's a little bit like doing a magic trick like you kind of have to do one thing with one hand and another thing with another hand you have to distract another person on one side and then also do something else you know while they're not paying attention which is very wrestling i mean his issue then that it becomes is that you know, we're reading Limmy's book at the moment and he talks about this as well, where if you do a lot of stuff and you don't get caught, then you get caught for something that you didn't do. Yeah. You know, he kind of, he had gotten the reputation. You know, he'd been given the chat a few times, even though he knew they couldn't get him for anything. The mother's brought in, explained, you know, they think he's done this. And it's like, this is bullshit. Like, and the one that really pisses him off, it's like, there's a fireworks store that gets broken into. And they're like, we have, you know, evidence about, you know, you were here at this time, it happened at this point. And he's so pissed off, so pissed off. Because he did do it, he did break into the fireworks yeah. store, but he knows their evidence is wrong. He right. knows that they've kind of, you know, fib fibbed it around a little bit. I'm like, all right, 
you're going into the wrong side of the tracks here, mate. Yeah. If your main issue isn't even, I'm getting picked up for stuff I didn't even do. It's like, I'm getting picked up incorrectly for stuff I did do. <laughs> like, this case isn't going to stand up in court, guys. That's Come on. very childish logic. Yeah. And of course, you know, he gets the child's punishment. He gets, his mother is in tears thinking, you know, his life is ruined. So put him in the cells for a couple of days. Wow. Hard. Yeah, that'll, that'll teach him, that'll teach him, you know, right from wrong and yeah, all that. scare him straight. It's not said explicitly. You know, that, that it's then decided you'll get interested in, and that'll put you on the straight and narrow. I don't think that is the conversation. But it's not that you know, long after that where his mind starts going to, to wrestling, thinking that might be somewhere for him. I to, wouldn't to be go. at all surprised if when he finally got arrested, if there were discussions in his family to say, look, this is a boy who's clearly, you know, he's been doing this stealing for a while now. He's clearly got skills and passion for something why not channel that somehow into something else and maybe uh, yeah. uncle Sheik goes well yeah i'll bring him on board then but this thing the last person you'll ever know about that is sabu like yeah. when he's talking about you know the interactions with his uncle it's still like he doesn't know the guy it's still mysterious mm. i think some of that is how he wants to put Sheik over he's so pro- yeah. he's more protective of his legacy than his own legacy and it's, yeah. it's very sweet in that way but like this this guy, the Sheik, he's you know he's living in a mansion. You know he lives in this beautiful palatial estate in the middle of nowhere in, in you know Michigan. He's got Cadillacs all throughout the lawn. It reminds you of kind of Stu Hart. You yeah. know the big time wrestler who became the big time promoter who lives in the big time house and has all the respect of all of his peers. It's not a bad business to get into. Yeah. You know, but you know Sabu, and this is how he starts his book, and it was scary to me. I told you about this early on, and this is what kind of reframed the whole career. I think it's like for you know his graduation from school, him and some friends are having a little party. All of his friends from the neighborhood, they're all Mexican-American guys. So they're all hanging out together. They're going to have a little bit of a fiesta. They've got some beer. You know, they got like typical, you know, 18-year-olds having their big blowout. They've got like 12 beers and one half bottle of whiskey Aww. and loads of tacos, you know, to all share out and have a bit of a cookout or whatever. Nice. They're having out in the street. Some dudes come walking by. One of them's a really big dude. And they're like, hey, can we, you know, come and get in on the party here? And everyone's like, ah, private party. You know, we're just having having some, you know, we're just kids. Leave us alone type of thing. Yeah. And then one of the guys in the group lets them in. And one of them sees straight away, oh, the guys are eating the food. They're, they're drinking the booze. They're not bringing their own stuff like they promised they would. Gets into a little bit of a fight. All of a sudden, we hear a gunshot go off. The guy, the big dude's brought a gun to this party. Jesus. And, you know, he's fucking talking over, like, warm beer and fucking yeah. old tacos we're fucking pulling guns on each other here yeah sabu goes over knocks the gun out of his hand tackles him to the ground again you're already seeing this fucking fearfulness because He's so brave i mean brave i'd say stupid joe in fairness like because no, someone's got a I gun mean, that's just gone off like oh my I god know, but like on paper that oh, is yeah. that yeah. is brave like it's stupid as well but like if someone has a gun you run them that's yeah. how you survive like that's the safest thing you can do that's, and, that's the logic right that's the logic yeah well turns out the guy who sabu had pinched to the ground had brought a second gun with him Fucking so the gun hell. gets knocked out second gun's there he pulls it sabu gets shot straight in the mouth oh my god and like sabu has always had like you can see look at picture of sabu look at her artwork great job from dan as always by the way yeah, mid, mid flies but like he's got like a kind of a look about his face mm. and a lot of that is i think down to the fact that he suffered this very this very traumatic very traumatic injury earlier because mm. i'm writing this book and i'm going i'm reading this book going, you've been shot in the head mm-hmm. how are you alive well, what happened was because he got shot from underneath the mouth, mm. 
the bullet shattered when it hit his teeth, which also shattered. Right. So he's talking now that his mouth is just full of this like black, grey, red shit. Like his teeth and the gunpowder is all just mixed into this slime. He says he looks like a fucking goblin, basically. Yeah. Police arrive at the scene, and of course, you know, guns have went off. The cop grabs Sabu, and the first thing Sabu says is, "It's not me. It's this fucking black guy." And Sabu claims that he says that because the guy with the gun, it was one of the only two black people who were at the party mm. and the officer in question is black. So he's like, all right, this fucking little racist kid here thinks he's being funny. Oh, and Sabu gets, you know, God. thrown upside down, handcuffed into the back of the the, the the police car. You know, proper, you know, rough-handed treatment, as you'd expect. How was he not taken immediately to hospital? Because I thought under those circumstances, if the police consider you a... Um, a- a gunshot a victim, like. But yeah, you know? but like, even if they consider you like a suspect of a crime, if you need medical attention, they take you to the hospital and then they arrest you afterwards. Like, you're handcuffed in hospital. But like, yeah. why? Why the other way around? Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, there is like, you know, clearly someone's been shot in the face. Yeah. Like, it just, there's, there's there's no logical way that that person is not immediately put on a gurney. And like, the only reason time to do paperwork. Yeah, right. Get your thumbprint now while your jaw's hanging off your Slap head. Slap the cuffs on the guy who's been shot in the fucking head, like yeah. Jesus. And apparently, you know, Sabu. And this is you know his viewpoint of of the of the incident. He reckons the only reason that he was saved and didn't you know just get thrown to a cell straight away is because his cousin, I think. There was some family member who was one of the EMTs in right. the ambulance and he was able to explain what had happened and all that. But Sabu's reckoning was is that, you know, you had street party, young Hispanic kids, you had some African-American guys there as well. The cops showed up, guns had been fired off, there's a gun on the floor, guns been discharged. They just thought, oh, gangbangers, just having, you know, shooting each other in the streets. Yeah. So they're all treated like shit, pretty much. They're all treated as less than. What a waste. And Sabu, like, the guy who... The guy who shot him ended up being let off from that for the uh, for the assault charge on Sabu, and then he went on to commit a string of other crimes, Jesus. in which people he did home invasions and stuff. The people there are people who he killed after oh that my fact, God. and then he himself was killed in prison. And Sabu wow. says, you know, he went to his trial when he finally went down, you know, stared him out of it and all that, and like the guy didn't, you know, didn't flinch or anything like that. But it's just. Like, you know, you always know that America's got a fucked up police system. We're yeah. talking, this is the very, very, very early ni- early 90s, late 80s. Mm. And that's something that I think hangs over him and is not known by the rest of the world. That's that's the defining moment in early Sabu's life. Mm. Your near-death experience, unlike any other, you're treated with a wreck, like your body is treated as like not worth, kind of, not even, not even worth saving, not even worth caring about. Yeah. You would, even if you don't have that mindset that he already seems to have a little bit of chasing the thrill, you immediately would kind of just hardline reset. Your brain starts over and goes, right, eh, I, I'm less than to an extent. My body is is to be treated in a certain way. You know, with Scott Hall as well, you know, when he had that incident, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the person who dies, is straight away you could just tell that he's rewired. Yeah. He thinks of himself a certain way. It's very sad. Yeah, well... Complex PTSD, which, you know, obviously I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose a person with that. But I would be willing to bet money on both Scott Hall and Sabu having that. It, unlike PTSD, it actually rewires your brain. Like it, it changes your personality. It rewires who you are. So it would, it would absolutely, re, it would change everything about your life, change your priorities, change how you think about things. And especially the fact that for Sabu, this happened just after his graduation. This is for him, it's supposed yeah, you're to be a young man, like, turning you know, into yeah. an adult at this point, And this is how you embrace adulthood is by being shot. And then 
I mean, I know, almost I know, arrested. I know a lot of people from back in Ireland. I remember that, like, kind of you know, going to university in the first year and stuff like that, and then having not really been kind of all right now. I'm an adult now. I'm going to go out and stuff like that, and then you know, seeing stuff like people getting mugged or yeah. you know, very very crazy sloppy fights and all that, and you know, all of a sudden they're not an outgoing person after that, mm. and this is that to the extreme. You know, Roddy Piper episode, remember we talked about kind of wrestling being this kind of safe haven for people who feel like that the world isn't for them. Yeah. Sabu had never any point as he kind of like, you know, that changed me or this, you know, it's just like this is something that happened. Mm. He never seems to want to connect the dots and be someone who explains how his approach to his career or his wrestling style was influenced by what happened to him here. Because I think that's, in his mind, is that old school thinking, oh, it's an excuse. Mm. Oh, the baby couldn't handle being shot. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's sad to think that yeah. He, he talks about this story almost shamefully. Really? Almost, like, you know, even though I'm like, you fucking... How many lives did he save by knocking that first gun out of your man's hands, know, you know? Yeah. It is crazy, you know? And, um, you know, after that, entering into wrestling, I think it maybe makes wrestling seem of a less scary place. Yeah, I suppose if you faced death like that already... Even if you don't know that it's a work. Yeah. You know, in the case of Sabu here, he doesn't know yet that it's a work. So he's sent over to live with the Sheik. He's going to live there and he's going to learn the business. Now, we've talked about a lot of shitty training that people have had over the years. I say shitty in terms of it being hard. How do you guess uh, training with the Sheik would go if you're, you know, not learning that wrestling is real? How would you expect uh, that that regimen to be? So this is something I was actually going to ask you about because... (laughs) As I said earlier... How to sharpen a pencil. <laughs> yeah. Like, I imagined the Sheik not really doing, like, any wrestling style I can put a name to. Like, I can't imagine him being, like, a map-based technical wrestler. Right, 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 right. can't imagine him being a high flyer or, I don't know, a submissions expert or a strong style. Like, to me, he is just all about the weapons. So, was he teaching people how to work with weapons? But then even again, it's like, but he was doing that for real. He was just stabbing people with these things. Yeah, much work into that. Like, I mean, the thing that always I think it gets, and Sabu's case in point of this, I remember when I first saw that, that first shoot interview way, way back in the day, my mind was blown when he was like, oh, people think that I'm just high flying and, and chairs and tables and all that. But it's like, you know, the thing I, I'm actually best at and how I was trained was map-based wrestling. Really? But you never see that because no one wants to pay me to do that. So the Sheik was a map-based wrestler? Yeah, that's what he taught him. That wow. Would, but like, that would have been a lot. Like, if you were someone who was running a territory, training guys, that would have had to be your bread and butter because yeah. how are you going to be getting like new guys in to face your champion to build up? You're not going to get them in if they're all doing your gimmick. No, exactly. That's know? what I was thinking. You can't just... Yeah, it's just going to devalue yourself. Yeah. If you think of those old-timey wrestlers, you only get to do that gimmick because you know those fundamentals to begin yeah. with. And, like, that was Sabu's thing, is that, you know, he wouldn't... You know, in his mind, he wouldn't be allowed to do any of these kind of high-flying maneuvers down the line, you know, unless he could show that he could do these basics. And it is very interesting, then, because he's starting off training for six months. He doesn't learn a single thing. Six months, he wakes up, crack of dawn, 6 a.m. in the morning, he goes down there, chic... Sipping iced tea, reading the newspaper with a cigar going, put together the ring there, and there's a pile of lumber, steel mm. beams, poles, everything. Sabu had never even taken the ring apart, just alone putting it together. So he has to <laughs> put the ring together, and he does a fucking horrible job about it. And then they go around, they fix it all up, and he tells you that you did this wrong, you did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Yeah. Take it back down. 
And then, you know, he's taking it back down. The sun's going down at this point. It's yeah. a long, long day. He doesn't take it down flights of stairs like Mick Foley, but, it, you know, he's doing it in the middle of the woods, you know, in the middle oh, of nowhere. Oh, God. That's hard to set up a ring on an uneven floor like that. You know, he, he did an awful, awful fucking job. Yeah. Physical, physical I labor. Bet. This, is, this is the trick, isn't it? It's like yeah. the uh, karate kid strategy. <laughs> yes, of, yeah. You'll learn the basics. <laughs> you'll get in good shape by basically just doing handiwork. Yeah, ring on, ring off. Like. Yeah. And he take it down and he's like, right, great. What are we going to do? And he's like, well, that's it for today let's go eat a meal you know because meals were always you know 7pm always no matter what dinner will be ready made for the sheik and then they go in they'd eat happens every day for six months just him taking it rings. take it down put it back up together take it down again put it back together then you'd be putting you know all the the lumber all the boards go in one pile all the cables go in one pile all the beams go in one pile you know, everything gets segmented and put into places and then after that he starts to learn the very, very basic of basics. But even at that point, Sabu isn't really telling you everything about you know, what he's learning, you know, running drills and stuff. It seems to be then that once he's kind of proven that he's not going to quit, yeah. I think that's what that always seems to be. That old yeah. style, style of wrestling is, will you quit? We're going to push you and push you to see if you'll quit. The benefit of him is that he's not paying three grand for the yeah, privilege of being absolutely. pushed to see if you will quit. Because I think the people who take your money and then do this to you... That's, yeah, that's really insulting, yeah. And Sabu was treated differently from other people because the other class will be brought in then to learn from the Sheik. And everyone will be in there doing spots. And Sabu, you go mow the grass. Aww. You know, fucking 20 hectares they used to go around yeah. in and mow on his own. And it's he's so there, you know, taking down... Like, yeah. You would th- feel as a kid, if that was you, you'd think wow i'm like the unluckiest kid ever i can't believe i'm treated like this but with the hindsight of adulthood it's easy to look at that situation and go well that's out of all of them that's the special kid that's the kid who's really going to do well because they've actually learned the fundamentals they've understood the work ethic the tenacity required they used his anxiety kind of against him in the training a little bit to kind of protect the the greater myth of the sheik and what would go on to be sabu's myth because, you know, Sabu never knew that he was the chosen kind of mm. guy. He just thought that he was getting rough treatment because he was shitter than everyone else. Aww. You know, of course, you know, I'm, I'm the worst of this. I can't speak. I can't talk, you yeah. know. And you know, he would do these, you know, they had some of the very early matches where it would be, right, we're going to go down to one of the, you know, one of the, the smaller shows that Sheik would run. You get onto this show. We'll just see how you do, you know, kind of 10 minute draw type of a thing. And his name be written down on the match of cards. He wouldn't even be told it's a work at this point, folks. Yeah. And his name would be listed Terry Brunk S. Or. Now, Terry Brunk, that's it's an unf- such a funny name. Uh, an unfortunate name. And he was like, I couldn't be Terry Brunk, obviously, because, you know, it was Terry. Obviously. Obvious reasons for that, like. <laughs> but he didn't even know what S. Or meant. What does S. Or mean? He was never told. So, and this is where, I know we said at the start, you know, Sabu was known as suicidal, homicidal, and genocidal, which was the very mid-90s Paul Heyman kind of verbiage. Yeah. I remember when Joe was like, hey, Kevin, send over the the copy for the tweet for the website, you know, for Sabu. And I'm like, he's suicidal, homicidal. <laughs> and you're like, are you sure we need to include these terms? Because if you don't know it, like, this is a pretty spicy, dicey language. I'm like, yeah, fair, fair enough. His initial thought was that S or stood for superior race. Was the, oh, uh, to, to that's go, where his mind went. Well, yeah, because he thought because that was the, the sheik's thing was that the Arab people were the superior race and they were oh. going to kill all the white people in America, and that was his great mission from Allah was to cleanse the world of the white menace. Jesus, fucking spicy stuff, folks. Yeah, you know, a lot more than just pencils and fireballs going on. Like so, 
And he then later found out from someone that their best reckoning was that it was written down as Sheik's Revenge. Okay. And that because Sheik was getting on in years, you know, he was getting older now. He'd only wrestle once or twice a year. It was let the boys in the locker room know that this young guy who's coming up, treat him with respect and also be careful because I am going to continue my legacy through him. Aww. And that is sweet, but also I love the idea of him being like, just when he thought that I was old and my hips had given out, <laughs> here comes my revenge in the form of my young stud. <laughs> you know, here comes Terry Brunk to the rescue. His original gimmick that he's given after he's learned the very basics, and he knows now that it's a work and all that, he's given you know, a little bit of an insight. He's working down in Memphis, and that's where he figures, you know, from the uncle, he thinks, you know, you'll work there, Jerry Lawler will teach you how to do some of that kind of, you know, that, that style. And uh, the gimmick he's given, Sabu the Elephant Boy. What? Sabu the Elephant Boy. That was his original name, his original gimmick. Why? <laughs> People always make fun of him because being an elephant boy. Like, yeah, no shit. You know, you know, my mind immediately went to Donutters. I don't know if you ever remember that game mm, when we were kids. No. You'd have to wear these kind of fake sunglasses that had like an elephant trunk on it and you had to dip over and pick up donuts. Oh, I've heard of that. It's like a board game that wasn't a board game. Yeah. It's Ellie fantastic. Mm. But... The Elephant Boy Sabu in kind of, in like Bollywood movies and stuff like that, uh, an Elephant Boy is like a cowboy. Oh, okay. Because I think of Elephant Boy, I think of Elephant Man. Yes. I feel like David Lynch Well, that's what he movie, thought. Like... He's like, oh, do you think like, because you know, I'm ugly, because of, you know, my face is a bit, oh, you know. No. He was thinking like, am I going to have to like wear a hood or something oh. like that? And then he thought, you know, Elephant Boy is a kind of like a silly thing. Like, yeah. kind of, oh, like, oh, I'm an Elephant Boy. Like, Babar is coming yeah. to town. And then Sheik is like, no, 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 Elephant Boy. It's like, it's like a cowboy. It's tough. Like, it's, you know, it, you know, in India, that would be viewed as being like, kind of, like a Terry Funk character like a respectful, almost. cool, masculine An outlaw, type. Yeah. you know. He looks, and think about it, you know, a cowboy, he's looking after a herd of, you know, of cattle or, or horses, whatever. Okay, an elephant boy looks after a herd of, of, of elephants. Yeah. If they stampede. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that's, that's a They're scary thing. Animals, yeah. Very dangerous. They kill, uh, you yeah. know. So being an elephant boy, far from the incredibly silly thing, no, it's not a donut or not in the slightest. <laughs> and he gave him the kind of the Indian style turban. And he was told, right, you're Sabu the elephant boy. You're going to be Indian now and you're going to be a heel. And he's like, well, why am I a heel? Because you're Indian. And he goes to the Sheik, well, like, why does that make me a heel? And she just goes, because I fucking hate Indians, all right? Jesus. So, um... Wait, so he hates Indians, but he loves and respects their culture of elephant boys. And that's where the name Sabu came from, was there was a famous Bollywood star that apparently Sheik... You know, like, I always love hearing these old tough guys who, like, there's, like, one thing that melts their heart yeah. or whatever, like, you know, like, it's it's always, always gets me. And Sheik, apparently, there was... Sabu was this kind of Bollywood hunk... That he loved. He was a great leading man. Wanted to call his kid Sabu. The wife said, absolutely no. Aww. Second child, please let me call him Sabu. No. All right, my sister's son. I'll get him to his call ring Sabu. His ring name will be Sabu. Yeah. Well, actually, Sabu, uh, as it turns out, it wasn't. he wasn't the first person to be called Sabu. There was another Sabu in Ed Farhat's life. And that was the dog. It was called Aww. Sabu. First. So I think all of this is to kind of be like, don't get a big head. Yeah. You know, they're trying to keep him down. Well, fucking doing that successfully. The poor boy can't catch a break. And, you know, Thinking he's being booked as an hideous, deformed man. Like, a silly elephant boy. Thing. He's given a microphone once or twice. You know, kind of go out there, cut a promo in front of the crowd. Yeah. You know, Memphis would have been a bit more kind of the character and stuff like that. And uh, he shits the bed. Like, he does, like, once or twice. 
and it's pretty much like he comes back and it's the uncle's not even like how dare you it's like right we're not doing that again oh like, yeah. you don't talk like yeah, i'm not angry i'm just disappointed no it's just you know all right that's not going to be part of who you are you're not going to speak yeah so it's you didn't really talk about much about his sabu's recovery after he got shot but obviously if you get shot in the face and the mouth and you lose all your teeth I would have thought you have to kind of relearn how to speak again. He didn't talk about like rehab and things like that. He talked about he was laid up in a hospital for a while. Yeah. He didn't like hospitals. But his mouth would have been wired shut. Oh yeah, he did have a wired shut uh, so mouth for a while. He wouldn't have been able to talk. And I think that, that his tongue got as well would have yeah. been damaged. You use your tongue to speak, to make any sound, you use your tongue. I just don't see how that could not have affected him. It's definitely there as one of the factors along with the kind of the nervousness. And also as well, like, you're grabbing the microphone when you're a young wrestler. It's terrifying. How many young wrestlers are grabbing the microphone and the words that are coming out of your mouth are meant to continue the fucking legacy? S.O.R. Sheik's Revenge. Like, you're killing the white race with these lines. You better be doing a good job. (laughs) Yeah? So I think it's just too much for him, yeah. you know? But he's finding other routes to kind of discover his passion in wrestling. Because at the same time, a young, handsome trainee shows up for Sheik's, you know, camp. And it's a young Rob Van Dam. Oh, uh, This guy, he looks he looks like uh, he looks like a Hollywood movie star, this one. And what would happen, you know, Van Dam was also kind of one of the chosen ones that the star students, you know, they would get hit more by Sheik or Sheik would have people do more stuff on them because he knew that they were the stars and he knew that they were the examples. So he wanted people to kind of look up to them, even yeah. though Sabu thought they were being picked on. Oh, I'm having to do all the bumps. I'm being picked on. I've been put on the mm-hmm. spotlight. And when Sheik was finished and the ring was, you know, right to be taken down, it's like, right, just Sabu and Rob are left. You're going to take the ring down, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In there for dinner at seven as always. And that's when they would start doing what they really wanted to do. That's when they would start doing all the cool stuff they'd seen on those Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. And they'd start oh. doing the high-flying, jumping off the ropes. Hey, what if we did this split-legged moonsault? And honestly, I'd say around 60% of modern high-flying wrestling was birthed right then and there. Wow. In this ring in the middle of the woods in, in rural Michigan. So... That's pretty cool. That's amazing. I think they became fast friends. Yeah. So you how know? old would they have been at this point? Early, early 20s. Like Aww. maybe 19, 20 thereabouts. So. Cute. So, you know, he spent some time in Memphis. He hasn't got a lot of time for the locker room, the style. He doesn't fit in there. He hates Jerry Lawler. He thinks <laughs> he's a fucking scumbag. And he was right. It's the stuff like kind of you're the new guy and they tell you the next show is on in this town. Ha ha, no it's not. It's 200 miles away. And then you show up late. Why are you late? Ha ha ha. You know. Like, oh. Fucking prince. You're, you're running this show, right? Like you're you're making money whether or not this... Why would you do that? <laughs> what a shit rib. Awful. Awful, awful, awful rib. Like... I don't know. I mean, I'm starting to think that great rib that Brett ran at home where it's That like, was a good rib. Good rib. He thought we weren't getting pizza. And then it turns out we actually had pizza. Yeah. Oh, burn. Like, yeah. The best types of ribs, in my opinion, are the ones where you let someone down only to then, like, make them happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, you thought you would be upset, but actually I've given you reason to not be. The trick is you're not disappointed. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> so you know he gets a look in here and there you know Sheik is very protective of him I don't think Sabu realizes that he kind of his career isn't in his own hands because I think at the point it's like will I go to WWF or WCW or will I do this that or the other it's not really his decision mm. you know, he gets a tryout quite early on in WWF around kind of like 1994 thereabouts 
and he kind of he he he's a bit kind of sheepish about it because he doesn't know if it's the right fit for him. He ends up kind of working a match with Owen, and he, it's a dark match, and he's kind of he doesn't even want to go and do a match because he's like, well, if you want me, you should you should just hire me, right? Mm. The idea of doing a, a tryout match is kind of bizarre yeah. to him. He does a tryout match with Owen. And he thinks you know it goes over quite well because of the high flying style, but the money isn't right, and he's kind of advised, ah, no, you shouldn't do that. You should go do some other stuff. The real pull at the moment is to go to Japan. Because in Japan, the Sheik has a myth around him. The guy throwing mm. fire and stabbing people. That and is, also, you know... in Japan, they would have been doing this high-flying style at that point, right? Probably oh, yeah. more so than in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, you think of people like, you know, Owen Hart would have been in Japan yeah. doing that style. You had Jushin Thunder Liger, you Hulk know. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Joke him up. Yeah, great Sasuke, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, there were people who were doing that style. So the idea is to go over to Japan because Sheik has this big myth around him and maybe it'll be a good way to introduce Sabu to the world. And I think it's 50% it'll be Sabu's big break. And also 50% Sheik will be able to go over, get another run, because the territories have dried up now. You know, the NWA yeah. has fallen by the wayside. They're not making that money anymore that they once were. So maybe he's going to get a couple of big paydays, get a couple of new hips in him. He'll be able to go around and stab people with a with a pencil for a couple more years. He did it until, well, until his 70s and 80s. Like, Amazing. You know? So Sabu is brought over there thinking, all right, this is my chance to shine. And... He is kind of playing second fiddle to his uncle for the most part at the start. But the myth of the Sheik is huge. Like they arrive at the airport and people are like, It's the Sheik! Ah! And they start throwing stuff at him because like this guy's going to come over and kill us, all the fans. Wow. You know, they weren't even like, they weren't respectful. And they weren't like kind of scared of him to the point where they're running away. They were so scared of him. They're like, we have to get him. Which for a mega Japanese audience to make him start throwing chairs at him and stuff like that. Now, you know, that's crazy heat. Is it Japan where... There was a cultural thing to touch something you're scared of? Yes. And was it the Sheik this Sheik happened to? Sheik and Sabu this happened to a lot. Which is like, it's so um, interesting to me as an English person to hear about this. Um, I'm in scared. England, it's the culture is that you tweet about something you're disappointed in as opposed to touch about something yeah, that you're afraid of. exactly. So running over and touching the Sheik, who, as far as you're concerned, is actually magic and can throw fire. And yeah. if his mana won't get you, then his pointy implements will. Yes. That's a reason to be scared, but that's a hard life to live. Like, cause yeah. there, you know, they'd be backstage at a show and someone would see him through the curtain and be like, ah, and they pull down the curtains or, ah, and start trying to get him. So it's intense. Yeah. So early on, you know, they're doing these tag matches. And something that I showed Joe, it's from FMW, which is pioneering that hardcore style with our good friend Onisha. And they think, great way, get these guys over here, introduce, you know, the, the, the fans to the scary style of the Sheik and his, and his nephew. It's the all ropes are on fire match. And the ropes are also made of barbed wire. Oh yeah, we couldn't see that because the ropes were all on fire. This is one of the first <laughs> things I showed Joe. Just the kind of... fair that wrestling is like eyes bigger than your stomach in terms of... We've got guys who are willing to do anything. And we found something that even these guys who are willing to do anything are like... Ah, we can't do anything. Yeah. Describe the barbed wire ring of fire match for me as best you can remember well it is a lot like the tape from the ring <laughs> because it's very like jarring scary shit blood barbed wire fire it's just chaos and they are kind of having a match i suppose it's more like a brawl uh in a fire 
There's just fire everywhere. The fire just engulfs the ring. Like it becomes yeah. this, like it looks like a bonfire. It doesn't look like there are ropes on fire. It looks like the ring is just like the site of a bomb that yeah. went off. It looks like they're fighting in a burning building. It looks like yeah, the firefighters are about to come in and evacuate everything. And, and everyone's actually, run away scared. Yeah, they like, do. They evacuate the building at the end of the match. The real scary part is that Sheik, who's like, you know, getting on here at this point, you know, he's in the he's in the ring and they're like, get out, and he's like, I can't, the ring's on fire. So yeah. all the all the young boys have to come out with bottles of water and like extinguish it long enough for the sheik to dive through the like sadly describes in the book the wire was gone white hot yeah that's like how much intense and the fans are running out of the arena that was only i ever seen that on ebay's world back in the day thinking mm. like this fmw this japanese hardcore stuff this is this is terrifying they, they want to kill someone yeah like, there's no other way about it like how could you there's towels covered in kerosene that have been wrapped around mm. that's how sheik's flash paper used to be he would just empty a lighter the gas from a lighter onto a piece of just regular paper and he'd stuff it in his pants. No flash paper, nothing, nothing fancy or gimmicks, just a bit of kerosene on a piece of regular folding paper is what he'd have there. Were there rumours from that time that people did die? I mean, there was cases of like wrestlers being like paralysed and, you know, wrestler did die in the ring around that time as well really? in Japan. So, But like, you know, this was all going towards this myth. This was, you know, FMW, if you remember from the funk episode. Yeah. Uh, C4 Explosions, Barbed Wire. Yeah. You know, and this is where Bar- Barbed Wire becomes Sabu's calling card. But the other thing that's his calling card is he starts being allowed to do his style. He was too scared initially to show off his cool high-flying stuff. Aww. And then his uncle goes up to him before one show and he's like, you know what you need to do tonight? You need to go out there and do some kind of that high-flying stuff. And Sabu goes all quiet and he's like, what? What, what high-flying oh, What do you mean? Stuff? He's like, you know what I mean. He's like, what, what do you mean? secret things you and Rob get up to in the forest. Guess what? The whole time, every single time, he'd be watching. <gasps> He was up there in the top ring going, there they are now, doing the style. We'll all pretend we don't know to keep the business. He's respecting Sabu's kayfabe oh, and vice versa. That's so nice. So he's out there like, right, go out there and show what you can do. And Sabu quickly becomes a phenomenon. Like, Japan had always loved, I mean, kind of like ethnic gimmicks, I guess. Almost mm. more so than Vince McMahon did back in the day because... You know, if you were like, you know, Tiger Jeet Singh, for instance, the dude, you know, big fucking hoss from India, he wore the turban, you know, he had that kind of grand Raj style to him. People like, oh yeah, fucking hell. And Sabu, he was the mysterious Saudi Arabian, Lebanese, vaguely Arabic kind of killer who didn't speak and was from the Sheik's camp. So you know, he had this myth about him and he would you know, dive at people in the audience thinking one of those first Sabu Botchamania compilations I showed you, it's someone be like, hey, look at this cool headdress. He jumps into the audience and beats the shit out of someone. It's not the person who touched his headdress. It's just some random fan. But that's what they were doing at the time. The other trademark for him? Barbed wire. Wrestling in barbed wire. Now, you've seen Sabu and Terry Funk in barbed wire twice now. Yep. This was his trademark in FMW. I think he did around 26 of these in 20 days, he said at one point. No rope barbed wire matches. And it wasn't gimmicked either. How do you mean? How would you gimmick that? Uh, you would shave down the barbs and the wire to make them shorter. Okay. Or what WCW would do if they you've used barbed wire is that they would get rubber-tipped barbed wire. Oh, okay. So it would kind of stick into you a little bit, but it wouldn't... Tear. Tear? It wouldn't, it wouldn't eviscerate to quite the same extent. Right. But if you ever want to know how Sabu got his scars, Joe, it's those matches. Right. Because he glue himself afterwards. Ah, yes. Yeah. So this is something that's been talked about on other episodes. The idea of people gluing themselves. I can't remember which Sabu ones... as medic. Yeah, I can't remember which ones it would have come up in. But I'm I think sure it was in the, the Funk ECW episode. Yeah. And, and the Funk ones and stuff. Yeah. So certain wrestlers have been known 
back in the day. It's it's Sabu is the main one. Uh, we'll be mm. honest, that is the the originator of this. Yeah, I think. but yeah. he's definitely not the only one. No. People have definitely done it since. Of the idea of just using super glue to kind of heal your wounds. You know, if you instead of using stitches, you can just glue it back together, and it's horrible and it hurts and it won't re- it won't heal nicely and you'll get horrible <sighs> scars. But it means you don't have to go to the hospital. I mean, I get hesitation about hospitals in America in, in particular because it's expensive yeah you know i think he is generally scared of hospitals as well i think from his earlier experiences he doesn't seem to enjoy it a lot mm. it's time that he could spend doing other things it's money that he probably doesn't have yeah and he learned i don't know who told him this but whoever gave him this fact you know probably pushed the first domino on this case in world war ii they used to do it right you got torn up on barbed wire in world war ii the medic wasn't there yet they patch you up with some glue it'd keep you covered over at least until time was that you could get proper treatments that's Pro- the idea that's the though, idea is you yeah, get the yeah. proper treatment later on that big one that's right down his chest that's literally from the first barbed wire match i'd say a good 60 percent of the scars are from the first barbed wire match wow you know just because he didn't realize this would happen and you know he'd just be there cover himself in glue and people are like oh man that's a crazy thing you're doing there brother and he's like fuck it like you know mm-hmm. no one was kind of like oh whoa, 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 whoa. and i think part of that is probably that his colleagues wouldn't want to intervene because they didn't want to go and tell the sheik's nephew how yeah. to conduct himself. I think well, there was a lot of that. I'm guessing the sheik did this as well, right? The sheik is also... No? Really? Sheik, sheik wasn't taking no bumps and barbed wire. I mean, he's taking maybe a spot but in the no, forehead or whatever. But like, yeah, that's it. He would like be cut open with a pencil and stuff. Would he not just have glued it back together afterwards? I, I don't know, honestly. Because if not, it was on the sheik to tell Sebu not to do that. Because of course no one else is going to do that because they're going to assume, oh, the sheik taught him that. I think lots of people, particularly you know, the, the FMW guys, Onita, etc., you know, sheik, his uncle, people who he's working with, I think no one's sitting back kind of going, oh, it's going to be awful for the business if we have this guy who already has this cool mystique who's going to be covered in cool scars. Yeah. I think it was quite obvious straight away this was money for him and he doesn't say like it was money so i did it it was like like, it was convenient so i did it it became money later would he have known would they have known at that point that using super glue would give would leave you with such bad scars they knew it'd give you scars yeah right yeah you know that but i don't think he was doing it going awesome finally chance for some scars that's i think for me that was what was so cool about him you know, was that he had all these scars. I mean, I, I, you know, hey, my head's covered yeah. in scars. You know, you're looking at someone who's got a Sabu on his head. If I have a shaved head, you'll see <laughs> Sabu, basically. And I got a big old one on my, over my eye. And I remember kind of thinking, like, fucking hell, that's badass. Because I remember getting stitches all the time as a kid, fucking hating it. Yeah. How much it sucked, how much it hurt, and how mm. much it was itchy and inconvenient. I was thinking, fuck yeah. If I get spit open again, I'm going to fucking crazy glue it like Sabu. But like him talking about him trying to glue it and you know, oh no, it's opened up. And now the or, glue's just everywhere and it's yeah. in your hands. Or get infected, you know. And it did at the time. The one in his arm was really bad once he got a really bad infection from it. But he's never not hurt. And this kind of extends, you know, you as your own personal medic, that extends as well to the pain medication. Yeah. And we'll talk about, you know, Sabu... There's a recreational side to his drug use. I think we've talked to a lot of ECW exports where it's like, hey, let's take some gimmicks, brother. It's, you know, we're big stars. We're going to go party hard now because we've worked hard. And then there's people where it's like, it's a functional thing. I need to take these pills to do my job, get up, go to sleep, whatever it is. Mm. Sabu jewel wheels. You know, he does both. 
but he's like, yeah, of course I'm addicted to painkillers. Like, you know, in his book, he's like, my my author was like, oh, should we talk about you being addicted to painkillers? He's like, why? I'm a drug addict. Everyone knows that. Like, wow, that's really open. Of you him. know, I, I don't get, I don't even get a buzz from pain. Like he, the thing that pisses him off from people like, oh, you're taking painkillers, getting high. I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm taking that for my pain. Yeah. I'll take X, Y, and Z to get high. Yeah. when I will get high because that's what I like to do. Mm. It's dangerous though. You know, I mean, mm. it's crazy. He's got. Fonzie, when he's in ECW, his his manager, he would be the guy in charge of the gimmicks. So it's Fonzie's job as his manager to find pain pills for right. him to take. And if he didn't find pain pills from, you know, a fan or the promoter or a willing other wrestler, he'd go, working without a safety net tonight, daddy. That's so what it means. No safety net, no painkillers. Why would he not be able to go to a doctor? I mean, is this to do with the fact that, again, he doesn't like doctors? Yeah, so he's just... That. Right, I see. You know, that's fucking wild, like... Yeah, I mean, it's very risky, obviously, to take... You know, you don't know anything that you take in terms of a pill. You don't know what's in it. You hear all the time, you know, and I think we did a lot of guys from the new generation. We mentioned Nash earlier, Scott Hall. And that's the generation where we talk about somas and muscle relaxants. And from, you know, from Brett's book recently, you know, well, drug testing came in. So people yeah. couldn't do this anymore. So they turned to this. But I think the idea that drug testing made wrestlers become addicted to opioids and stuff. Like Sabu is an example here. Wrestlers are plenty capable of getting addicted to opioids and still go and take all the other party gimmicks that yeah. are, are banned or whatever it is. It explains a lot about him. You know, he doesn't feel pain in the same way, I guess, because he's kind of numbed himself a little bit. Mm. But like, you know, the idea that, oh, he got those scars over years. No, it's pretty much one or two matches. And he'd be saying to them, like, he'd begging them, don't put me any more barbed wire matches, please. Mm. And they go, nah, nah, I think that's what the fans want to see. And they're doing it in these, like, nothing, like, nobody towns, like, in the middle of nowhere. And they get a good crowd because wrestling didn't come around there. But it's like, they're expected to see the barbed wire, man. That's what they want to do, you know? It would be so much worse once you're already scarred as well, because scar tissue hurts so much more when it yeah. gets re-injured. I know, we're talking this on a humid day, and I maybe it's just talking about it, my scar fucking hurts today, folks. That's Let me the tell thing, you. Yeah, people who don't have scars maybe don't realise, but like it's it's not something that once a scar is healed, it's healed and it's done. Like it will be itchy, it will hurt sometimes <laughs> for no reason. That's funny. It just reminds me of like we used to have this teacher who was one of those teachers that liked to intimidate people. And one of the things he used to do to intimidate people was he had, he had a tiny little fucking baby scar on his chin. Like, honestly, smaller than Vince McMahon's cleft. And he no, rub- that's not saying much. His <laughs> cleft is fucking huge. He there and he'd rub Vaseline on it. He'd be like, you're probably wondering why I'm running the Vaseline on my scar today. Well, it's because sometimes my scar gets a bit sore in the hot weather and I have to put Vaseline on it. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, whatever happens to me between now and becoming an adult, don't let me become a Vaseline scar, man. Oh. And I haven't, thank God. Everyone knows bio-oil is way better for it, scars what, Exactly. Anyway. Pregnant people and yep. Sabu and Kevin unite. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, this is something I was wondering if you knew, would, would figure from or not. Here's a guy who notoriously bad for speaking up for himself mm. he was afraid to say actually i don't want to do this yeah. he was afraid to say can we do this instead you know, around this time he's getting calls about going over to america where there's some guys setting up and someone rings him up and says this is amazing go to dennis corluzo he would have been one of the guys who ran like the old eastern championship wrestling territory he says go to him he's given out 500 dollars paydays doesn't matter who you are or what you're from if you if you're a name he'll give you 500 dollars, which is big big money and sabi goes great rings him up how much do you want uh 300 oh he's just he's, he's too scared 
But when you are scared and you're nervous, mm. but also, oh no, this guy doesn't talk, not because he's scared, because he's scary. And mm. he's, you know, he himself worked into a shoot. I don't think he realized it. Yeah. You can't talk up for yourself now. He was too scared to you know, ask people for, for pay rises or ask to get more of a look in or whatever it is. And it's funny, you think with the family he has, that that would be the level of education they could really give to him. Is that kind of independence and that own level of confidence with regards to your own brand and what you're yeah, worth. Yeah, to be a businessman. like but, Yeah, know. because the Sheik was a promoter. So you'd think he'd be able to tell Sabu like yeah. all the insider secrets of, you know, promoters, they're scumbags. They're always going to try and not pay you. They're always going to do this, that and the other. So you always have to know your worth. Your worth is this. This is how you negotiate. You'd think he'd be taught all that. Yeah, that, that is strange. And it is kind of like on that notion that, you know, his first big break in America comes with Paul Heyman. Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, there's a lot of good and bad things we can say about Paul Heyman, but if there is ever fucking hell, like like Yin and Yan, the promoter who takes advantage because he knows the person is too scared to say anything, yeah. and the person who's too scared to say anything, who can do crazy things, these lads are a match made in hell. Well, but also, I can t- kind of totally make sense because Paul Heyman, as much as he does take advantage, he is genuinely very caring of his talent. He's, he's caring of their image as it pertains yeah. to ECW. I think, I think their well-being physically, though, sometimes I don't think it's there. Sometimes, yeah, I would agree. But I think sometimes it is there and mm. I think he himself would think that he thinks it's Oh, there. yeah, he thinks he's doing what's yeah. best for everyone, for sure. And... You know, there are little moments in Paul Heyman's career, you know, we did the episode on him, where he is randomly very sweet and kind. And, you know, then there's other moments where he just doesn't pay anyone because he just doesn't. And so it's kind of interesting to see someone like Sabu end up in the arms of Paul Heyman because he is quite a nurturing man. Yeah, I think, do you remember, there was a story I told you about Sabu that he played a prank on someone in Japan. And ended up getting them fired mm. from the tour. It was the, yeah. piss, the piss jug prank. Mm. It was Louis Spicoli who basically had to piss all the time because he had, you know, he had a bad bladder because of all the pills he was taking. Mm. And the guy wrestlers were like, hey, stop fucking pissing every two seconds. We have to keep pulling over the bus. So Sabu says, pee in a bottle. He pees in a bottle and at the end of the bus ride, he pours the bottle out the window. And the promoter's like, if you ever piss in a bottle again, you're fucking done, mate. And then the next bus ride, Sabu comes on and he's got iced tea and he literally just goes, hey, <laughs> fuck you, Louis Sapoli, you're fired. Jesus Christ. And because of that, then Sabu felt so bad that he got the guy fired that he paid for him to come to ECW and do a, do, do a few. He's like, take it yeah. out of my end, you yeah. know? And like, you know, he got a good education in there on how to look after himself in certain respects. Yeah. Because, you know, the Sheik was connected. So Sabu was straight away with... I mean, can you explain to people how it is with the super fans in Japan? Oh, wow. The relationship that you have when you have a sponsor? Yeah. So in Japan, I think it's still a thing. Oh, it is. Yeah. Young Books, I read their book recently. They talked about this. I would be willing to bet as well that it's not just a Japanese thing anymore. Hell no. Like, I could definitely see this happening in Saudi Arabia. I had to put it Saudi Arabia. in America. It happened in the UK. Yeah, actually, you're Come right. Come on. Yeah, I'm sure it does. But basically, these very wealthy fans who maybe want more of a kind of personal one-on-one experience with a wrestler they Mm. will basically like pay for the wrestlers to like come to their hotel room or whatever and like just do their entrances or just do a couple of moves or you got to come for a special meal with us like just the two of you and then you got to chop us yeah exactly (laughs) and it's very intense and wrestlers on the whole don't love doing it because Mm. it's exhausting um 
But yeah, it seems to be something that it, it happened quite a lot. And one of the big differences about when Sabu would have come over there in the you know late 80s, early 90s, and because of Sheik's standing, he was so high up the ladder... You know, those sponsors in FMW, those were Yakuza, you know? Oh, wow. Because FMW, like a lot of companies in Japan, there is a, you know, we're seeing it actually at the moment, you know, with, with, with Kota Ibushi, you know, accusations of it at least, of there being still dealings with the Yakuza and Japanese wrestling. And the Yakuza, hey, it's not, I'm not talking just about because it it's in the storyline, the Yakuza games at the moment, where the Tojo clan has been disbanded and it's, <laughs> it's the Colors gang now, it's well crazy. But, you know, back then, very much so. You, you run shows, you sell tickets to the Yakuza who would then decide who's going to go to the shows. Yeah. I remember when I went to see Wrestling Karukan Hall, there were a lot of Yakuza guys in front of me. Like, you yeah. know, that was the first thing that struck me. So Sabu had all these stories where he'd have to go with his uncle and, be, and the uncle would be like, no matter what they say, what they do, what they make you eat, what they give you to wear, smile and nod because these are fucking dangerous people. Yeah. And you know what the Sheik's telling you that? Like, yeah. it's scary. And you have to go to meet these Yakuza lads missing various appendages on their hands mm. you know which i only learned recently is because um you know you, the more disloyal you are the harder it would have been to hold your sword in the olden yeah. times so the lack of loyalty you would have would be that you're more likely to fall in battle so it was on you basically that you'd be a rubbish warrior later Make on you more trusting of your clan yeah you have to rely on the help of of your 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 fellow yakuza etc and, you know, there's all these stories of him sitting in there having to eat, like, you know, live baby squid. Mmm, like, mm, jizz. Or, or, like, he has to, like, they're given these gifts and it's, like, giant gold chains that say gangster or, like, a big dollar sign. They have to wear them and be like, yeah, this wow. is real. I, I love this. <laughs> Thank you. you. Know? But, you know, he runs afoul. Uh, there was one time in a show and because it was Sabu's thing. You know, and I say it's his thing, like it's his gimmick. I think it was his thing because he was nervous and he was worried about protecting himself and his uncle and also he was an angry dude at times. You know, fans touched him, he'd jump into the audience and be like, bah! you know, go after the fan, don't do that again, throw chairs. And Sabu would often jump off the ring into the crowd and that was his thing. The accused the guys in the show though, no, we're not moving, fuck that. And Sabu's <laughs> like, all right, here I come, whoa! And he lands you know, near the guy's lap, and they're like, "Whoa, what's this fucking disrespect?" Oh Sorry, God. the accused have become the oh, you landed on Tony B. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, it's a big issue, and Sabu's like, "Fuck you," you know, not not going to apologize. And all That's of a sudden, so weird that on one end he can't fight for his own pay, but on the other end he is absolutely fine with facing down the, the, yakuza. the yakuza. Come on, come on, we'll fight them all. Like it's like if you can do that. You'd think you could just negotiate a higher pay, but it's actually very relatable, I find, Sabu's issues with yeah. standing up for himself. Like, I do feel sometimes that I would have better luck facing down a mugger than I would do negotiating a better pay for myself. He has the confidence of someone who's like, you know what, fuck it, no, no that's it. Yeah. And he's always at that point of like, no, that's it, no mm. more, We're, you're, you've crossed the line. Yeah. And it's very explosive, and I think that comes across in the wrestling style, but like... All of a sudden, this lad's been chased by a dozen Yakuza members into the dressing room and they're calling for his blood and he's fucking fighting for his life. Jeez. You know, and he's like, ah, they're all only little guys, so I'm, I'll be fine. Oh my like, God. You know? All of a sudden, 12 of them have him pinned down, like, and he's like, uh oh, like, am I going to die here? And <laughs> who comes on a white horse to save Sabu? Fellow Western wrestler, it's Mike Awesome, the gladiator, what? who comes in and starts picking guys oh up like one handed, throwing them around. Awesome is what they say. All his victims feel the pain. Just 
like uh, Mike Austin is someone I've always loved. He's he's one of my all time faves, and just like this felt like fan fiction. Hearing that Sabu was saved by the big fucking man going, "No way, brother! You're not fucking up with Sabu!" And he's fucking power bomb him. All the it it honestly made me lust greatly for a Sabu Yakuza game, yeah. like Yakuza Sabu, because. The idea, and then you know, waves of guys be coming in. Yeah, you recruit Mike Awesome. <laughs> and then all the lads are at the door, banging on the door. They kick it down. Twelve more guys come in. Here we go, like fucking grabbing anything that's nailed down. Could you imagine the heat actions? Sabu <laughs> with pencil, Mike Awesome with the table. Like, oh my god, like it was amazing. And like you know, that was part of the myth of Sabu was him and the fans or or whatever it would be. But the other myth of Sabu, and that's why Paul Heyman wanted him. Was the tables. Right. One night, he got beat up at the end of his match. He goes out to the backstage and Sabu's uncle goes, go out and get your heat back. And he says, what do I do? He goes, I don't give a shit, but you come out back here, you're going to have your heat back. <laughs> so he goes back out ringside. He's looking around and he sees uh, the timekeeper table, puts it in the middle of the ring, stands up on the top rope, moonsaults to the table, breaks the table. <laughs> People lose their shit. Uh, and then it becomes the trademark. It's so funny. Uh... That exposes the business a lot more than other things for me. Did that shock you that that came before putting someone through a table? Yes. Although it makes sense, kind of. How? I mean, for me, it doesn't <laughs> Because I don't think, like, it doesn't necessarily make sense to put someone through a table. It makes as much sense to put someone else through a table as it does to put yourself through a table. If you're Sabu, at least, yeah. Like, back in, in these four days, before table spots were a thing... There's the thing, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's like, like talking you about the post, imagine, yeah, yeah, post like, 9-11, it's post tables world, it's kind of difficult to conceive of. It's so funny because like that becomes a thing that if you don't see that, people will think that the show's not worth its money. Sabu's got to go so through a table funny. at some point. And like we saw a lot of clips of these yeah. because this is what Paul Heyman was watching at the time. And Paul Heyman was building up the hype of Sabu coming into ECW. We watched a random episode of ECW, like hardcore TV from like 94. And it starts with like, you can imagine young Paul Heyman down in his mom's basement with the two VHS players cutting together the greatest hits of Sabu in FMW going through tables set to this awful butt rock music. Yeah. And it's like, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. It's like, boot, boot, do, 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 do. And Sabu just falling through these not gimmicked tables, I should say, no. as well. And he's going knees first. Like he's pointing his knees on the moonsault to make them make the point to break the table. <laughs> It's a miracle he even made it to America at that point. Yeah. Fucking crazy. So this takes us now to uh, our first match, Joe. And our first match is built up as something of a hardcore dream match. Because another hardcore icon has left WCW. And he's going to be facing ECW's hardcore icon. It's Sabu versus Cactus Jack. This is from the 18th of October on ECW Hardcore TV. Now, they had had a previous match. But I remember distinctly... Because you had the McFoley hits and this is DVD when I first met you. Ah. He's like, ah, that one's disappointing. It's not as good as we hoped it would be and the mm. fans didn't like it. This is the one with the bottle shots, I remember. Ah, yes. <laughs> so Cactus Jack and Sabu, uh, when this is presented to you, you think a dream match? Car wreck? <laughs> Car crash? <laughs> I wasn't really sure. So I have seen a couple of Sabu matches. As, as I said before, I think we did one for the Terry Funk episode. And... I remember his matches, Sabu's matches, being quite chaotic and very unpredictable. Yes. In terms of that you, he goes into these spots where you expect one thing and you don't really know how that's going to pan out. I don't think even he knows often how these moves are going to pan out. 
but I suppose it depends a lot on as well, like who he's up against. So mm. because he was against Cactus Jack here and in ECW, I was expecting something pretty hardcore. Yeah, and I think like this is at a point in McFoley's career where he has like something to prove, right? Because yes. he's left WCW, he has left his ear in Germany, and he oh, he's left his ear. He's kind of viewing this as like this is you know it's stepped down for him in many respects, but this is like the dream match, isn't it? It's yeah. him and Sabu, you know, it has to live up to expectations. And I kind of feel like, you know, it's so funny the idea of, you know, a match having hype back in 1994 when it's like, you know, the, the 10% of wrestling fans who are reading dirt sheets yeah. even knew who what was happening and who any of these people even were <laughs> like. But I wanted to mention, you know, first and foremost, you'll see them here, Sabu, the, the look, the ring gear. It's always been one of my all-time favorites. Mm. Those are some nice trousers, Joe. I didn't like this outfit. He's got the easy single yellow going on here. I called it the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle outfit. He had, uh, he had green boots, did he, as he well? He had green boots, yeah. And there was some other like, green and yellowy bits across his outfit. It was quite like Rey Mysterio in some ways. <laughs> the bright colours. Yeah. yeah. He, he's very vivid back in this. Like a lot of hot pink and baby blue and yeah. stuff like that around this time as well. I just don't think lime green suits him as a colour. I much prefer his later look when he kind of has the sparkly harem pants. Yes, or he would have like, kind of the velour and stuff yeah. like that. Now, the original Sabu pants where he would get them he popped down to uh, a goodwill shop and he just buys some women's pregnancy pants that's really? what that's what he would that's do that's really funny my mum swore on harem pants during her pregnancies really yeah she always said they're the best pants for maternity wear so yeah, they, or, or if you want to be a mysterious wrestler yeah. from far away he's he's you know trying to figure out where he was called from it was like bombay india Saudi, Saudi Arabia, okay. the Middle East, and then my favorite, which was what they had in ECW, which was Bombay, Michigan. And oh, I, I wow. love that because Bombay is a small little town in is Michigan. It? That's cool. But you know, it was kind of like a tongue in cheek. Yeah. Like the dude's obviously, you know, he's he's like third generation Lebanese American yeah. or whatever it is. So <laughs> uh, the introductions happened for this one chaotically, as predicted. It happens, I think, like they're already fighting, and, they're, and the guy's like, ladies and gentlemen, Sabu and Kevin Jagger, one on match. <laughs> love that. Cactus Jack's look here is iconic. I think this is the peak for Mick Foley. This, this, is, this is better known as Mr. Bang Bang Cactus Jack, I peak think. Peak biker glam. <laughs> biker? What makes a biker glam look? Is it just wearing leather? No, it's it's like, it was, the leather makes it biker, but the glam is like the leopard print boots. And the tassels. Like the tassels and the splashes of colour. And like the, the texture of his boots is kind of like cowhide almost. Like it's like that fur to it. Well, I'll tell you something. This is definitely peak cactus jackets. As yes. in Mick Foley is trying to make a sideline selling uh-huh. Pakistani leather to uh, to the good people of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania here. <laughs> we get some chair shots early on, but not the ones that we were probably familiar with. Yeah, they have horrid school wood chairs here. Oh, God almighty. Yeah, awful. This is, uh, yeah, you shouldn't have, I don't know, don't have wrestling shows at like bowling grounds or cricket grounds where there are these wooden chairs because... There's a bit where Cactus goes to like hit the ropes and it bounces back and it hits him just in the top of the lip. <sighs> it's awful. It's really scary. But that's something we should probably point out as well. Sabu becomes an innovator with the chair as well. But this is the point with Sabu. The table was still like, you're going to tune in to see ECW. Why? So you'd see Sabu. And why do you want to see Sabu? Because you'll see a table. And that's it. you'll never see that anywhere else in the wow. world at that moment in time as far as they were concerned. 
So Sabu is clearly Paul's favourite at the moment in ECW because Paul is here as Paul E. Dangerously with his exceptionally interesting hat. And <laughs> He's got like a zebra yeah, print bucket, bucket hat. hat. Like, oh my god. So funny. Awful looking stuff. So you got Paul E. in Sabu's corner because I want to I want to manage my favourite wrestler. <laughs> and Paul E. such a big deal and Sabu's such a big deal that he has 911 as well, this other big dude. Right. And I think that might have been a bit confusing for you that there was a second big lad at ringside yeah. with Paul A. What do you think of 911 as the worker, as an as a imposing specimen? The only thing I really remember about 911 is his awful, horrid, wide finger punches. Where he like, <laughs> wide finger? He does this, and he's like, uh, 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 and my hand is splayed open right now, which is the opposite of what it should look like when you're doing a punch. I'm telling you, I want 911, I want him in Raw Underground. That's, no. my, that's my dream booking right there. I tell you, Sabu working that wooden chair is not nice. It is scary stuff indeed. It looks like both immovable and impenetrable, but also looks like it's about to fall apart at any second as well. <laughs> Somehow. We do the face buster with the wooden chair, which is absolutely horrible. That's the thing that Sabu would do. He like he would use the chair as like kind of extension of himself. You know, he would like put it on his ass and he'd jump with you yeah. ass first on the chair. And like he did develop most of this stuff just by kind of thinking, you know, in the middle of the moment. He did that one with Terry Funk. He'd be like, watch out, Terry. you go, what? And he just fucking slam him with it. And he's like, you hurt? No. And then, all right, I'm <laughs> doing that now. That's part of the repertoire. There is a um, buff of chaos throughout this match, I think we can describe it as. Yes. Both men are kind of falling all over, all over the place. Yeah. I was, it's interesting. I think Sabu seems to have a slight knock-on effect on people in his matches in that like, his chaos rubs off onto them. And yeah. so like they're both stumbling around. They're both really off balance, but they're both like pushing themselves really to the extreme here. I thought there was elements of the Thunderdome here in a good way. In like the oh, one yeah, positive memory I have of the Thunderdome, which mm. was, I think it was when Roman and Kevin Owens accidentally wrestled into a much more interesting building during oh, one of their yeah. matches. Yeah, And I, right. this happens here. They go out into the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I usually hate when people head into the crowd, but this was awesome. For me... What made it good was the camera work because for this section, the camera held back when they went into the crowd. So, of- so are you praising camera work from early 90s ECW? Yep. My God. I know, I know. What a day. I know. <laughs> but normally, especially in WWE, when you have crowd segments, the camera is really up close, like almost to the point where you can barely see the wrestlers' faces yeah. because it's so tight on them. Well, you know, if you saw them in that sea of people, it yeah. would look so much better. Like. And it does, it does look better. It's It's really cool seeing them kind of part the crowds either side of them and the crowd kind of moving around the two wrestlers and as they brawl it's almost like before the crowd knows that you can be up close and personal it's like pre-crowd brawling crowd brawling something like that and it just feels a lot more real as well like it feels that you're kind of being a bit nosy around people having a a real fight and you're trying to keep your distance because it's not safe but also you do want to see the drama and you do see as well of course when you have these nice wide shots loads of little children running around in what is a match that definitely should not be viewed by children no there's an amazing bit here which i loved i thought this was super wrestling where they go into this dark room where there's no cameras that follow them in or anything they just go in there oh yeah it's like a little tiny side yeah. kind of closet or something like that and you just hear pipes clanging and banging and them kind of grunting and making punching sounds and then they come out and they kind of look all exhausted and they could have been doing anything in there which i love i love the fact that like maybe they just had a sit down yeah. and kind of knocked on the walls a bit and made some grunts it reminded like, me right. of in, like space you know when they have to pretend 
pretend they to be a couple yeah, so they keep exactly. making sex, sex noises. noises yeah. I just imagine Sabu just sitting there catching his breath being like, ah, 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 <laughs> clang, 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 clang. But like, I'd much rather that than say them go back into the ring and do an extended rest hold spot. <laughs> we have Sabu giving the people what they want to see. It's the moonsault through the table and he nearly clips his feet on the guardrail. The table is like set up on the corner of the guardrail it's scary. Anytime Sabu dies out of the ring in ECW, that's when the real anxiety comes for me. Because like you're gonna hit that steel guardrail, awful. You're gonna hit that dirty floor, awful. You're gonna hit like one of the fans, awful. Like there's no good outcome here, really. And he's hurt himself in those guardrails particularly many, many times. But yeah, he just smashes himself and manages to just nearly kill himself as opposed to succeed and really mess himself up here. Yeah. And then we get the moment this match I think is known for. I think the idea in Foley's mind was that this would build sympathy. He wanted it to be like, um, kind of like Lenny in... Uh, <laughs> so stupid of even thinking this. Mick Foley thinking he's writing the great American novel here in fucking Philly in front of 200 oh, sweaty what, fans. Oh, he's thinking of Mice and Men here. Yeah, he's, he thinks it's going to be like Lenny and he's going to have the fans be like, no, 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 just stay down. Like, you're being too... Yeah. Not knowing his own strength, like... Oh. Oh, Mick, you ain't Lenny, like... The guy going, bang, bang, is not Lenny, right? So, Sabu says that he wants something to stab cactus jack with so paul Heyman goes and fetches him a glass bottle yep uh don't know how you're gonna stab him with that it's a two-part process joe mm. you have to, is it though you have to introduce you have to create the business end of the bottle first mm. and then use it to stab More like them. a seven-part process because he tries to hit cactus jack on the head with the bottle and it just goes clunk and bounces right off the noise it is like it's like a 3d movie maker has your fucking built-in bottle yeah. noise Blink! it's yeah. so silly it's, it's so, silly. so so silly we've watched footage of sabu watching this back yep laughing his ass off we've watched footage of sandman watching this back <laughs> uh, there's something very pure about these ecw botches yeah where everyone is all right afterwards and Sabu's excuse is that, like, I was hitting him 80% and I should have been hitting him 100%. I was holding back. I was scared about hurting yeah, him. Yeah, of course. But by doing that, it made it worse. It made it way worse. It takes about five or six attempts. It's actually seven. I it is. I, I, I was yeah, right the first time. It was, it seven. was seven. Yeah, I kept counting. Yeah, it, it takes a while. Um, and each it's, time. It's so sad when worse. finally goes, like. <sighs> that poor head of Mick Foley's. It's really seen some shit. Yeah, I know. Like that's that's the traumatic stuff right there. Like yeah, you know? like for some reason, I find the idea of getting hit on the head with a bottle and it breaking. I find that less scary than being hit on the bottle and it not breaking. Yeah, seriously. Like I always ugh. think of that Roddy Piper promo, the one I the one I showed you where I think that like you're officially like yeah, I don't know who this guy is. Who this is not this is some weirdo. The one where he's like sheep herders. I'm gonna throw this full bottle of beer into my face. He's goes. Bss. And, like, the idea of, like, how heavy and sore that must mm-hmm. be, even with it breaking. Imagine him smashing it and just going, gunk. That's the thing, because even if you're not holding something in oh your hand, God. the amount of strength you would need to smash a bottle against your head, even if there wasn't a bottle there, you would be doing yourself damage. And, like, what I love about Sabu, and this is what always made his character have the myth that kind of makes sense later on, I guess, but, like, as a kid... He do stuff like this. You look at Sabu and he's there with a broken bottle in his hands, screaming, going, ah, 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 like just hollering off. I always thought it was really funny that the guy's in mute and then like if anything goes remotely wrong in a match or if a fan comes near him, like he ain't fucking mute. Like, he'll, <laughs> he'll give you the business. 
but he just seems like he seems insane yeah like he's he smashed the bottle over his head now he's screaming with this broken bottle in his hand he goes up to the top rope he's moonsaulting there's shards of glass everywhere and you can see why it's Paulie's favorite wrestler it makes it seem like a rock and roll show or mm. you know it's it's wild it's unpredictable everyone's fucking yeah it's a cool time people are being hurt it's crazy it is like very much the eye catching stuff that ECW got known for and Sabu he picks up the win here beating Cactus Jack. It's matches like this that were like hardcore dream matches, but they'd also put him in like triple threats with Terry Funk and Shane Douglas and say, this is proper wrestling, like, you know, not just spots and people maiming each other. But this was very indicative of indicative of ECW. I kind of felt after this match, I should have shown you this originally to get you to understand ECW. Yeah. But it certainly helped me understand Sabu a little bit more. How'd you get on with the dream hardcore match? Oh, I didn't know how to feel about this match. It was greasy. It, yeah, it was definitely greasy. Uh, there were loads of mistakes because of this bottle business. It's amazing to see mistakes that didn't involve him falling. He didn't fall off the top rope once in this. Yeah. He was no. kind of uh, careful in that respect. Not that I am in this episode waiting every you know every match. I'm like, oh, when's Sabu gonna fall over? Like, doesn't I'm not, happen every match. I'm not at all doing that. Like, I yeah. don't, I don't think that way about Sabu whatsoever. And if you think that about any wrestler, it's like I don't know. Think of a better way to watch wrestling. Yeah. I would suggest because that's a bit weird. Yeah, it is a bit weird. I gave this three and a half stars, and I don't really know how to feel about it. Still, this match because the bottle spot is infamous. Like yeah, it, it really has like it's it's transcended. Like I'm pretty sure non wrestling fans have even heard of this. <laughs> the in night legend. the bottle wouldn't break. Yeah, um, but the yeah, I don't know. It's just very chaotic. It but feels it was... like you're giving it stars because you appreciate the the men hurt themselves and took a lot of liberties with their own bodies. Is that I mean, it? Not or... just that because I really liked like the crowd brawling as well. I re- I never like crowd brawling. No. I, I like crowd brawling in this one a lot. I feel I liked a lot of the... Like, this match is quite emblematic for me is in displaying a lot of the things I like about professional wrestling outside of the wrestling. Yeah. Like, the wrestling itself, I didn't really care about here. But, you know, I liked the camera work. I liked the presentation. Like I liked the, the showmanship, the characters. I mean, it felt spots. like, you know, it was like a comic book match. If you had yeah. the, the wild man Cactus Jack against the different type of wild man Sabu. Mm. You know, it, it did have that kind of fantasy feel to it. But if you strip all of that sort of sports entertainment side out of it i'm not sure i would give this any stars i don't know it is interesting and it's kind of always hard to tease apart where is this sabu's presentation and where is this the genius of ecw and paul Heyman? Mm. because this was how the program was marketed you know they marketed the first pay-per-view around sabu and taz because sabu was this name that still was like oh i've heard about him yeah Mm. yeah yeah you know the table spots this was the thing you tuned in to see with ecw but the problem was with Sabu is that you have got a very iconic spot that everyone wants to do now. And all of a sudden it's like Sabu's not here this weekend. I think the public enemy actually put someone through a table and he goes up and he's like, hey, did you put someone through a table? No, no, brother, that wasn't me. No, no, no. You know, you're not taping these shows. People yeah. didn't know. He's hearing rumors. He's paranoid about this stuff all the time. Anyway, people are telling him, ah, don't worry about it. But, you know, people are realizing, okay, maybe we'll use a table. He said, like, there was originally a discussion with Heyman. That no one was allowed to do tables but him. That was Sabu's brand. It was his gimmick. That yeah. was what was special about him. He brought it over to the US. He innovated it here. So it's his spot. And then it became, okay, other people might do the spots, but they'll ask you permission first. Mm. And of course, you know, one or two people do. He's very grateful. Loads don't. He's pissed off. Yeah. And then Heyman tells him at one point, 
you will get a percentage of the royalties. No, that's never going to happen. Of, <laughs> you don't even know what I'm saying. The word per, just the word percentage coming yeah. out of Paulie's mouth. No way. No, no way. No. As if Paul Heyman is sitting there doing maths in his office. But he, you know, this is what Sabu, and this is only Sabu's claim. And you know, while I have sympathy for Sabu, I'll be the first to admit him and many ECW wrestlers do come out sometimes with a list of grievances that plays right into Paulie's hands. That he can mm. go look at this. And even if it 95% of it is true and 5% is blown up and silly and nonsense, it's always the 5% that gets pointed out as being ridiculous and that's why it gets thrown off. Jeez, it's almost like his dad was a defence attorney. Oh. <laughs> but he was told, Sabu, according to him, that Paul E promised him a percentage of all the royalties from ECW profits. Right. Because ECW gained notoriety because of the table spots. Okay. So he would get money off of that. No, he didn't. No. No, he fucking didn't. No, if he was going to get that, he should have negotiated that in the first place. It's not... If, if Paul Heyman's coming to you and going, oh, here's an idea. What if we give you money? It's not happening. Yeah, and if it's coming at the end of an argument that you've had and yeah. it's just to shut you up and to make the argument go away, yeah. well, that's it. Like, you know, this is the guy who'd be like, oh, my, I have no checks left in my checkbook. What do you want me to do? Like, you know, mm-hmm. any, you know, he had the excuses. And Sabu, of course, I'm sure you... Would you have guessed that he's one of the people who's owed six figures plus from ECW? Yeah, I'm not surprised yeah. at all. And learning a lot of bad blood over the years for Mr. ECW that he's, you know, he was kind of viewed as. You know, By 1995, he was gone. He was fired publicly in the ring by Paul Heyman. Why? Because he was offered... Also, that's such fucking Vince McMahon bullshit. I, I thought Paul Heyman was above that. I thought this was the revolution, brother. You know, yeah, we don't... It's fucking shit. So what happens is, is that he's offered more money to go and do something in New Japan. Right. And like a lot more money. As in Heyman's offering $250 to do like a week. And these guys are offering, you know, five grand to do two weeks. Wow. You know, big money. Yeah. Way less work, bigger crowds. Everything about it was better. And he was too afraid to ask Paul for permission. So he started asking, you know, this is the typical thing. And this is like something that I would have done when I was like a kid, you know, too, too scared to ask the person who you're meant to ask permission to. So you ask people who you think would know whether or not you get in oh, trouble. No. So he goes to, you know, Guerrero, he goes to Jericho, he goes to Foley. He goes to all these people who would have had dealings in Japan and go, do you think I'll get, could I just go oh, do this? This is literally the worst thing you could do. So he now shows his $500 spot for, for Heyman yeah. to go do the much bigger money, thousands of dollars deal in New Japan. And Heyman starts off the show by being, Sabu decided that he would rather take more money from another person and deny you the loyal fan. And it was like burying him in the strongest possible way. Yeah. You know, we know at this day and age what it's like if a group of wrestling fans are told, over there, go hate that. Mm. That's like, Jesus Christ. But could you imagine ECW, where it's a little bit spicier than usual, with some pretty passionate fans going, this guy... Not only has he betrayed you personally, he's taking food off of Terry Funk's children's table. Yeah, and he's doing it for money. And he's doing it for more money. He's sold out. He, like, this is like, everything that we stand against. Yeah. Like, not only did he sell out, he's, like, sold out in, a, in the worst way possible. Like, he managed to frame it like it was worse than someone going over to WCW and then coming back. Which yeah. people did in ECW all the time, by the way. Which I think is really, really ridiculous. Mm. And I think that's, like... You know, he gets brought back and it's always tense after that point. Mm. He's always treated as someone who's got an asterisk beside him yeah. because he's not loyal. And he views that his treatment was bad because he wasn't loyal. People would probably say his treatment was bad because he was erratic. He was a, a, a big time drug user. And that was part and parcel. You know, He didn't like to talk to anyone. He wouldn't communicate. 
I mean, I told you a little bit about him describing the party scene in ECW. And he, he described it like it was the fucking greatest thing in the world. <laughs> Makes it sound like a college dorm party. I have never seen a wrestler unironically talk about the pure joy of loads of wrestlers taking loads of drugs. Like mm. it was just so fun. So great. Because yeah, I think wrestlers are ashamed of that part of their backgrounds very often. Yeah, I think for various reasons as well. You know, for some of them, it's because they had families at home and the thought of their you know, wives and children knowing that they're out having great fun taking illegal substances when they could be at home spending Christmas with their kids. You know, you should feel ashamed about that. And for other wrestlers, it might be the case if they don't want people to know they were doing something illegal. Mm. You know, there's lots of different reasons why you might feel a little bit ashamed about that side of your life. You know, there's there's a story where he's like, explaining how it's laid out afterwards there would always be this kind of the, the couple of hotels that they would run in the kind of cheapy grotty motels that were near the arenas they'd have a bunch of rooms and each room was the different gimmicks so one room would be for the potheads and they'd all be smoking in there you'd have two cold scorpio etc one room you'd have you know flyboy rocco rock and a few guys smoking crack mm-hmm. sandman's room there'd be a bit of everything you know sandman's room there'd be coke there'd be jack daniels there'd be a room and it'd be like you know Terry Funk with a big pizza and there's Cactus Jack wrapping up pieces to take with him in the car journey. The you know, room. and like it was, you know, just that kind of showing you the length and breadth of the people that were in ECW because it wasn't all like fucking hard men and all that. There was mm. kind of other folks in there as well. And Sabu was like, I was a dabbler. So I'd, you know, stop by the pizza room, grab a slice, and I go over and I do a line, then I pop over and I take a gimmick, you know, and it just. He made it seem like it was a wonderland. It did kind of strike me, though, that his great memory he's talking about is like from like 1994, 1995. Mm. And there's a lot of like kind of shitty, dark stories of him yes. backstage that seem a lot less fun than, whoa, Mick Foley's taking pizza for the journey home. Mm. So like, I get it. Have your moment. But you are still glamorizing a side of wrestling that I'll always be glad is is dead. Well, not dead and gone, but a lot less than it once was. Yeah. A lot less crack smoking in wrestling these days, and I'm happy for it, Joe. Seriously. Hurt himself a lot in ECW, broke his neck twice. How? One time he got suplexed on his head by Chris Benoit. Just landed right there. And it wasn't Benoit's fault, he said. He said that he thought he was taking one type of a suplex, and he realized later it was the, the other type. <gasps> So I he, didn't know that was a thing that could happen. That's yeah. so scary. He thought that he was going to be landing kind of high up and instead he was going to be lying flat down. So he kind of oh had to tuck too God. late. He lands right in his head. It's it's awful. You, and you, you've seen it a few times. It's the one where he's like, they slow it down. He literally lands right in his head. And it kind of goes. It was awful, you know. Mm. Uh, didn't really get, you know, six weeks later, he's still wrestling. What? You know, and that's it. It's painkillers. It's sorting yourself out. No hospitals. Don't like hospitals. You're, so you're the scary. medic. Now, the other time I was trying to find out, and it seems to be that it's in a shroud of kayfabe, but the second time where it was allegedly Taz that broke his neck, I think is a kayfabe thing. I think mm. it was like his neck was bad and maybe got a bit worse, but they told it like, you know, he shattered one of the vertebrae in his neck or whatever it is. But, you know, Sabu had a very bad neck for a lot of his, his time there. Mm. The real bad one was the jaw. You mm. saw that. That's from the Sandman match, Stairway to Hell. Yeah. After... Find it out about the gunshot. That took it on a whole new light for me. Yeah. You know, he's there afterwards, Rob Van Dam, who's, you know, training partner, tag partner, his friend, wrapping him up with tape because he doesn't want to go to the hospital. Yeah, because you can't glue that, can you? Go oh, on. no, he's poured in glue as well. How do you... What? Because he has a big hole is stuck oh, out there. Oh, no. So he's gluing that, wrapping himself up. The only instruction to Rob and Fonzie is leave a hole so he can suck his um, protein shakes. Blech. He does eventually go to the hospital for that one. Right. But it's like, you know, 
eventually after it's already healed wrong yeah yeah it's healed wrong it's probably his and that was it when he's in the hospital they're looking at it they're like what the fuck is this in here and he's like oh no is there like shards of table is it like some of my teeth or something Mm, like that a bit of bullet maybe it was it was bullet trapped left in there from all those years before and he never had it looked at and treated properly so you know and like there's a many times i can think very strongly to him in a match hurting his jaw and blood coming out of his mouth and all that and him being like and like trying to tape up his jaw or his chin or whatever mm. and it like really like it's scary never mind the neck yeah never mind the scars never mm. mind everything fucking else that's probably wrong with him so yeah his feud that is built up over the years is the big money one is him and taz i would say it's like ecw's brett and sean right because you had a promoter trying to rile up two guys against each other mm. except imagine brett and sean if one of those parties was a bit too away in his own world to really give a shit about any of it and the other guy was angry as both of them because taz that was... does sound like brett and sean to be honest i don't know i mean sabu if you hear from him he never gave two shits about his dude with taz he's like <laughs> eh, you know he, he got angry all the time i don't know and taz is like <laughs> worked himself into this position of like yeah. this guy's doesn't take my world seriously so they have the blood feuds the first pay-per-views around it that first match is not really that good i don't think we've purposely not watched it here because we'd watched it for the taz episode and i didn't get a very glowing review <laughs> he did have another trial with wwf at the time they did like, have an ecw invasion he rubs everyone the wrong way because they're like hey why don't you come in and do that table spot and Sabu just is all pissed off because they won't let him use the table at ringside. They want him to pull a table from under the ring where he's like, that'll kill the, the gimmick. No one will believe that there's a table under the ring. It has to be a table that's there. Right. So that's why he has a manager to do it from the rest of his career. It's like, fuck it. I don't want to care about it. Yeah. You have someone else pull out the table because I can't pull out a table. That kills the gimmick. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. I can kind of understand that. What's what's the rationale? <laughs> it's... <laughs> Sometimes monsters aren't meant to look human. Right. And bending over and pulling something out from underneath a little cloth, I think, is quite humanising a gesture. And it's the same as, like, you know, if you think of Brock Lesnar, it's probably best to not imagine him, like, setting up a table and chairs as well. Like, it's just there's something mundane about it. Yeah, and there's always the image in your head of, like, someone looking for a weapon and not finding it. Yeah. Like, good lord, that is the worst thing. And if you're allowed to be the quiet kind of killer like Sabu is and you can't find the table, it's pretty bad. But yeah, you know, he's he's sort of having not a great attitude. They do the ECW invasion. He's meant to jump off the raw sign. He falls off the oar straight away. And like, oh, and Heyman, of course, is incredible. Like, oh my God, it's Sabu, look! And he just falls off straight oh. away. He has a trial in WCW as well. And this is like so funny. He's wrestling this like, young boy, Alex Reich. And he's scared to death of him. He won't do any of Sabu's stuff. And he's like, why? He's like, wow, this guy, he's like, you've not heard about him. He's like really scary. He's covered in scars. He thinks this is a shoot. He's going to hurt me for real. Like that's the part now where you don't talk and no one, you know, no one interacts with you. And you're the quiet guy. Now he's the reputation of, from some of these younger wrestlers in the other companies that it's a shoot and you don't want to work with him now. Because you'll get hurt. And he's like, no, it'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be fine. And the match doesn't go great. And he doesn't go through the table afterwards and Sheik's with him and... He tries to go through the table and Sheik fucking like breaks his ankle trying to help him get the table out. It's a total shit show. And like, you know, he's like, oh, you know, Bischoff said it went well, though. And he liked the kind of style. Maybe I'll get a shot. You know, they've put me on an agreement. Maybe it'll lead to bigger things. And one of his friends is like, yeah, you might want to ring the Mean Gene hotline. 
And you know the mean gene is like the, the yeah. premium number, and he rings it up, and he's like, "Guess which international superstar has just been fired by <gasps> WCW? Press one to find out." And he's like, "I don't know, press one." And he's like, "Oh, I've been fired." Oh, and also this phone call cost me thirty dollars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve Austin being FedExed. Move over. Yeah, that's the worst. Paying to find Paying out. Paying to find Paying out. Premium phone line from Mean Gene as well. I want bump Buddha, but up down down. You're fired. Wow. <laughs> wow. The. The, the lack of dignity that comes with that. Yeah. So, you know, because of that, you know, he's still doing stuff in Japan here and there, but it's it's ECW is his home. That's where it was it was going to be for him for, for most of his career. And that takes us to a match I was very excited for. This is historic. It's from ECW's Living Danger Seat, 1999. Sabu defends the FTW Championship and attempts to unify it against the ECW World Heavyweight Champion, his arch rival Taz. The main event. It's a big match. It's the rematch. <laughs> I wanted to check your knowledge, Joe. FTW Championship. What's that all about? Do you remember that belt? No. From the Taz episode. No. FT Ricky Starks is the FTW champion at the moment in AEW. For the win. Oh my god. I don't remember. Angry Taz intensifies. Mm. It's the Fuck the World Championship, oh, Joe. Oh, right. Wait, fuck the... Fuck the World. Oh, right. Fuck the World Championship. Okay. And it's for people who epitomize an FTW mindset. Okay. Like Sa- I think Sabu is probably the most FTW yeah. mindset champion I could ever think of. Yeah, maybe less fuck the world and just fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. Or like his, he's got his chin all strapped up here because yeah. he's hurt it recently at that match with Sandman mm-hmm. and he's written F-U on his chin. <laughs> yeah. And the FTW belt, which just has Taz's name on it, he's got a piece of tape over that and has written Sabu on it as yeah. well. Love it. It is a, <laughs> a match which is introduced by recurring theme on the podcast. It's uh, his manager, the manager of champions. It's Fonzie, the man with the whistle. Yeah, so this is Bill Alfonso. He's popped up occasionally on the podcast. Very annoying man. <laughs> Why is he annoying? Because he has a whistle and he blows it fucking constantly. There's nothing like the sound of a whistle non-stop in a wrestling yeah. match to put you on edge. Mm-hmm. Good lord. Um, but he's a very effective manager. Very bouncy, very yeah. energetic, very unique in ECW. Like, he looks... Yeah. He seems like the type of, like gym teacher but in a good way like yeah. a, the nice gym teacher who's like kind of enthusiastic um kids today instead of doing gym i'm gonna teach you how to smoke cigarettes daddy yeah <laughs> and he seems very out of place in ecw which kind of makes him seem to fit in place in ecw in a way <laughs> i always like the entourage in ecw yes. the big group of weirdos why do they fit together and for my money no greater mix of clashing styles of of vibe then Sabu, Rob Van Dam, and Bill Alfonso. Yeah. The madness of... And we watched a bunch of these backstage segments where it's just, you know, Sabu looking ornery, looking like he's about to jump through the screen and get you. He's got yeah. a hand on his spike in the boot. You've got Bill Alfonso screaming at the top of his lungs and Rob Van Dam, without fail, in every one of these backstage segments, looks like, not just high, like recently high like he's just put down the bong and he's like still coughing a little bit (laughs) and he's doing the promo and you've got the slow rob hey man i'm gonna have like six titles it's gonna be awesome you got bill alfonso being like i don't care if that booth head falls up daddy i'm gonna glue it on stick it back on his body (laughs) 
He's got that intensity, though. He's got the, the energy, little, yeah. The energy. And I, him saying he's going to glue him up and put him back together. He's squirting glue. He's got tape in his hands. <laughs> You've got nothing to ask. I really want to see someone illustrate these three as Rob Van Dam as a, like a kind of lazy dog. Sabu as an angry cat and Bill Alfonso as like a squawking bird. And I just say in my head, that is exactly partly why their dynamic works so well is that you'd you'd think you look at them and you think, well, that one would eat the other one and the other one would yes. eat the other one. Yeah, but actually yeah. they're all friends. I'd like a kind of a, one of those puzzles where it's like, you have to bring over the fox yeah. and the grain, except it's Sabu, Rob Van Damme, Bill Alfonso, a bucket of crazy glue and a bag of weeds. Yeah. Like, <laughs> ah, but if you leave Sabu and the glue alone, he'll... <laughs> Yeah, but you can't leave any of them with the weed. Weeds. Yeah. <laughs> so, like Rob Van Dam, you know, the thing he always do is he'll like say something. He'll go on this big tangent about how great he was, and he'll just like dig Sabu and he'll be like, "I don't know how I'll be able to carry four belts as well as my tag team partner." Kidding, kidding. And like, it's not just. But I'm not kidding. Sabu being quiet, he's like, he's fuming, he's raging. Yeah. He's, he's like going up to someone going like, like you. I think he never should have opened his gob because I think that is like the best silent performance I've seen in wrestling as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't need to say anything. No, no, he's best not saying anything. I want to talk as well about his great pose. The point. Joe is pointing right now. pointing right now. Of course, the alternate of the pose is the point with the little thumb as well. Yeah. Uh, Now, why does he point, do you think, in your estimation? Well, I thought maybe he was pointing to God. Right, like he was like an Allah or a Muslim thing. But you have told me that is expressly not true. He's not pointing to God. (laughs) It is weird. It is in kind of a roundabout way. Sheik used to point because it was part of his gimmick, even though Sheik wasn't strictly very religious. He point up because it's like, I'm pointing to Allah. He's not your God, is he? Boo! He's pointing to the sky in tribute to the Sheik. It's 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 because the Sheik did it. Right. So and the Sheik like, did it because of God. Yes, but Sheik did it not because he was religious. He no. did it for heel heat. For heel heat, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of weird. It's like, it is and it isn't. It's kind of Schrodinger's religious reference in wrestling <laughs> right now. Very wrestling. I don't know why, but it was only when I was doing the Sabu episode I realized this. I went back through my Facebook and I swear to God, every, you know, Facebook, when I would have had pictures on there, would have been on university days. And I swear, every second picture from 2005 to 2011 is me doing the Sabu pose. <laughs> or me getting other people to do the Sabu pose. Mm. Like, there's an Action Bronson music video where it's just him doing the Sabu pose. It is a lot of fun to do around the house. Yeah. Particularly if you're wearing comfy trousers. That's true. <laughs> also, I need to expressly say it here on the podcast for posterity. His is the best entrance music ever. We got to hear it here properly, and it's uh, when he's coming out for his match with with Taz. It's pretty good. What 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 gives it pretty good? Not all time great vibes for you. I find what makes it good is also what keeps it from being great, which is that it's very generic foreigner heel, right? Which makes it very it's very catchy. Yeah. It's um, definitely fun to listen to. God, I just realised I love all the generic foreign heel music. Yeah. That's always my, like Iron Sheik's music. God, I fucking love that. Aria Davari's music. Jesus Christ, I love that. Like You just love generic, traditional, but faux traditional Middle Eastern music. I, I do, yeah. Honestly, I do. I absolutely adore it. It must have a name, that genre. I, I don't it know is. what it is. I don't, hookah blues, who knows? Yeah. Like. But um, yeah, I find there's just a ceiling on his entrance music that stops it from being like, wham really fucking cool right it's just like it's a little i don't know something to do with the instruments they're a little bit too midi sounding a little uh, bit too shallow there's something about how slow the 
the how slow it is. Mm, I, guess. I like I like how slow it is. You know, yeah. it has its own like you know most wrestling themes don't have a dun 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 dun. That's the beat for it. It's well fucking like timid compared to him. And I kind of like you know that coming out and Sabu being very ornery and like you know when he comes out here he fucking slips and he falls and then he's like and he's like picking up his chair, throwing his chair around, looking at fans. There's something about the combination of the very chill music and the absolutely not chill man yeah because the music sounds like you might hear it like from a snake charmer or something yeah yeah yeah. like it's quite it's quite like hypnotic relaxing like yeah also quite evil sounding on the nsr podcast i never was able to kind of explain why but adam and billy agreed with me when i explained it i always said it felt like i'm gonna leave a box of milk tray like the milk tray man it has that sensual mystery to it okay if you've not seen the milk tray adverts you just think i'm some sort of like a I know confectionery creep right yeah. now, but you know what I'm talking about. The real ones know. The real ones know. Is Sabu the dairy milk man? The the milk tray man. Sorry, yes. the milk tray man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The idea of Sabu being one of those like glass and a half full, like happy, optimistic ads. <laughs> like a little kid looks at him on the bus and he's like, <laughs> I was very impressed with how seemingly very upset taz was with sabu for having to wrestle this match yeah he's furious he calls him a fucking pussy within two seconds yeah. and then lock it up. you fucking pussy get in the ring this is where we get to see a little bit of sabu's mat skills though he yes. does go there with taz it's impressive yeah it is it's really impressive um i've mentioned before on this podcast how i dislike cross face punches i believe they're called it's taz's specialty i think it yeah. came up in the taz episode mm. and his boy hook is doing them as well in aw now i do like when hook does them though <laughs> I, I just can't explain it hook is just special if there's something about taz joe doesn't like if I hook like it, does hook, it yeah. that's how she'll like it like. yeah <laughs> but he does them here and normally i hate them because i feel like what's the point like you're not gonna I don't see how that would be painful to receive a cross-face punch, even though I'm sure it is painful. But Because it, it does fall into that category, I think. We've heard Regal mm. talk about this, where if and, and Foley as well, where it looks like it's not sore, but yeah. it actually is sore. Yeah. And then all you're doing is making the fans, they're a step behind your selling, essentially. Yeah. Then. But it is actually very effective here because of Sabu's broken jaw, which is all taped up. Ooh, so yeah. normally you just obviously with a with a cross face punch, you just have like an arm kind of wobble your neck and your head. But if that's hitting your jaw, that's going to potentially dislocate it all over again. So there is definitely a time and a place for these moves. What was the mindset for you coming into this? Because I think by this point, you, you knew enough about Sabu's kind of background a little bit. And he'd known about the injuries. And I think of all the matches we've seen, he's probably the most visibly banged up here. Yeah. Was this entering into the realm of kind of apprehension and anxiety for you watching it as a fan, kind of wondering if one of these guys is going to get seriously hurt? Or does Sabu kind of skirt that reaction for you? You know what? It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it until now, but he does actually. I've, I haven't watched any of his matches scared. Which is interesting because I was thinking about like, you know, we were talking about Lita a couple of episodes ago mm. and I was saying one of the reasons I haven't gone well with her matches is because she's quite... Clumsy's not the word. I do not want to say clumsy. Caution um, to the wind. Yeah, exactly. We did Chaotic. Sur- yeah. Yeah. Survivor Series 03 on our Patreon yeah. we did for Pay-Per-View Classic and I think there was a few instances of like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. This unpredictableness which 
puts you on edge and you think, oh, they could actually really hurt themselves. And for Lita, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. But with Sabu, it makes me excited. And I can't explain why that is. There was no moment watching any of these matches where I was like, oh no, he's really going to hurt himself. Even though I feel that there is an extra element of that with him because of the fact that he doesn't agree with like getting medical attention. So if he did get hurt, he would be hurt so much worse. I think he is almost through some sort of black magic, he is passing on that thrill, Mm. that idea of like, you know, the payoff onto you, the fan. And you sometimes get that when you're watching a wrestler, but usually it's more like they're telling you the story and that's that. Here, like there's always the story in the match. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this wrestler can't tell you a story. He can. But there is always the story in a Sabu match and then there's Sabu's story in that match. And I think as a fan, particularly if you know him a little bit more, there does become that element of what am I going to see? Mm-hmm. Am I going to see a mistake? I'm not watching, hoping for a mistake, but you know, I watch these matches and I hope, geez, I hope he pulls it off. Yeah. And if he pulls it off, I hope he's okay when he does it. Mm. It's almost like this kind of, I don't know, like paternal kind of thing, like a yeah. little bit of a mammy vibe to it. Like, and like he would say his mother would like, she like, she couldn't watch his matches. I she'd bet. be like, she'd be like, Oh my God, you're so hurt. And he's like, look, I'm here right now. I'm all right. Like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You're hurt though. You're hurt. Taz of course is, is there for every step of the way because you know, he is, he's there absorbing all of Sabu's crazy stuff. And anytime Sabu might be there like to slip and fall, he's just, he's not like mocking. He's there going, come on, motherfucker. Get out. Taz is, Honestly, I feel stupid for not showing you this match for the Taz yeah, episode. Yeah, this does yeah, yeah. a lot of good for him because you actually get to see his anger directed at someone rather than it just be like internalized. He's not broody here. Yeah. He's just fucking fuming. He's really, <laughs> and he's scary here. This is this is the first time I understand why people were f- afraid of Taz when they grew up watching him. Because every time we got a tweet about Taz for the episode, everyone was like, oh, I was so scared of him. And I was like, why? <laughs> There's a part where he takes Sabu out of the ring and he just starts fucking beating on him, like proper stiff shots. And you were mad confused because he's like, come on, Flair. Yeah. Come on, Austin, Goldberg, Hogan. Like, listen, any, any top name in red. Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Linda yes. McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Scott Hall, like, Dio Brown. Vince Russo, Jim Cornette. And those of you who've Frank not quite made it to the dance yet, you get in here right now. He's just angry. That is FTW mindset, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Taz, of course, eats the dreaded wooden chair. And because he's Taz, he now sells it. And we're caught in this weird, strange twilight zone where Taz has been hit for something that anyone, even the most cynical wrestling fan, will go, that's giving you a concussion and a half. And then he's like, no, nah, I'm fine, actually. Yeah, actually, it's kind of cleaned out my my sinuses i had a bit of a stuffy nose and that's gone not only is wrestling not real real life isn't real (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually immune to heavy wooden objects there's a point here now when they go up onto the stage and i love this old stage you know this the ecw did it for a while tna did as well where the ramp goes all the way right into the ring so the kind of the entrance way is is above, above all of the crowd yeah i lost track of how many times sabu went sailing off of this thing yeah like, he'd dive off onto Taz, and Taz would be like, no, he didn't get me. Then he'd pick Sabu up, drag him back up on top, and throw him off again. <laughs> it was fucking hell. It was brutal stuff. Yeah. He gets suplexed over the ropes, Sabu, through a table that has been, like, kind of positioned between the railing and the hardest part of the ring. I think this point is when he cuts out a cameraman's feed. Yeah, the lights go off and the feed stops. Him and Raven, birds of a feather, flocking together, ruining pay-per-view broadcasts. (laughs) 
Taz also, when he has Sabu in a prone position, just starts screaming, fuck him. Fuck this guy. Fucking look at him. Fuck him. You want some flair? <laughs> I like if he didn't say you want some flair, I think he would have had me in tears at that point. What like with Sabu? Because I felt at this point in this match, I felt sad for Sabu. Yeah. It was honestly, you know what it was. Saying it was, fucking look at him is really dehumanizing. Yeah. And really like he's scary. A thing. Yeah, yeah. Like fucking look at that. Look, look what I've done. And then so you know him saying fucking look at him, and it was honestly even though it made me pop at the time, it was Fonzie being like, I'm just gonna glue him up and put him back together, Daddy. Like that. That well, he need... become Dusty Rhodes he, now. He is all voices. <laughs> look, He'll Joe. Be Vince Russo next. If I do an actual Fonzie voice, I'll have no voice, yeah. and also there'll be a fucking whistle on this podcast. Do you want uh, that? No I I can do a that. real great Fonzie impression right now and make no one listen to the show ever again <laughs> if you want to. But like it made it feel like. Like, yeah, Sabu had been dehumanized by his career mm. and by his industry. Yeah. And I don't want to say through no fault of his own because he was, I feel like, a willing participant in it. But, you know, I got the wrestler vibes here a little bit. Yes, definitely. You know, there was kind of a sadness to what I was seeing with Sabu at this point. Mm. I'm not going to lie. It made it incredibly, you know, unmissable in my eyes. Yeah, it made me very thrilling. invested. It was thrilling in a very strange way. A chairs have been thrown around a plenty here. It is Sabu's trademark, but they are abundant in this match. There's a bit where Bill Alfonso tries to do a chair shot to Taz and Taz just like turns around and looks at him and just starts walking over to him and Bill Alfonso legs it. it. It's so scary. Taz so just walking. It's brilliant. Like, like those he two, looks yeah. like if you spill your pint on a, the scariest guy in the pub. And, and pe- the, people stop going, yeah. oh, because this lad's already walking. There's just like a hush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is like, it's kind of scary, like when you have this realization that Fonzie, far being from the like kind of Frankenstein, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, he's sending out the monster. Now he's concerned. He's actually trying to throw in the towel. Like yeah. he wants to stop what Taz is doing. And there's a part of it, like, you know, the commentators, like Joey Styles, is like, ah, he's just. He's worried about his meal ticket. That's all it is. But like, he's almost in tears. And he's like, I think there's a part of it here where it's easy for Bill Alfonso to get himself in that headspace because he's the one who's taping this fucker back up together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the only thing he know he's been told to do, the only th- time that Sabu will sell it is that, that he messes with the hair because the hair is money, brother. Yeah. You know, that's what he's told to do. The Jesus. crowd here for this match is interesting because earlier on, the crowd was so hot. Mm. But at this point in the match, they're dead. I think they've lost them a bit here. I don't know. Yeah, is that it? Is it, is it a case that they've lost them? In which case, how? Or is it a case that the crowd have so invested, they're like sitting there with their, you know, their hands well, together, like looking intently? Well, that's why I, mean, I guess, you know, I say lost them in terms of making noise because mm. I think that they pulled that sympathy switch here. And this is honestly one of the first times I can remember them being like, hey, Sabu, come on now. That's mm. some of the only times I could think of a match where they have presented him in this sympathetic light. And I think it has made fans go a little bit, ooh. Because this is the point where his jaw's at him again. And mm. the blood is pooling out over the bandage. Yeah. You know, he's clenching his teeth when he's putting Taz in that camel clutch. You know, in tribute to his uncle. And that it's blood is horrible. pouring out. Seeing Hot red a, blood. Seeing a jaw bleed. It's just like, not supposed to happen. It's so gross. Yeah, and of course, you know, this comes to the point in the match. Taz starts to sell a little bit. You know, he does take a few spots. And I was worried this thing's the point in the match where... Sabu taking so much offense, I was thinking he's just going to get beaten pillar to post and Taz isn't going to sell his shit and that'll be the end of the feud. Yeah. But, you know, Taz, he takes the big Hurricane Rana off the top rope, you know. He takes the uh, the Arabian he takes the Arabian face buster. There's not enough room, so there's a big old splash. 
We go to the outside onto the corner onto the rails and there's a table set up there and he splashes through that. It's some nasty spots for both men. And then we finally get to see one of Sabu's most beautiful moves. This was an innovative one. The triple jump moonsault. And he did it beautifully. That's where he sets the table up in the middle of the ring and he runs, jumps off the table, onto the ropes and then off the ropes in a beautiful moonsault. So good. It's one of the most perfect things in wrestling. Yeah. And it's probably one of his most missed moves as well. The triple jump is scary because a lot of things can go wrong. Mm. And it's easy to forget that because wrestlers nowadays do that spot quite frequently. Yeah. Like certain wrestlers I'll use the ropes. Have that like double jump though, yeah, like yeah. from one ropes to the other ropes. Like that happens in AEW, like I would say on a monthly basis. I'd say almost every other match. <laughs> yeah, I mean you watch it more often than I do, so yeah. And I think because these wrestlers now who do it are so rehearsed and they have so much practice behind them that it makes it look easy mm. but it isn't it's hard and the fact that they don't manage to do it flawlessly is very impressive and if you're doing it in modern times as well you're doing it in a wrestling ring that has been designed with people using the ropes for leverage and for bouncing you know and balancing on yeah, that wouldn't have been the case in the 90s with Sabu. Absolutely, no. You know? Because when Sabu would have been wrestling, the ropes would have been loose enough so that you could run them more easily. And you could see, like, in some of the early ECW clips where he's bouncing off stuff and, like, he's, he's going on the middle rope and that rope goes right down and touches the ring apron. Yeah. It's fucking mad. You can't balance on something that's not taught. Even little things. Like, I remember there was um, AJ Styles did an interview and he was like, you know, this was like 2007 or 2008 he had mentioned. And he goes, it's before they would have been wiping the ropes down between every match. And the idea, like, you know, of course you see it at indie shows all the time, yeah. or any wrestling show, in between a match, wipe guy comes over, wipe it with a towel, make sure yeah. there's no sweat in the ropes. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the amount of times Sabu was like, ah, and it's like, well, it's probably just a fucking DCW arena. You can see the, you can taste yeah. the fucking BO in the air, lads. Absolutely, yeah. It's so wet in here. Yeah, yeah. you're going to fucking slip. But the triple jump moonsault is a thing of beauty. Sabu, however, starts eating these suplexes every which way. And he's shown you the, like, the flexibility he has here. He gets bent over backwards, dragging suplex through the table in the corner. You have some amazing submission moves here from Taz. Yeah. Taz like, is... is he's, picture perfect. He knows what he's doing, yeah. And like for two guys who apparently didn't get on with each other, I think this is the night maybe Taz realised that Sabu was a lot more of a willing participant yeah. than the guy he was talking to in his own head. <laughs> And literally, Joe was here saying, throw in the towel, please. Please throw in the towel. And Fonzie's like, I got you, daddy. <laughs> and he throws in the towel. Doesn't mean anything, though. But Taz throws out the towel. He's like, fuck that towel. And then he puts Sabu in the Taz mission. Taz and wins. wins. <laughs> like, Sabu was like, clawing. He wanted the towel out yeah. of there as well. He didn't want that. And he, he gets finally put down in the submission. He passes out as well. And Sabu and Taz have... The most hyper-masculine, post-match, nice but toxic embrace. Like, this is this could only have happened in 1999 between Taz and Sabu, where it's like, shake my hand, brother, and some of the crowd's like, that's fucking gay. He's like, shut the fuck up, I'll go in there and I'll kill you. It ain't gay for two men to shake hands. I love him like a brother. Shut up, it's not gay. Like, they are so guarded yeah taz, just, just shaking hands shaking hands and taz is like ridiculous taz is like he's, he's challenging him to like the final match in the series he's so intense he's like get up on your fucking legs right now sabu stand up like a man you shake my fucking hand or i'll never trust you again and sabu goes to shake his hand and there's a big spike in it going yeah <laughs> just 
to shake their hand. Like, I felt like a teacher with two fucking rowdy boys. Get them both by the ear. Yeah, like, you're covered in fucking shite. Go and shake your hands. Go home and wash. Yeah. Like, good lord. <laughs> it was an emotional roller coaster. this one. Yeah. It, it took me every which way. It yeah. was It was crazy. I mean... You were calling for towels to be thrown in, so I figured you had a response to it. <laughs> I like this match a lot. I would have given it a four and a half stars, which, you know, is a high rating for me in That's the ECW high. as yeah. well. For Taz, no less. For Taz, no less. And and Taz deserves solid half of those ratings because he put on a spectacular show here. He really did. My only issue is this match went on too long. And yeah. I think that's part of the reason the crowd kind of fell out with it as well mm. is that they expected it to do one thing and it did but not as quickly as they wanted or expected you could have shaved five minutes off of yeah. this and just kind of condensed it a bit more and i think people would say this is one of the greatest matches like yeah because you know? i can't even tell you what it was about the match that filled up so much time unnecessarily i think it's like a lot of the, the busy work of like you know fall into the crowd getting up throwing them into the crowd getting yeah. up you know there's a lot of that crowd brawling stuff as well at the start where you know what a difference four years makes because the crowd were all like they couldn't fucking move you know there yeah. were so many people there and that that for me always is a time wasted element i yeah. feel like i feel like i'm not as a viewer at you know at That's home true. getting that and unlike the crowd brawling between sabu and cactus jack uh, and I feel bad even saying this because I know the people involved are very self-conscious about this, but Taz and Sabu are quite short and it is hard to see them do crowd brawling when there's that many people because yeah. they're just lost in a sea of taller men. And also when you have guys like that, hardcore legend dudes going to the crowd in ECW and I see like people be like, <laughs> and, like rubbing their heads and yeah. stuff. That like kills the gimmick for me. Yeah, does, I, like, yeah. you know, they won't be doing that in FMW because people be too scared, yeah, you exactly. know, whereas in ECW it's almost like seems a funny thing to be like, ha ha ha, you know, and they kind of mm-hmm. not treat it as seriously. But, like, don't believe the hype, folks. I've watched so many documentaries and read books and shoot interviews and interviews and lists and all that and the other, and everyone is like, Sabu and, and Taz, Barely Legal 97, the classic. Fuck that match. This is, if there yeah. is a classic between these two, it's this. Yeah. You know? Shake my hand and he's got a fucking railroad yeah, spike. that's great. That's, that's ECW in a nutshell there, folks. So, yeah, I, I liked this a lot. I gave it four stars. Nice. Very good. But, yeah, this is I think this is my favourite ECW match I've ever seen. How well, about that? Other than John Cena versus Rob Van Dam. Ah, well, well, that got the WWE moniker in there, yeah, perhaps. True. So, yeah, true. I'm very glad you like <laughs> this. Fan. Very, very glad. Now, around this time, you know, ECW, it goes under, but, like, you know, Sabu is long since not involved in the company by the time it does go under. So, you know, him leaving ECW is your typical type of thing, you know, he he kind of hears that the company is end, you know, ended from other people. He's not been booked there for a while. He kind of feels like, you know, Japan is where he's going to go and make his money. Him and Polly, I don't think the trust was ever really regained there uh, at the end of that. Well, I mean, he... <laughs> He's really pissy about one thing in particular, which is when ECW goes to bankruptcy court and they have to list all the creditors that they're owed. And, you know, it's like a claim, or, you know, the, the THQ, they're owed loads of money. Vince McMahon's owed, like, you know, 600 grand or whatever. You know, Rob Van Dam's owed six figures. Tommy Dreamer, six figures. And loads of guys are owed six figures. And Sabu is one of those lads who, he's owed a fair bit of money. At least, you know, approaching six figures, if not way more than that. And he's listed on the official ECW bankruptcy hearings as being owed $2. What? Yeah, that's what what he listed as. Why? Well, that's what Heyman's book said that he was owed. That's what the accountant said. You're only owed $2. We'll get that to you at some point, I'm sure. I don't understand how that can be the case. 
mean, Sabu thinks it's a massive rib on him or something like that. They're like, ah, this guy thinks he's owed all this money, but there's nothing in writing, so $2, that's what you're owed. Don't work on a handshake, folks. That's all I'll say. Get it all in but writing. I don't understand why, because like, you know, that's not like he's not the only person in ECW who would have gone on a handshake deal. Lots of other people would have done too. Like Taz would have been on a handshake yeah. deal, probably. Well, no, Taz would have been owed money as well, as far as I mean. But like, he wouldn't have been disrespected with two dollars. I, I don't know. I, I think it's like it's either a really unfortunate accounting oversight and just shows you how sloppy the books were in ECW, and I can't imagine that it was kept very, very, you know true to life let's just mm. say but two dollars two dollars that just feels That's like a fuck year like specific yeah yeah so he, like you, you, know. you could more understand them not paying him anything than paying him two dollars like that's yeah. not even worth the paper you're writing it on and you know and around this time he's he's finding himself some ground in ecw he's finding himself some time in tna difficulties in tna with you know lots of people changing over different bookers all having different impressions of him so he gets this like very long feud with raven that's built up about you know oh, students of the sheik who promised they would never fight finally coming to blows it was honestly the only thing in his book that he spoke about as a storyline that he actually seemed to enjoy because it okay. paid homage to his uncle but you know people change hands and, you know by the time that they're meant to blow off the feud they're like ah no nah, raven's not a big deal anymore so they kind of just forget about it like, I remember my real early memories of Sabu formative and not just kind of old whispers and seeing random stuff. I would have been watching him on TNA in, like, 2004. I remember seeing him in Samoa Joe. Cool. And it being like, oh, you know, Joe was undefeatable, you know, at the time. He couldn't be put away. He was the, the, the Ring of Honor legend who had come in and hadn't been pinned. So, like, we have to find someone who could do it. And here comes Sabu. And he was all covered in bandages and wrapped up and all that. Which would become, you know, more and more the gimmick, you know. He'd lean into it. Like, I have to tape myself up. He'd see me covered in tape. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, it's the gimmick, like. And they're like, Sabu, he nearly severed his fingertip in his last match. I'm like, awesome, great world building, guys. <laughs> you know, reading the book, and he's like, yeah, literally the night before, my finger fell off in a match. <laughs> and I'm wrestling in a cage match with Samoa <laughs> Joe, where you have to grab onto the cage. Broken forearm, ribs messed up. You know, just... Uh, the old 05 is when he had his first time where he went to hospital and it was like they had to have a fundraiser because it's like hey guys sabu is like he's in such bad shape you know issues with his neck and his back his hips did they need to do like fundraisers and it was always nice that the wrestling world on more than a few occasions has come around with gofundme or mm. running shows even like running shows and sabu's like don't run the show please i don't want you to run the show i don't like the idea of people doing charity for me but rob van dam be like hey come on let's all save sabu and you know they have helped him out yeah. then a nice thing happens when ECW is being put together for the One Night Stand reunion show. I don't know if it's because he felt guilty or anything like that, but Heyman has the list of people he wants and Sabu's on that list. And he rings up Sabu like in a hurry one day and he's like, you're about to get a call from Vince McMahon in the WWE. Tell them you won't do it for anything less than $50,000. I know they will pay you $50,000. You are worth $50,000. Just be adamant. You have to ask for $50,000. And he's like, what? And he brings rings him up and he's like, you know, how much do you want? And he's like, uh, $50,000? I think it's, 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 it's big payday anyway, yeah. you know, or, or in that ballpark. And he's like, yep, yeah, fine, grand. He gets to go in, do his spot, you know, in front of a WWE audience for the first time. He works like the other reunion shows. And the ECW nostalgia would be a really good source of kind of revenue for him. Because there was always like reunion shows, TNA did reunion shows, all that stuff. So, you know, it goes well, gets back in 06. They're relaunching ECW as a brand. Heyman is again speaking his praises, saying he's someone that he wants. And it turns out 
Guess who's been a fan of Sabu all this time and really actually wants to bring him in? Who's that? Vince McMahon. Really? Since back in 97, he's like, he's got Vince something. Vince McMahon has seen a Sabu match? Yeah, he watched it on the monitor on Raw back in 97. So he thinks he has something. And whatever this ECW thing is going to be. It's so funny. You'd think he's everything Vince hates. I think we mentioned before, in the, it would have been the ECW episode, that Vince, it was like Balls Mahoney and the, remember the Sandman as well. Vince was also like, yeah. It's just like when there were gimmicks that he thought that fit with whatever he thought ECW yeah. was or he could market it as. And one of the first things he said to Sabu was, I want you to be the Hulk Hogan of this ECW. And of course, Sabu, who, you know, at this point, you know, he's he's getting on a little bit. And I think being the quiet guy who isn't good at communicating, he's pretty much bad tempered at this point yeah. or just doesn't know how to act. He says in shoot interviews and in his book that he had a bad habit of like saying stuff out loud that he was just thinking in his head. Oh. So Vince is like, all like fucking smiles. Like, I want you to be the, uh, the Hulk Hogan of WWE CW, pal. And he's like, fuck no, I don't want to do that. What's that shit? You know, and he would say stuff like that. <laughs> Legend. You know, and Vince would, Vince would be like, what? Fucking balls. I showed you like one of the first things that Sabu did when he was part of the roster and it was run in on John Cena and do the big dive off the ropes, big leg drop through the announce table, like legendary stuff, like proper, like, all right, Sabu, time to knock it out of the park. And Vince is walking it through him and he's like, I don't know now, Sabu, you know, this is a big, big dive to take. And, you know, I remember trying to take a dive like this before and it was, you know, it was really hard. (laughs) So if I can't do it, no one can. Because I am the greatest wrestler. (laughs) Sabu's been told now by Rob and by Vince, you know, what's the classic thing we heard about? You want to be, you want to get on with Vince to get a push? Personal relationship. Mm. So he thinks, I'll make him laugh. You know, that's how I'll show him my sense of humor will become friends and as soon as Vince is like concerned and like I know I tried to do this before Sabu and it was difficult he bursts out laughing and goes yeah that was your ass though I'll be fine and, <laughs> and he just walks away thinking in his head nailed it Aww. yes done it grand the thing is though on some level that could work with Vince I feel on some level depending on his mood that could impress him mm. that type of attitude because he i don't think vince genuinely thinks he's a great wrestler yes but when vince thinks it's fuck it okay that's one thing but when vince takes it as fuck you vince, yeah and i think true. that's what he thought it's like here comes this guy coming in and ecw all guys always got the rap of being like oh the outsiders they don't have to do business and he's given them reasons to believe those kind of silly rumors i guess yeah but it's big business for him. He's brought in to be a top guy. And, you know, at the ECW One Night Stand, second pay-per-view, he wrestles Rey Mysterio for the world title. He's put over by Heyman constantly as being, you know, this this legend come to life. They would, and I liked as well that they would talk about, you know, his scars, the reason this man looks like yeah. this. They were explaining him to the audience. And I thought, you know, well, maybe this ECW revamp might go all great, but Sabu, he'll get over, right? Everything seems like it's coming up big time for Sabu. And who's he going to face? When I listed this match for Joe on the website, I think you thought that I was taking the piss. I did. It's from Vengeance 2006 from the Yes It Happens. So check it out now, folks. Files. It's Sabu versus John Cena. Oh, yeah. Dream match. Yeah, I did not expect this match to exist. This feels like fantasy booking. <laughs> and it is. And it of... feels like fantasy booking for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, you love John Cena. You're a big fan. I love John Cena. And it felt like just as we were at the point in our discussions where we were you know, ready to kind of, you know, really appreciate Sabu, here I am presenting him in this dream match scenario. And yeah. I thought, yeah, this will be, be a fun day at the office, you know? I mean, 
a clash of styles, I think we can agree on, first and foremost. Absolutely. Although I would love to see John Cena wrestle Sabu's style. <laughs> I didn't get all of it. <laughs> it is very weird watching this WWE version of ECW during this point where they're trying to push it hard. And the main thing they have going for it with the guys in the backstage, because it is an extreme lumberjack match, folks, here, surrounded by members of Raw and ECW. These are just lads who like to chant letters. Yes. They came across like idiots in this segment, I thought. Yes. ECW, RPD, ECW, ECW. And then then Paul's like, and what other letters do we chant? OBC, OBC. Fucking ridiculous. Paul is radiating, now has an office in Stamford, Connecticut energy here. Oh my God. This is ridiculous. It's... He... Is like a man possessed by the spirit of corporations. <laughs> he's like he's got the hat on. He's him. got the hat. So he's he's playing the same character yeah, technically. It's meant to be Polly dangerously. Polly dangerously, yeah. but my god, he acts so differently. It's it's really interesting seeing it because like he has basically taken the Jew of you know Paulie dangerously the character and gone okay but what if he was a corporate guy also i am also a corporate guy yeah, in real life, life like, yeah. yeah so he is kind of like he was always slimy but he's kind of more corporate slime bag here yeah, like a bit more professional but also because of that he's like even more manipulative seeming yeah he's more close to real life paul Heyman than i think some yeah. of his other iterations were in the past <laughs> now it's amazing you paid any attention to this bit in the backstage area with the ecw guys hyping up the the match with sabu and john because all your eyes were on the sandman who was a very watchable figure in this segment yeah so they're doing this this segment um where they're all like I can't remember if they're all looking in the camera or they're all looking towards the camera. But at the very back, you've got the Sandman with his kendo stick. And he's breathing really heavily. And he's gurning his face. And, like, kind of moving his body all around. And it honestly looks like he's holding his kendo stick like a massive hard-on. And he's kind of like... Well, getting all gross. We've been there with the big cane, little cane talk before with the Sandman, so let's yeah. not revisit that for now. Now, there is something here that had happened. It's in the hype up package between Cena and Sabu. I love this video package. I think they do a really good job of like using old footage of Sabu to make it seem like John Cena is facing something that he's not prepared for. It's a whole other world of wrestling that he's been protected from his whole life. But Sabu, he writes in his book, he's fucking heartbroken by this. He spoke. What, 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 when did he speak? They had John Cena challenge him and he just went, deal. Oh, I didn't even catch that. I know, that. you blink and you'll miss it. I thought he just made a sound. I thought he just went, yeah, <laughs> he, he was like, oh, I thought I betrayed the Sheik. I thought I let him down. Yeah, there was I can w- see that. Yeah. One other time, I think he had a match with Big Show at SummerSlam and they had him do a backstage promo where he's like, I'm Sabu. Oh. I'm homicidal. Oh no! Suicidal. No, no, and no, genocidal. no, no. And that was pretty much it. Like it's like Bobby Lashley being like, "Hello, I'm the Almighty." Yeah, no, you get him over with the Almighty diss rap. That's how you get it over, all right? <laughs> so yeah, Sabu's kind of already. You could tell even with this like high profile, big money match. I mean, he's doing probably the best business of his career, biggest contract he's ever signed. You know, he'd never gotten the big money anywhere really. He got onto the video game, which he said was the biggest payday he ever got in wrestling, being on that video game, wow. which is amazing. They put in the triple jump moonsault and everything oh. for him. Good stuff. 
of course, Sabu being Sabu thought that it was some sort of a conspiracy. He's like, yeah, those later games that came out, they put in the parts to make me so that they couldn't have to pay me anymore. And it's like, you don't know how creative wrestlers work, yeah. Sabu. It is not a fucking, it's not a conspiracy to get you. Don't worry. No. Like. I bet he's not the only wrestler who believes that. But, you know, he, he spoke highly of John. Anytime he's spoken of him, he said, really good worker. Knew yeah. exactly what he's doing. He was very open to doing whatever I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, he kind of didn't gel with him in the sense that he, you know, I think there was a, a spot they did in the build-up to it, and John was like, hey, that was some pretty good stuff out there, champ. And Sabu was unhappy with it, and again, voice in the head comes out loud going, that was the fucking shits, and he walks off. You know, Again, it's, it's always the say something and leave. Yeah. You're you better off not saying anything at all like in those situations. Mm. But, you know, this is a match here where we've got the Lumberjacks of ECW, and then we have the stars of Monday Night Raw coming out. What a collection of humanity. Literally nobodies plus Viscera. <laughs> viscera isn't a nobody. I know Viscera. Everyone was wearing pants as well. They all were dressed the same. Yeah. I did like JR and King like trying to you know, put it over but also bury ECW. Mm. Jim Ross is like, King, I think these guys have spent more time on parole than payroll. I'm like, that's actually definitely true for a lot of these guys, I would say. It was ridiculous though that all the ECW lumberjacks were the, the coolest guys from ECW and then the Raw team were just like, just like jobbers. Yeah. It's crazy. I think all the ECW guys came across like much bigger stars. Like, they all seemed like they had characters, I think. Oh, see, now I felt like definitely they all felt like they had they're characters. They were trying to do something like. It made me feel like they weren't as big a deal. Oh, because cause... they were the equivalent of yeah. these other guys, I see. Yeah, Sandman being out there was a bit like. If, I, I did like that they incorporated him into it. Like, hmm. early on, you know, he's hitting Cena with the cane and stuff like that. And for me, I always thought there would have been big money. You know, it's kind of the BWO teaming up to beat up uh, JBL. I like the idea of you know, ECW guys teaming up to beat up Big Match John. I mm. thought that would have been really fun. But, you know, John does beat up Sabu quite a lot at the start of yes. this match, as you would expect. Everyone is booed to some degree as well. John is booed by the fans. Sabu yep. is booed by the WWE non-ECW fans. Mm-hmm. It is kind of an odd mix. And, like, JR and King seem to hate everyone except John Cena, who they claim has a hard hat blue-collar mentality. Okay. What does that mean? Hmm. Hard hat. I mean, blue collar. I get hard hat. Does that not just add on to the blue collar? I think so. You you wear a hard hat with your blue collar. Yeah. Like, I guess it's part your of the work deal. Uniform. He was working with a big old shiner. There was uh, was John yeah, Cena. Yeah, horrid black eye. Can I can I say if it may be off my uh, off uh, off of my brief to say so, but can I declare Sabu a hunk here? Oh, absolutely. With a few years on him yeah. here now. So Sabu is interesting for me as a hunk because much like Bret Hart, I didn't see his appeal until we started researching the episode. I actually mm. thought Sabu was a kind of yeah, you know, absolutely no offense meant to him. I thought he was quite a weird looking man to be honest and i think that's partly because he hides behind his hair he, he hides holds behind himself, the headdress yeah. yeah he's kind of hunched over you don't really see the best of his features most of the mm. time and also because a lot of the ecw matches i had seen were very low quality yeah, very yeah. dark but having gotten to see him do shoot interviews like kind of current day and as well as seeing a few more like just bits of him in better lit rooms and pictures of him as a child he's gorgeous he's got the most gorgeous eyes he's very handsome it's all about that strong chin for me but oh, absolutely yes. i mean i don't know how much credit he deserves for the strong chin given that it's probably designed by a surgeon but <laughs> it, yeah no he's he's absolutely a hunk and the other thing i want to mention is sabu's body he is just i think he has the most beautiful body in wrestling and i do mean beautiful the scars he has i genuinely find them 
gorgeous to look at. I think they are beautiful. I think they re- like they are art. He, he to has me. very aesthetically pleasing scarring. They really are. Like, they look designed. Yeah, no, if, like if you were playing a wrestling game, yeah. and like actually, it's really funny. I do remember a bunch of like WrestleMania 2000 stuff like that. His scars were in as a preset, and I used to always remember as a. And being like eight or nine playing WrestleMania 2000, seeing the big chest scar going, is that like what? Is that meant to be like Sagat from Street Fighter? And it's like, no, it's fucking Sabu from real life. Yeah. You know, someone had those scars. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a look that will never be repeated in wrestling. And I'm glad for that yeah. because it's horrible. But genuinely, he looks fucking amazing. For sure. And like, it's just fantastic look. Yeah, and he just has this kind of... I know there's this kind of veteran glow about him here. Mm. Like, you know, I thought I was being really worried when I was a, you know, a youngster watching this match thinking, oh no, my man's going to look tiny compared because John's so big. Yeah. But like, even though John's bigger than him, John's got this big black eye. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, he treats him like he's a little bit scared. The one thing I don't like about it is because he's just a little bit too young. John roughs up Sabu in a way that it's like, hmm. If you were in there with Triple H, you would be kicking him full force in the face like you did here. No. Like, there's a kind of like, uh, they love this. Yeah, definitely. I think that happened with Mick Foley as well, where there were people who were like, kind of worked themselves. They believed the hype of the announcers and like, oh, yeah, yeah he looked, no, no one likes that, actually. No, you exactly. Know? I think that's a convenient thing from people like Vince McMahon to yeah. justify their actions. Mm. There's a moment on commentary where Jerry Lawler goes, yeah, look at that black eye. And Jim Ross goes, yeah, look at those beautiful blue eyes oh sweet isn't it before jim ross liked teeth in AEW, yeah. he liked eyes on monday night raw do you think <laughs> jr is the only commentator at this time who would ever compliment a wrestler's appearance in not in a type of look at those muscles but in something a bit more human i mean i know that joey styles who would have been commentating around this time as well it would have been one of his calling cards back in ecw where he if someone had like cut fat and put on you know yeah, but I'm muscle saying mass not that though but i'm he, saying mm. more average like you know just like someone's eyes or nah no nah, no one be doing that See, I, I think it's I don't still think so. i think it's still missing from wrestling and yeah. other than jim ross who sometimes does it too much maybe william regal maybe he'll be our man to talk about yeah. look at the kindness of his eyes <laughs> look at the flowing of his hair man in the mask look at the eyes <laughs> <laughs> Something that Sabu did as well with the innovation of the chairs. It's something that Rob did also. I love it. I, I could watch it for a month of Sundays. The chair being thrown. Mm. And he does one here to John where he just kind of... It's like he still carries his own momentum. He throws the chair and he like crowns John. It, like it opens up the chair. Just yeah. lays on his head. Turns, turns into like a necklace. <laughs> it's incredible. I love... And I don't know about you... <laughs> No one should be doing chair shots to the head anymore. But it seems to be the toss of the chair mm. and holding your hands up and it kind of clattering and falling around. Yeah. I know there's probably a smaller margin for success and it not you know hitting someone in the edge or whatever. Mm. But it feels like it's altogether safer than someone swinging for the fences with a chair as hard as they can. Yeah, when you think about it as well, when you're the momentum, throwing, yeah. a, when you're like hitting someone with a chair, you are increasing the momentum. You're adding your own yeah, force onto it. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas like just throwing something, it's just kind of, it's the existing momentum. It is interesting, like the way he throws the chair, it's almost like, you know, Sheik would have thrown the fireball. It's kind yeah. of like, and he kind of tosses it, it kind of floats and it goes bang, it hits yeah. you right in the head and you sell it like, you know? And I think as well, the fact that wrestlers then have time to see it coming, it's going to be slower to make impact than if yes. it's being used as a weapon. Um, I think of like Eddie Guerrero throwing mm. chairs and their opponents catching it being like, oh no, I've yeah, been yeah, caught yeah. type thing. <laughs> so like, yeah, I don't know. Some really inventive, cool stuff here. If you think it's just your standard, I've seen it comes in, squashes the guy. I mean, we get the triple jump on John. 
great moment where John is laid out on the table outside and you think, right, he's going to, you know, Sabu's going to come off the top rope, he's going to dive, he's running full momentum. And I swear to God, it's so unsafe, it's at the last possible second, it's so late. Cena grabs Sam Man's cane, gets off the table and mashes him right in the face with the Singapore cane. Oh my God, that's so cool. So cool, really brilliant. And again, more that kind of rough and tumble, we don't really care about looking after Sabu. He's meant to be given the FU and then Cena sees the table outside and no one thinks, let's move the table into somewhere that's a little bit more forgiving. Mm. Instead, Sebu gets the FU to the outside of the ring and he lands right on the only part of that table that's going to give you fucking difficulty. Mm. Right on the edge where the fucking leg is and he right on his fucking hip he lands as well. It's rough fucking rough spot. You know, really rough. But again... You know, he's in there, he's in the STF, Cena picks up the win. I don't think Sabu, this is this was anything other than what he was expected to deliver. Mm. And I think it's it's not the all singing, all dancing ECW comes and kills horrible John Cena. But Sabu gets featured here in a way that like I didn't remember it being this generous to him. I yeah. was I was watching this match kinda of going, This is me showing you how WWE hated Sabu. Mm. It felt like this was John Cena being like with full of nervous energy getting to have a go on Sabu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to turn on Sabu. Definitely a chaotic match. Yeah, and... all the people at ringside is very distracting. Yeah. It, sometimes it works, sometimes it's like, Viscera is the guy who saves John Cena in the yeah. end. It's a bit weird. <laughs> and I don't feel the chaos for this match is entirely at Sabu's feet because John Cena at this point in his career is also a bit clubbersome I want to say as a, a new word I've just invented that's a very dusty rose word he'd be yeah. clubbersome if I yeah. had to call him Tony Schiavone <laughs> um, and that kind of chaotic rough housing uh, accidental style yeah. I gave it four stars out of five I did really like it and there were some great spots very rare that you can watch a wrestling match where it feels like two different worlds colliding you know Yeah. and given that this is in a WWE arena with crowd is wwe it's not an ecw hotbed you know jr and king are being wwe announcers it is amazing how much this feels like kind of a proper crossover yeah you know this is like honestly the vibe i got from this match it felt like the vibe i got at points during forbidden door for aew new japan mm. where it's like okay i don't know you understand both these worlds perfectly but it feels like there's a crossover element happening here that we don't normally see and like I was full of excitement because I remember like he was going to be one of the top guys in ECW. It felt like he was being mm. positioned as such. Paul wanted him as his guy. So you know I was kind of um, I was on the hype train for Sabu because he was someone you know I knew about that I'd seen a bit of. Now seeing him every week on my TV show, I was really excited. I thought you know we said the Rob. He wanted to know how excited Kevin was. Listen to the Rob Van Dam episode. <laughs> you want to know how disappointed I was? Listen to the Rob Van Dam episode. Do you remember what happened with these two guys? How they derailed. The successful push, the summer of love in 2006. No, I've forgotten. They both got pulled over while... Oh, no, I do remember. Sabu was with Rob. Rob was the WWE champion and the ECW champion. Pulled over by a cop. They had a a lot of pot on them. They toss it out. They have their own special spray, which is apparently designed to get rid of it. Like, what's funny about it is hearing Rob's recount of it and how, like, oh my god, we were so stupid. It was we were fucked. We were fucking absolutely done for. And Sabu tells the story like we got away with it. We're this close. You know, like they throw out some, not all of the weeds. They've got like hash pipes that they'd be given by a fan at the show. They've just been at. They spray the spray. 
they drive on from uh, before they pull over. Which, before they pull over, which I imagine is going to be even more fucking yeah. dodgy for the cop. And the cop's like, "Hey, where are you guys coming from? Like, we're wrestlers. I'm Rob Van Dam. The, the, you know, remember me from Raw, I'm the world champion." And he's like, "Oh yeah, I know you." Uh, any reason why you're driving without a shirt, sir? Why does the car smell so much like marijuana? <laughs> and that's the end of that story. And the only sweet addendum I can add to it was that when they showed up at TV the next time, and Rob was already like, you know, you're going to be suspended, you're going to lose on Raw, you're going to lose the title, the WWE title, then you're going to lose the ECW title the next night on, on ECW. And Sabu felt like he had fucked over his, his best friend. He'd fucked over... You know, in his mind, like one of the, the uh, he's fucking over the Sheik here as well, because Rob is part of Sheik's legacy as far as he's concerned. Mm. He treats that very, very seriously. So he goes up to Vince and he goes up to all the agents and he's like, hey, you know, I'm happy to take the fall for this. Uh, if you need to publicly fire someone or chastise someone or suspend someone without pay, do it to me. Rob's got his, you know, he knew this is Rob's moment. He's like, Rob's got the momentum. Like, keep it going and I'm fine. And like, it's so funny when the agents is like, that's really nice of you to, to, to offer that, Sabu. But the thing is, what with the police having been there and have a sworn statement that's now been submitted to a court, you probably saying it was all you now won't yeah. really stand. So thanks, but no thanks. And Sabu is still on TV. He feuds with the big show for a bit. When Paul leaves ECW, it's kind of like it's Sabu's time is up. But there was nothing but bad stories at the time. He forgot his pants to one show. He had to, oh, no. he had to take Davari's pants. Oh, you know, had no. similar trousers to him. And there's one story which really exemplifies kind of how Vince viewed him at that point. And the idea was that Sabu was going to stand in the ring, stand on a chair and demand an ECW title shot. And then out come Paul Heyman. He'd cut a promo about how he didn't deserve one and Big Show was the champion now. And then Sabu was to wait till the end of the promo, count to 10 and then dive on top of everyone, like off the chair. Mm. And Sabu's standing on the chair. Paul comes out and the promo's going to be like two minutes. Seven minutes later, Paul's still talking. Mm. And Sabu notices the chair is actually sinking into the mat at this point. So he's like, fuck it. I'm not going to, like, if I fall off the chair, this angle is fucking ruined. Like, this promotion is ruined. So he just fucking dives off onto everyone in the middle of the promo. Wow. And he comes backstage. And what did Vince McMahon say? You can't even count to fucking 10 for me. Oh, my God. It's the last time he ever spoke to him, apparently, about a match. Oh. I think there was one other time, actually, which was she got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Sabu and Rob Van Dammer say, like, hey, you want to induct Sheik into the Hall of Fame? Give a nice speech. And like, yeah, great, fabulous. And Sabu's like, I don't want to do it. You know, I don't, I don't want to speak. I'll be there, but I won't speak. Yeah. And Vince gets wind of it. And he's like, if you go up there and you don't speak, like, consider yourself done. Like, mm. you have to speak. I'm not putting you up here. Like, I'm not putting your uncle into the Hall of Fame unless you oh, go up there. Nice. It's more about us seeing that you and Rob can talk as is about your uncle going into the Hall of Fame. Like, yeah. really laying it out. And Rob goes and does the whole speech. And then Sabu just says, thank you, everyone. You know, it literally yeah, says, that's it. That's all. Minimum. You know nuclear heat next night he loses to a mag in like you know 10 seconds on raw type of a thing so he's released back to the the king of the independence as he says but you know being on the independence he writes in his book like it's this great thing ah, i make my own hours i can go where i want to usually where he goes to is within a you know he lives in nearby new jersey and philly and all that stuff so it's all the old kind of ecw shows he works you know for xp remember he worked for xpw back in the day which is that place that was run by the guy who made all the horrible rape porn uh, rob black like he's worked in some really awful places mm. and you work in bad places you work with bad people and you're not a particularly great person yourself in some of these situations then you know he gets a reputation and it's bad i think i was telling you about the show he was at that was run by satanists where the headlines came out in tmz that sabu had sacrificed an animal in a satanic ceremony 
and there was blood and shit all over the room because he had shit himself and he had bled everywhere. Right. Because he cut, killed the dog and cut himself for oh the satanic God. ritual. Now, um, I'm sure you do an episode of Satanists at some point for Subcultured, I'm sure. Yeah, we actually were talking about this only the other week. We were thinking about doing that. But uh, whatever you think you know about Satanists, check it out the door, folks, because Satanists are a much different group to what you might think. Kevin, I've only recently learned that the Satanists aren't affiliated with the Satanic Temple. It's a whole other So I've game. been learning about that and it's all confusing and everything. But anyway, that's the Satanist part of the story taken yeah, care yeah. of. Uh, Sabu, he's got his little dog with him that he takes everywhere, a little chihuahua, Aww. which he calls his baby and he loves Aww. very much. And it's also a shit machine. It shits everywhere. Dogs are. So Sabu literally comes to the hotel room after his match. He's bleeding, surprisingly, because he bleeds all the time. Mm. He drops blood all over the carpet, all over the shower, all over the towels. Dog shits everywhere. He leaves the hotel room the next morning, doesn't clean up after himself. Uh. The promoter comes in, gets in trouble. And so the promoter releases a statement saying that Sabu is killing animals and smearing shit all over himself. So, like, I felt bad for him, but also, like, you... Honestly, you put yourself in these situations. Yeah. But like, there was a time where it's like, it was a real bad one that got a lot of airtime and a lot of people talking about it. It was like, it was Extreme Rising on one of these other reunion shows. They were like, we're doing autographs at nine in the morning. As if any ECW fans going to be up at nine in the morning to get a fucking autograph. From yeah. I'm not going to be there. That's alone Sabu. No way. So he's like, I'm not getting up at fucking nine in the morning. No way. So he decides the smart thing to do is to go into uh, a soma coma, as he used to call it, to become somatose, which takes so many muscle relaxants that he literally can't wake up. And then uh, before he did that, he rearranged all the furniture in his bedroom so no one could come into the room. So he goes to sleep for like 19 hours under the influence of all these heavy muscle relaxants. dangerous and stupid. What a stupid fucking idiot. Raven's next door going, well, like, you know, he's probably asleep, but like, you know, I've not seen him all day. So they have to get... You think as well, this is like... What year? 2009? 2008? Yeah, I think it was 2012 this one happened. 2012, right. But either way, after... After the third bout of mass wrestling deaths, oh, I mean, you know, from he, drugs. Come on, I mean, he he probably one of those people where I think he would have known more wrestlers who've died than are alive yeah, at this point. Exactly. You know? Like that's that's the, the circles he ran in. Like, like I cannot you know? imagine how terrifying and traumatizing it must be to lose so many of your friends to that same thing, and then for your friends to act like that. And like you know, I don't blame a promoter for then being like, right, call the fire department, call the cops, yeah, to, you know, knock down the door because we might no, have a dead body on yeah. our hands, absolutely. And even if it's just some scumbag promoter or even the worst scumbag promoter doesn't want to be the promoter yeah. who has a dead wrestler yeah, in a hotel room Sabu. or whatever Absolutely. it is. But like, you know, there's loads of stories like that. There's like, you know, you not talking, you not communicating. Mm. Like, you've got a lot of promoters who are running wrestling shows who kind of, you know, think of themselves a big deal and think they're providing opportunities and then, you know, you can't tell any wrestling promoter he's running a small little indie. No. That's all I'll say. And there's countless blogs of guys where I'm like, that piece of shit Sabu, I brought him in for a shot and then he, he ignored me backstage because Sabu, to protect his gimmick, won't speak to the promoter. He let his wife do that instead right how dare you disrespect the boys went into business for himself never hired this guy he's a fucking junkie all this stuff and if you're taking drugs you're messing up in your matches and you're involved in scandalous behavior you know i i feel sorry for him but i also accept the reputation that he's earned for himself mm-hmm. and there was a period of time on you know on twitter and stuff like that where he he says in his book like oh i thought i'd get heel heat and he started using like you know slurs and stuff like that to oh rub people God. up and it's like i'm sorry dude there's like there's a lot of people who will never listen to this episode because of what he did on Twitter like three or four years ago. Who it's he... only three or four years ago. Oh yeah. my God. Which he since tried to backpedal and explain. Can but ask... can I just say like that, you know, I accept that people don't want to know that stuff anymore. Um, I know it doesn't really make much of a difference, but just 
um, for the sake of my own curiosity, what type of slurs was it? Like, what what exactly was he trying to... Okay, right. You know, and I think a lot of, you know, I've heard people go like, well, maybe it's because of the horrible experience he had with those African-Americans. Just, you know, let's not talk about excuses. He says in his book he did it to try and drum up heat and interest for himself to get bookings. People would see that local homophobe, that local racist get beaten up. And I'm like, you know... I feel sorry for him because of, you know, a lot of things about his career, not getting his due. Mm. I don't feel sorry if people, you know, don't want to hear his name or think nothing of him. Because when you do that, it doesn't matter the other sympathy that you've earned, you know. And it's sad because, like, you know, there were points we were watching shoot interviews with him. And, you know, you were were quite emotional at points because it is a very sad, sorry case. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel so cruel saying this, but I, I, like, I pity him. Yeah, no, I pity him. I absolutely do. Because, you know, I've seen great wrestlers who have borrowed from him and you know I've, you see the mick foley like his book is full of wrestlers who've gone on to be bigger stars than him talk about how much like the wrestling industry owes so much to him and he mm. never got his flowers he never got his fair dues and all that stuff and you know he's pretty banged up he's pretty hurt you know the thing is i don't even pity him for that because i don't feel that's what he wants i don't feel that's ever been what drives him mm. i don't think he cares about mm, recognition and fame and respect of his peers and everything so much the reason I pity him is because he's such a scared little man. Like, and yeah, that never went away, did it? He's a scared dude. He's yeah. Like, yeah, and I, I just couldn't help but watch some of those shoot interviews he did, where he talks about getting injured again and again and again and again and again, and just every time him taping himself up and no pulling himself back together. I'm medic. No hospital. Uh-huh. You know, him trying to sleep at night, but he can't because of the pain from his jaw, and you know he's trying to eat breakfast in the morning, but he can't because of. He's not yeah. got any teeth, like, and it just—I just found myself crying at one point because I was like, "This poor man!" Like, I wanted to kind of go back in time and rescue him from himself. There was no time ever. I think we've done an episode where it felt like the rest are quite as much as those moments when we were seeing those interviews at Sabu. But like, you know, we, in Jake Roberts, I think it came up a little bit in the Macho Man about the idea of kind of losing yourself in the character. But always with Jake Roberts and Macho Man, these folks we talked about, even Scott Hall, there was always a sense that they knew their stardom, they knew their worth, they knew their their place in mm. the world. And that caused their depression because it's like, I'm this fucking legend and here yeah. I am in this life. Whereas Sabu, I feel he's like Randy the Ram in that he's like, next town, brother. Yeah, he's doing it for you the know? business. Never at any point in his book is he like oh i'm obviously slowing down a bit now mm. or you know obviously injuries you know have, have caught up with me so i had to change the stuff no of course not i'm out there doing the same stuff you know i'll you know if, if i'm too hurt i won't do that i'll do something else mm. but i'll keep doing the same stuff just another town like i've never you know he'd never slow down he did retire from the ring competition last year i believe but i you know i would expect him back yeah you know fully anytime soon i think his last real kind of great wrestling moment in terms of people seeing him on mass i think he came for in 2010 him and rob had a we watched it actually mm. him and the one night stand do over that ecw reunion show that tna did where they weren't allowed to legally use the letters ecw so it's a bit of an awkward watch but him and rob have a really great match that kind of shows you probably the little things that they were trying out back when they were youngsters like yeah. knowing all the moves back to front and that was really cool but you know a lot more stories of Sabu not being there, him being sore or whatever. Him getting those legend spots, the convention spots, I think that's great. I like that wrestling now at least has an infrastructure for people like him to make yeah. a payday without taking bumps. But one of the saddest things about him that I learned was very recently, only like a day or two before we started recording, was that any of the recent stuff I'd seen of him, you know, from the indies from kind of you know, 2012 onwards, even when he returned to TNA a couple of years ago for a little run, 
he was always with this uh, kind of lady who's dressed up in the kind of I Dream of Genie garb. Mm. And I was like, oh, who's that? And there's her name was Super Genie. And I looked up about her and it's like, oh, it's Melissa Coates. She was one of the women who would have been in WWE developmental, one of the kind of bodybuilders turned wrestlers who just didn't get called up to the main roster for whatever reason. And I was like, oh, this is really nice. It's kind of, it felt very like Katie Forbes and Rob Van Dam. Mm. Like, hey, you've had your long, hard career. Now here's your super babe, who's your your best friend and wrestling manager and all that type of stuff. You know, don't book me unless you're booking Melissa as well. That type of thing. Yeah, that's nice. And, you know, his first marriage was not one that he spoke of very highly. They got married in Japan. She was Japanese. Their family were very strict. Right. And a guy I knew who worked Sabu at that Fight Like Ape show said that when they did the match, it was all through her. Sabu right. wouldn't speak to any of the boys. It was all through her. So I think it was a similar thing with Melissa. she get the tables, the chairs, all that stuff. But in 2020, uh, she developed a series of like, blood clots in her leg. Right. And that's, I know that's happened wrestling before. You know, blood clots is something that's, that's cropped up now and then. I know that uh, Chris Candido, who would have been a good friend of, of Sabu's as well, you know, blood clots was what, in his leg was what led to his eventual passing but the leg had to be amputated then oh god and you obviously they couldn't work anymore because yeah. you know she couldn't get around this is obviously during covid as well oh, you know my god. a lot of chatter about maybe that maybe the reason why it got to the point of amputation was that she couldn't get the scheduled appointment in my mind it was like oh no they didn't go to the hospital because oh. they were scared to but i think you know in the time of covid we yeah. all you I mean it's only two years ago but remember you a lot of you probably were hoping to have a appointments at your doctor that still haven't happened from 2020 yeah, still it's, now it's still t- ongoing yeah absolutely so her legs gets amputated and she she died around a year later <gasps> after the oh, fact you God, know that's so sad uh, like literally just a few days shy of her like her 52nd birthday oh, and you know he's since that's happened you know when she was around i was like hey sabu's doing more shoots he's doing more appearances you know there wasn't always great news coming out about it but i felt that he was there with someone who made him happy and they seemed happy together mm. and there's a lot of like sabu shoots from like you know two or three years ago where he feels a lot sharper and a lot more kind of focused and yeah. less i guess depressed than some of the earth because some of those cavehead commentary ones we watched other than him rolling a joint in record time were a, yeah. bit, were a bit grim but yeah it's just kind of sad now that he feels a little bit kind of like lost into this world of rest and that he doesn't have that kind of anchor point mm. he doesn't seem to do social anymore because of well you social for how you used it yeah i don't i people don't, don't think. want you back and people don't want him back and i i'm sad because i feel like we were at a point with his career where people aren't gonna give you your flowers and you're not gonna be remembered and that sucks because it's mm. not your fault but now i feel he's at a point where he's made it at least partly his fault because i think yeah. there were people who go fuck him it's such a shame with that it is social a tragedy. stuff did that happen around the same time his wife died no it was before then it was before yeah. i mean i like to hope maybe his wife dying has changed him and made him a bit more empathetic but um he doesn't have a deep well of empathy joe that's such a shame because you know i mean yeah. the, la- the last chapter of his book is is called fu shout outs and it's just him like talking about people who like he hates jim ross because jim ross owes the chic money right. he hate you know he hates all these people for all these different reasons but like there are points in his book where he's like ha and you died first oh my i God. i win because you died first and i like i know the shitty people in wrestling but i don't think i could ever in good conscience be like yeah. like i mean i laughed when i heard it because it was so absurd i think about it now and i go that's fucking that's t- that's a whole other world. Of, that's a whole not, other world of darkness. It's you not know? healthy for no, him to no, think no, no. that way. It's that's it, it. It will just. 
it will wear you down that way of thinking it will just drive you mad from the inside and i think the book clearly was good for him because he had to talk about you know none of the shoot interviews he ever talk about the stuff from his childhood i think it was good for him to do that to get it out there you know once it's out there it's less scary i think Mm. there's a lot of wrestlers who had shitty reputations and then they kind of opened up about their kind of traumatic past and they're all right let's start to kind of heal and hear more about it you know that i think we never got that with roddy piper because he was still so cagey yeah but i feel like he reminds me a lot more about like roddy piper than say a sean waltman even though he's opened up just the nature and the tone of a lot of that stuff in the book makes me feel that it maybe did him good but it also did him bad because mm. he dwelled on some of the really bad shit and he feels like he's reveled in it a little bit too much mm. i feel like he is someone though where maybe the work transcends just who he is because even if you think sabu as a person isn't worth much what he did as an innovator as somebody who changed the style of wrestling for my money i still think it's worthy of of discussion it's oh, like absolutely. you don't have to like it but mm. you can't let's not it's not healthy for anyone i think we've seen this online recently it's not healthy for anyone to pretend that these people who have you know hurt us because of their actions or their reputation let's not pretend that they have no in they have no value anything. whatsoever yeah it, it's tempting it it makes you feel good but mm. i think you're just playing their game you know and that at the end of the day it, yeah. it doesn't work out so i don't know what the conversation that needs to be had about him i don't see him as someone going into a hall of fame i don't so yeah oh so he's not in the hall of fame it was the sheik no, it was the sheik who went in not him i mean i don't see him going into the hall of fame while alive because I think he'll say something. Or I think they'll worry that he'll say something. It's that will sad, make them look yeah. Bad. It's like Roddy, I think. With Roddy, people were waiting until he dies. Yeah, because then it's safe then. It's safe then. You can't mess it up anymore. Yeah. Scott, and it's such Scott a shame Hall because, as well, I felt that happened yeah. with him too, you know? And it is a shame because everyone is capable of learning and growing and changing. You just have to fucking own up to your... You have mm. to you know, take responsibility for your actions. And people will forgive you if you just make the effort to genuinely change and be better and it just sounds like he doesn't even want to but doesn't it show you though how toxic and how just it eats away at you that mindset that and i think it does form a big part of it there's lots of strands that make him the person that he is but that like it's a shoot protect the business keep it quiet Mm. you shut up i feel like he always felt like an outsider like he wasn't a wrestler he was sheik's guy you know, he, he wasn't yeah. part of that locker room. Almost the, born in the wrong generation. Yeah, because I feel like the most fun or the most like home he ever felt like or describes is when he's walking through the rooms after the show in ECW mm. taking gimmicks, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that shouldn't be the fondest memory of wrestling, no. you know? But I think that he is... He has flown the flag for the Sheik. And I think that it's like Rob has to fly the flag for Sabu, who then has to fly the flag for the Sheik. It feels like these guys are in this like kind of chain of legacies. Yeah. And as long as one person is still remembered, I think the others won't be forgotten. Mm. You know, I certainly recommend they were the sponsors of this episode. The Sheik's book, Blood and Fire was a fascinating look into that old mentality. And I think Sabu, he is a throwback. Yeah. For, for, for better or for worse, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that's part of the reason why I feel kind of sad for him in a way is it feels like the world's moved past him. Does that make you less invested in watching more of his matches, seeing more of his stuff? Where does that put you with Sabu? I would like to see more of his matches, especially against like different types of people. And part of the reason mm. I would like to see more of his matches is because it is very explosive and you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no predictability to his matches. For I'm never sure. going to get bored of them, I don't think. But 
it is hard kind of allowing yourself to be a fan of someone who hasn't shown that they are worthy of that. Mm. And especially doing this podcast when there are so many people we've covered who have like really put the effort into like understand social issues and grow and change as people and educate themselves on issues and stuff like that. And Sabu's gone through a really hard time and it's sad to see him kind of be in this space of obscurity when he deserves, I think he deserves more than that in a Mm. way, but also he's shown that he doesn't deserve more than that. It's just awkward. He he is sitting in this weird space in wrestling history right now. And it's frustrating as well that he's done this to himself because there's going to be all these other fans that are going, you know, no doubt go, see, told you, he could never work. He could yeah, never be yeah, good. Yeah. We, you proved us right by being shit. And it's like, well, that's not quite true. Like he is really talented. He's really good. He puts on these amazing matches. He's very skilled and incredibly unique for the time. But then he's fucking cutting off his nose to spite his face. Mm. He's really doing himself no favors. And he's like basically handing over the narrative of his career to the haters. Yeah, and I think... There's always times, I think it's easier with wrestlers for me, and the reason why Sabu will always be this kind of cult figure in my head. You know, I'll always associate wrestling and my memories of wrestling with Sabu. Because, you know, that's not Terry Brunk for me, that's Sabu, you know? And it's not the case that there was this other guy who was behind the screens we never saw. I mean, I don't think Sabu ever saw the real Sabu, you know? From such a young age to go from like, "Uh uh-oh, my life is going to turn into this one thing i'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life and said you're into this highly secretive super secret club and you have the legacy on your shoulders and all that stuff i mean you know i think when wrestling catches people certain people at a certain time i think it i don't say it stunts their growth but it definitely changes how they will view the world it's arrested development yeah and wrestling's done that time and time again to sabu i think yeah you know there are more than, you know, just physical scars I think this business has left yeah. upon the body of Sabu. Let's see what you folks think about the homicidal, suicidal and genocidal death-defying maniac. It's time for your tweets all about Sabu. A nice variety of, uh, of opinions on, on Sabu here. I feel he's been someone that people have been kind of dwelling on, musing about over these last few years. Yes. So first up from HXC Coney Island. Sabu was an innovator and he blazed the trail for a lot of flyers in wrestling today. He was scary and believable. So much so that while other kids were scared of Kane and The Undertaker, I was scared of Sabu. Oh my God, His... there's my dream match right there. Oh. Best Kane versus Sabu. <laughs> <laughs> Now from that Dean Reed, once saw Sabu at an ICW show and it was altogether unsettling and weird vibe. He made the announcer do his intro twice and was raging that the heels were more popular than him and then started launching chairs about music fucking slaps though. Yeah, see, if you're the Sheik and you do that, you, know, you get front page news. You do that if you're Sabu and people, I think, just get confused. See, I think when the eccentric erratic behavior is kind of explained away by, ah, oh, just the gimmick. But like, I remember reading, I've read so many reports where it's like, yeah, we're at an indie show and then like it was in the middle of a match and Sabu wasn't even booked and he had his music played and he just sat in the front row and there's just like weird stuff like to make himself the focus of attention. Yeah, we've had a couple of tweets yeah. from people um, mentioning Sabu being in the crowd yeah, and then like, like getting involved in matches and then going back into the crowd to like sit there as an audience so member. strange. Very interesting <laughs> man, yeah. Next up from The Gutteridge, he formed the basis of my schoolyard arguments of wrestling isn't fake. So legendary was his reputation of gluing open wounds shut and carrying on. As I got older, as much as I still loved him, it became obvious how much heavy lifting his mystique was really doing. Yeah, I think he's someone where 
you know, I think if you talked to Joe after she'd seen 25 Sabu matches as opposed to, like, maybe, you know, seven or eight as we've watched for this, probably would end up having a different opinion. But that's the thing with Sabu, right? Like, any style of wrestling like that, should you be watching it back to back to back to back to back? Should you be having that style of wrestling back to back to back? No. Yeah, like right. Like, Sabu, you have a Sabu match, like, once in a while. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's what's so annoying with him is that, like, WWE should have... And they could have, if they went with their Hulk Hogan of WWE yeah. CW, he could have been there once or twice a year. Doing an occasional table spot. Yeah, the hardcore legend. And it means something when someone young beats him. Yeah. You know, that, you could go to those places. But, you know, certainly it's like he's like the magician where the more you see the trick and if it's the same trick you're seeing over and over again, you know, then you kind of start seeing where, where, where the cards are being hidden and stuff like mm. that. You know, I think... His style benefited from Mystique. And I think that someone like Sabu probably couldn't ex- exist anymore because, you know, I remember like four or five years ago, people being like, wait until you see this dude on the Indies, Keith Lee, oh my God, and hearing this buzz. And then I went and I saw him on YouTube, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll see him in a few years. And mm-hmm. I did. And like when he came along, I was excited, but it wasn't like I was seeing the thing. I knew what to expect because YouTube and everyone films everything. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, you know, you could go back and read some of the Observer newsletters and you've got Dave Meltzer being like, hi, I'm in Japan. This man was set on fire and he covered himself in scars because <laughs> he glued his fucking barbed wire wounds shut. What? And then you see the wrestling magazines. And people forget the magazines back in those days. That's where the money was because people would see shots of the Sheik. That's where Sheik made his legend was you'd see pictures of him covered in blood, screaming, throwing you mid-fireball shot. It was that still imagery. That's where the, the mystique came from. Mm. I don't think you can have that anymore. You know, yeah. unless you're someone who's like, no pictures, please. <laughs> <laughs> now from Frank Mullis. I once quit my job to go and see Sabu Russell. <laughs> One of the best decisions of my life. <laughs> Next, from Osmosis124. Interestingly enough with Sabu, I first saw his work in WWECW and I thought he was absolutely incredible. So smooth, with spots I'd never seen before. I had no clue he had such a reputation for botching. People who think that his reputation is like so strong for botching, I would suggest like show it to fans who've not seen him wrestle before and let them watch and decide for themselves. No more so than the comedy DVD you put on you keep looking at your friend every two seconds to see if they've laughed. If you're showing them a Sabu match and keep pointing out all the mistakes he's going to make, well then, yeah, he's going to get that reputation. I think that, yeah, he does make a lot of mistakes, obviously, but he's one of those people where, like, you know, there's never been a wrestler like Sabu, maybe Sin Cara for a brief period, where people are like, let's watch him and show people the mistakes. Interesting that both of those men are high flyers at a time when high flying wasn't mainstream. And remember that thing at the end of his book. I remember I read it out to you and you actually referenced it. I think it was on our, our Money in the Bank pay-per-view that we just did when talking about Shotzi Blackheart. Mm. And it was, it was about like... The idea that the more you push yourself and try new things, the more mistakes you will make, which is true in life in general. The the more you push yourself and push your boundaries, the more mistakes you will make. And that is a good thing. Why did he keep getting spots? Well, because he was trying to do new things and he made mistakes while doing those new things. Yeah. And the reason why those mistakes don't get repeated now is because other people have been able to learn from them. Other people have grown up rewinding and playing frame by frame his spots which go wrong and going okay why did that go wrong how can i make sure that doesn't go wrong for me how can i improve it you know it's 20 years of sports science as well that's gone into this like it's just incomparable what we call that in the business is the teachable moment (laughs) (laughs) now from aaron buell gotta talk about that plus five spike of negotiations he keeps in his boot yes the legendary spike of negotiations and the spike of commiseration 
commiserations as well. Like if someone tries to shake your hand and say sorry, get the spike in the boot, brother. <laughs> Try and remember that story I've told it a million times. Whether or not it was someone did a run-in and Sabu didn't know on the indie show or someone lost it. I think it was Rob lost a contact lens and Sabu wasn't told and he thought, oh, they're going to business for themselves and everyone's looking for a contact lens and he's got the spike out. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Now from Sitkand, Eddie. The first time I saw him wrestle, I was amazed. Something about his wobbliness on the ropes makes it so much more believable and impactful <laughs> for me. And him just shoving a chair under his bum to jump on someone with. Genius. I want more wrestlers like Sabu. I love him. Yeah. I totally agree about the wobbliness on the yeah. ropes. And I, I, I feel the same way. And I don't know how I'm so internally hypocritical and why some wrestlers that freaks me out and wrestlers then like Sabu it's like yeah we've seen a, a couple of times recently I remember when Punk had his big injury and we were watching we were like no that ha- it is definitely he's just playing with us he's trolling mm. with us because he wants us to think that oh no he's hurt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> finally now from Space King Bobby he managed to get over and participate in stories with little to no presence on the microphone letting his death defying actions in and out of the ring speak for him This man has sacrificed his body on the altar of pro wrestling. He is a journeyman in the land of extreme. Oh my God. I think, yeah. Sacrifice is definitely the word I I take for it. Because I think you you can't argue that, right? You know, he wasn't doing it for his own veneration. I think we've had a lot of discussions about that hardcore style. I think very often it comes down to the people who are doing this. I struggle to think of people who are like, I'll just throw a chair and hit someone really hard and it'll Mm. make me look good, brother not that many people i mean maybe to an extent the sandman but yeah you've got a, lo- a lot more people who are doing it for quote unquote the love of the business mm-hmm. you know and like sabu this is something as well that i think people might be quite shocked by as as you know pissed as he off as he is about his history with Heyman and a lot of a lot of his history with wrestling he is the first and most vociferous defender of you know promoters getting the slack for or promoters getting shit for wrestlers hurting themselves really because he's like oh you got hurt because paulie told you to get hurt no you fucking didn't you got hurt because you wanted to impress paulie and you tried too hard and Mm. you weren't good enough and you hurt yourself you should know what you can do you should know what is impressive but it's like he thinks that people like kind of become marks for themselves and i think there was maybe a lot of that in ecw of people thinking that they could prove that they're worthy Mm. by hurting themselves and i mean you know, there's countless examples where Heyman himself is like, I was going to fire Bill Alfonso, but then he bled so much. So much. Wow. I just had to hire him for another year mm. in spite of his betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, Sabu is very into the personal responsibility side of things. Mm. I don't think he Except feel- for when it comes to his own behavior. But I don't think he feels sorry for himself. He's not like, he's. I don't think Sabu's having no. the, I'm a broke down piece of meat fucking no. chat from, from, from that. I don't think he is. He's like a bit kind of bitter about certain wrestlers, but I think he kind of feels like, eh. You know, that seems to be his, his reac- reaction to where he is in wrestling, yeah. why wrestling is the way he it is and why he's remembered the way he is. Eh. But then again, if his, heart, his feelings really were hurt, he'd be the last person to tell you that. That's true. Or to even recognize it. Yeah. You know, who knows what the legacy of Sabu will be, but it's certainly not for us to tell you what it is right here, right now. I think I've shown you an interesting side of wrestling. I think mm. once again, we found in this little grotty promotion in Philadelphia... 
another kaleidoscope of human emotions. Yeah, seriously. You can see why I like showing these tortured weirdos to Joe, right? Yeah, they're interesting men. Interesting, interesting little men. Interesting little men. Joe, next episode, I think is a, it's a big one. Oh, another interesting little man. <laughs> As I think, this is the first time ever this episode is going to be so big. I know that you're listening to a very long episode right now thinking, wait, they're talking about big episodes. We're cutting this next one in two, folks. Or next episode will be about the first half of the career of the heartbreak kid, Sean Michaels. And it's because we've done Vince, we've done Brett, we've talked about Montreal, we know all this stuff about this guy. But I think... It's too much to do the redemption angle and what comes after how, one episode. How come Vince doesn't get a two-parter, but Shawn Michaels does? Because Vince doesn't have the benefit of hindsight of having done the Vince McMahon episode. No, okay. All right, because I'm not doing that shit again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing an episode that's seven hours in length and is held up many years later when more scandals come out as being yeah. a really good example of how you should look at Vince McMahon. So thank you everybody who's been saying nice things about that episode. It, it means an awful lot to me. But yeah, we'll be doing, look... What is the time frame? How are we going to split this evenly and fairly? The best way I can do it is this episode will be about bad Sean. Bad Sean. <laughs> and then the next episode after that will be about good and in inverted commas Sean. Nice. So bad Sean, good Sean will be our two episodes. Okay. We're going to be using the same hashtag as the episodes come out and as the story progresses. People will probably want to, you know, make reference to part one and part two and vice versa. So if you feel very strongly it should be something in one part, do let us know. But we will be doing different posts for both parts using the hashtag HowToHBK. We are after your favorite matches, moments, stories. Career highlights, lowlights, rumours, everything you can hear in between about the young man who was a rocker, hung out with Sensational Sherry, formed Degeneration X, became one of the biggest icons in the world of wrestling, and then went away for four years. We're talking all about Shawn Michaels, and I think we're going into this episode with an awful lot of luggage. Yeah, this is going to be our biggest luggage episode yeah. ever, because... I know a lot about Shawn Michaels And I've already. used him yep. since day one. Day I'd dot, like, yeah. He, he's the lad I've been using as like, here's an example of a good match with the person we're doing an episode on. I will find out for the episode itself how many other episodes he's appeared in. He's, he's in the Kane episode for fuck's yeah, sake. Yeah, he's in like every episode. It's, it's amazing. But um, he's also the only wrestler we'll have done an episode on who I know every lyric to his music that's true wow because i love Shawn michaels music that's on the that's on many a mix one of my favorites yeah, yeah. we're playing edf 4.1 listen to Shawn michaels yeah. like you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm very excited it's a big one and i think this way we're gonna at least hopefully pace ourselves somewhat thank you everyone for all of your insight your thoughts your match recommendations it was really useful the book recommendation as well i'm so glad that i got my my my, my eyes and my ears on that and as well a big shout out to the folks from chic tale of blood and fire as well for sponsoring the episode and again turning me on to that because i think uh, this episode wouldn't have made sense without understanding the chic first yes but maybe we'll have to look at some other sheiks down the line. You know, that's another episode that might be on the horizon. Ooh. But look, we got enough on our plates right now. Yeah. How2HBK is the hashtag. And HowToWrestling.com is your home for all episode information. All the match recommendations, recommended bonus viewing, upcoming episodes. You can see all that artwork. Artwork, you say? Yes, it's beautiful. Now, we get paid nothing from any of our podcast hosting places. No one where we're, we're streaming from, do they give us any sort of uh, uh, monetary reward? 
award or what, anything like that. What, you mean like we're that. not like Joe Rogan earning millions from just being on Spotify? No, we're like Joe Graham and Kevin Mann making nothing from that. Yeah, but have, we, have we ever made anything from Spotify never. or iTunes we've or SoundCloud? Never, or... The only money we've ever made from this podcast is on Patreon and from the folks who bought our live show tickets, which are on sale now, and the folks who bought <laughs> bought uh, uh, coasters from us at one point oh, as well. Oh yeah, the coaster days. But... <laughs> But it's been pointed out to us recently that if you want to see all of our beautiful artwork in full colour as you're streaming and listening to our podcast or downloading, I know iTunes doesn't do this sometimes. I think Stitcher is a little bit hit and miss, but guaranteed without fail. And we have looked into this to try and make it so on all platforms, but guaranteed, you want to see their artwork, Spotify is the man for the Mm -hmm. job. And wherever you're listening, please leave us a rating or review or let a friend know about the episode that we have done if they'd be interested in hearing about how to wrestling. But until next time, where we're going to be talking about the heartbreak kids. I mean, you excited for this one? Are you dreading it? Where are you at? Is this going to make you even more of a Brett fan? What do you think? I am really excited for part one because I love little um, twink Shawn Michaels. (laughs) Like, I love his aesthetic when he's with Sherry. Mm -hmm. I love his aesthetic, you know, when he's on his own. Uh, The sexy boy era is peak iconography. But I am dreading doing uh, Christian John. Christian Sean. Because all I really know about um, like current Sean Michaels is kind of current Sean Michaels as mm. an old man who's friends yeah. with Triple H and learning to use a computer. Like Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and then, so yeah, and then there's that, and then there's all the drama of the Montreal screw job. I am interested to see his attitudes towards Brett, having read Brett's book now. Promise me, I don't think I've ever had to do this for an episode yeah. before. What? But we're at the you know, we're at the point now. And I love this. You know, you become this wrestling fan. Yeah. It's like, give him a fair chance. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Don't I will, just. I will try. Because we can go into this arms folded, thinking straight away he's a piece of shit, and you will think that but about like, him. I do think he's a piece of shit, but I think he's an amazing. I think he's one of the best wrestlers ever to have walked the earth. Well, when you were doing your tweets, folks, bear in mind the Joe Graham, who's the biggest Bret Hart fan in the world, the Joe Graham yeah. who made a musical special about Bret Hart's being screwed, being screwed at our last live show. So come on now. <laughs> just like, just treat me like you would treat Bret Hart, basically. Just just like shelter me, comfort me. Tell them to do the best. Yeah. <laughs> <gasps> oh, it's gonna betray me if I end up liking Sean more than Brett. Because well. I already feel bad enough for doing that Brett Hart wrong wrestling shirt yeah. where it has Sean Michaels' name underneath. Oh. Someone wore it to meet Brett. Just how offensive was that wrong wrestling shirt? Tune in next time to find out. <laughs> Until then, it's going to be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. And we'll see you next time on How To Wrestling. See ya.